have our special guest here, and it's Mr. Dan Spoon. How are you, Dan? I'm great, Rick. Uh, how are you doing? It's um, wonderful uh, to be here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, it's, how's the weather today? I haven't been outside I, yet today. Well, coming from Orlando, where it was 85, it's a little chilly out there for me, but I know I'm. it's not me to complain to be up being in Vegas with the weather, but it's, uh, it's about 50. Yeah, it's a, l- a little bit colder here yeah, for you. Yeah, huh? quite, quite a little drop in temperature, but uh, that's okay. Man, oh, man. I mean, you're about the only person here that's complaining at being too cold. I got my jacket on. I'm trying to stay warm. <laughs> I've, I've got a snow jacket upstairs, if, if, if that'll make you feel any better. Well, thank you. I, I did bring the one jacket I had that has a hood, so if it gets any colder, I'll, I'll move into that. <laughs> Dan with his hoodie. Yeah, there you go. Dan from the hood. Dan from, hopefully Dan, not. No, Dan no, no. from the hood. So, <laughs> hey, welcome, Dan. It's uh, great to have you here at Sagebrush. This is your first one, right? It's the first time I've been. I've been to Las Vegas lots of times, but I've never had a chance to go to Sagebrush. You know, it's always so close to the, uh, you know, D.C. Leadership Conference, uh, which will, you know, be next to weekend. So, uh, you know, week from, uh, starts a week from uh, Saturday here. So, it's uh, kind of always hard to do the one-two punch. I'm always very, uh, uh, very uh, uh, proud or, uh, you know, uh, respectful of those folks that come to Sagebrush and then turn around and go to Washington, D.C. That's a tough one-two punch, like yourself. Uh, but, uh, oh, it's always fun to be in Vegas. So, uh, yeah. artists and Dan invited us out, and uh, we're excited about being here. And you get to come here quite a bit to Vegas, right? Oh, yeah. My mother-in-law lives here. Leslie's mom lives in the Henderson, just, you know, which is a suburb of Las Vegas. And uh, our niece lives out here, and, uh, and Leslie's brother. So, we've got family out here. So, it's always fun to come out and, and see the family and uh, have a chance to have a nice meal and talk to them. Yeah, we kind of miss Leslie not being here, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, we, we, we're we sad. She's uh, she's a little uh, under the weather, kind of hyperextended her knee there, so she had an MRI yesterday. We hope everything works out well for her, but uh, five-hour flight did seem like more than she was up for right now. Yeah. yeah, so you had a direct flight coming in? Direct flight. It was really nice. Uh, Southwest left at, uh, you know, I got up at 4 o'clock this morning, East Coast time, so I'm a little, little blurry-eyed here, but... Uh, you know, flight left about 7.20. It was on time. Perfect. Uh, you know, I threw, my, threw my bags in the room and came right on into the conference. I, I did a very bad thing coming here. What would you do, Rick? Well, Brian, uh, who's here with me and is up in the room right now, he's yeah. not feeling uh, real well this morning. Uh, he woke up with uh, some uh, shivers. Oh, gosh. Uh, so, um, but uh, with his uh, current current vertigo situation, yeah. he, he gets a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and he says, you can walk behind the wheelchair. I said, mm-hmm. baloney, I'm going to get a wheelchair, too. <laughs> Building wheelchairs. <laughs> so, we were racing. You know, it, it, Delta Airlines in Boston, <laughs> yeah. Terminal A has got this really, really long concourse to uh-huh. go anywhere. And, yeah. and all of a sudden, my ankle started to hurt real bad, Ooh. right? You know, how convenient, yeah. right? Yeah, you're, you're doing pretty good with your ankle. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I'm doing really well. The ankle's doing great. But yeah. but it started to hurt like a son of a gun. So I, I, we summoned a wheelchair. And here we are. We're kind of racing to the gate. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it was the smoothest check-in uh-huh. and, uh, you know, go through TSA. I, I, you know, isn't that a shame? It's like you're, you're treated better if you're in a 
wheelchair than if you're there with a guide dog or a cane and you're, yeah. you're trying to you know, I mean, use assistance but but be independent and walk yourself. And, yeah, um, I know. Yeah, like, um, well, and this happens to Leslie and I a lot. It happened to me again today. You know, the, the meet and assist that walked me down from the gate to the, you know, from the from the check-in to the to the gate through security. He was pu- pushing two women in wheelchairs and I was holding on to his back for dear life. You know, wow. and wow. that was all the way through security and, and it, it's almost kind of just not right. You know, it, it poor one poor guy and he's taking care of three different people wow. and pushing two wheelchairs. But uh, he had a really good attitude about now, th- it. This was out of MCO, right? Yeah, yeah, out wow. of OR. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. it MCO? McCoy, it's MCO. McCoy yeah. Air. It stands for McCoy Air Force Base. Back in the days, yeah, there was yeah. an Air Force Base in Orlando. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I got a kick out of Scott. What did he say? We usually have a good speaker. We usually have a good speaker. So that's good. I, the pressure's not on for tomorrow. I feel pretty good about that. You want to give give everybody a little preview of what you plan on talking about tomorrow? Well, it's it's really the topic is uh, you know networking and relationships, and I think those come into play in, in all kinds of facets of our life, whether it's involved in work or our non for profit activities with American Council of the Blind, uh, even in your personal relationships, your church, your community. I mean, it really is all about networking and building relationships, uh, whether you're advocating or looking for fundraising dollars uh, or just trying to find a good place to go have dinner. It's all about talking to people and building those relationships. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be, that should be very interesting. You, you do a good job with, with that stuff. So, um, well, so we'll have to, we'll have to make sure that Scott's got you on the uh, on the good list. Okay, you know? yeah, I hope, uh, hope hopefully uh, hopefully put- they'll invite me back Friday to give the ACB update. If not, <laughs> I could be on the flight out tomorrow night. If you get replaced by Jeff Tom, if you, you get know, replaced by Jeff, you know you know you're in trouble. So uh, <laughs> competition Jeff, stiff. Jeff is here. So hey, this is what your month seven. Yes, being president. Seven. Yeah, it sounds so, about so, right. So how have these seven months been for you? Uh, they have been. Uh, they they have been very jam packed. Uh, it's really. Uh, I, I have the. Uh, I've always had the m- mo- utmost respect for for Kim Charlson, our immediate past president, for president of ACB for the last six years. But until you walk in those moccasins, you don't really realize what happens on a day in day out basis. And so, uh, it's been exciting. Uh, I think we're uh, you know we're getting a lot done. We're, uh, we're we're really moving forward in a lot of different areas and. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a challenge. Understanding keeping Kim pretty busy, though. Keeping Kim busy. One thing about Kim, <laughs> she's the hardest work, working woman in show business, is what I tell her. So, tell so Kim's heart is always with ACB, and uh, she's she's a great uh, you know a great partner and a great asset for our organization. And she's been wonderful to help me transition into being president. So I've been uh, uh, that that you know Kim Kim's just super, and uh, Eric, our executive director. And his staff have all, all all really pitched in and done a uh, you know just do an absolutely fantastic job. And I mean, he is just he's a man who's all over the place. He's got a you know a, a brand new son and a five year old. And you know I, I talked to him on Thursday and he's getting on a plane Friday and flying to you know L A. And then he's back home on Saturday going to a T ball game. I mean the man is just everywhere. 
Listen, now you've never had any kids. Have I've, you? I've never. Less than I've never had any okay, children. Okay, so, so let's yeah. get a couple things straight here. Yeah. When you're feeling bad for him getting on an airplane to right. someplace, yeah, he's going on vacation. He's, 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 <laughs> he's, he's, he's getting away from the kids. He's, you know? uh, yeah, it, but I don't know. I don't know. West Coast one day of meetings <laughs> and then back. I don't know. That's that's a vacation. So well, you know the frequent flyer miles, yeah. flyer miles will come in handy. Come in handy later when, it, when right. it's time to go down to Disney World and stuff. <laughs> I, I think so. In but, a but it's, couple but of it's years. like, hey, Rebecca, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no. yeah, yeah, and I think he got delayed both both directions in typical fashions. Weather weather delays in, the, in each in each in each direction. So I think it ended up being even a little longer for him than he than he felt like it was going to be. But he had a, again another just exciting all the things we're involved in. So he actually went out um, to something Apple invited him for. They uh, you know they put the first uh, acting uh, helped sponsor the first acting school for blind and visually impaired uh, folks this year oh, cool. out in uh, California. And so this was their kind of quote unquote, you know, final final presentation uh, graduation. And so wow. uh, he was invited out to, uh, you know, be part of that. And he said there were like 12 actors and actresses that had gone through the program. Mary Lee Talkington, I know you know her yeah, from uh, yeah, we, she, yeah, she, she was, was the instructor who, who put the put the program together and he said there you know there were there were different agencies there li- listening to the talent and looking at the talent and uh, wow. he wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know several of these folks end up with uh, you know with um, job offers for different uh, series and events fairly soon so well, that's terrific that's kind of exciting yeah that's absolutely terrific so yeah. so we got a big week coming up here uh, yeah you know we've got RSVA through the end of this week and mm-hmm. we've got kind of a captive audience here with with sagebrush right but you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, just how things are going to flow next week? Sure, sure. It, well, you know, it's kind of uh, typical. You know, we're you know uh, we used to we used to call our meeting in, in February mid year, which didn't make a whole lot of sense because it really wasn't anywhere around the mid year. But we've now kind of retitled it the the DC Leadership Conference, uh, which I think is more appropriate to what we're doing in DC, which is really developing our leaders of the future and our current leaders. And so we'll have a a, um, a board workshop on Friday. Um, we're implementing nine um, st- strategic, I kind of call them strategic, but uh, program steering committees in nine key areas that kind of manage American Council of the Blind. And so we're having those leads, uh, you know, staff leads and the board members that participate on these steering committees all to get, get together on Friday for a very good uh, workshop day. We're going to have a gentleman named uh, Bill Reader who's going to come and talk to us about uh, development and fundraising. He's got uh, 30 years of experience at George Mason University. Just a really, really pleasant guy. Cool. And then uh, Cindy Van Winkle after lunch is going to talk to us about the board liaison, affiliate liaison program and some a set of guidelines and, and tracking spreadsheets she's kind of put together to really help the board uh, kind of work in a collaborative way with our affiliates. And then in the afternoon, we're going to have uh, Kate uh, Veramio. I, I, I butcher her name sometimes, so hopefully
hopefully I got it right. And she's from Mount Vernon Consulting, and she's a, a licensed PMP project certified project manager consultant. Okay. She's going to talk to us about you know how you really put together together effective steering committees, and more importantly, kind of how you set smart objectives. You know, which are specific and measurable. Uh, you know, they're uh, and, and, somebody's accountable. They're and, reasonable in scope, and, and they've got a timestamp. And, and very yeah. intentional. Very intentional. Very intentional. Okay. My favorite word. Yes. <laughs> very intentional. Yeah. So that's Friday. That'll be a really good workshop day for our board. And then we have our board of directors meeting. Now Friday uh, night, though, you, yeah. you've got a uh, you've got a networking exercise at the bar Friday night, don't you? Oh well, you, those those kind of go without saying. Oh, those, yes. There's always are, a network are... relationship building <laughs> opportunity. Uh, those are yeah. kind of built in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dining or restaurants, bars, yes, any of those opportunities. To, and that is one thing, it, it, all kidding aside, one thing that's really nice about the, the leadership conference, it's not the crazy, hectic pace of a convention. So you really do have time to talk to people, that's to go out true. and have lunch, yep. uh, you know, grab three or four folks and go have a nice dinner and really get to know people in a different way. And, and you've got leaders that come in from all over the country. Uh, so, you know, it, it really, uh, you know, I love the conference and convention that ACB, that we put on every year. But the leadership conference in, in D.C., it, it's, it's, a different, it's a different animal, but I kind of like it. You know, I really like the camaraderie. You know, it's a, yep. it's a room with 100 folks in it, and you can really get to know people, and, and that's nice. So, so the board meeting will be Saturday, and then Sunday we'll have the president's meeting. We're going to have two sets of breakout sessions uh, this year. Now, what's, um, what's different about this year's board meeting? About this year's board. Yes, this is really cool. For the first time, thanks to Rick and the team's help, uh, we're going to broadcast the ACB Board of Directors meeting on ACB Radio. So for all of those of you listening who uh, would like to uh, you know, listen in and hear our, our, our exciting Board of Directors meeting, we're, we welcome you. Now, are you going into executive session at lunchtime? We are going into executive session at lunch, so we have to remember to turn the radios off uh, at lunchtime. See, Kelly called me today and said, are you going <laughs> to... Yeah be at lunch. I want to make sure I get you the right lunch. I said, well, yeah. it's all depending whether or not they do executive uh, session because they throw me out when yeah, it's executive yeah, session. Yeah. So, well, you so definitely I, so, should go to lunch on Friday. We're so going I to guess, T.J. Stone's. You're so definitely I, so invited I, so to I lunch guess I don't have lunch. You know, probably, yeah. Saturday, but. Well, you know, Tom and Joe Lynn and Leslie, they'll take you to lunch, I promise. Oh, I, I, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just teasing. <laughs> and so. then, uh, yes, yeah, Sunday's the president's meeting. Like I said, we've got four breakout sessions, so uh, audio description project's going to have a breakout session. Uh, membership services will have a breakout session. Uh, we're going to have one on public awareness uh, with uh, uh, Katie and uh, Kelly and, and Deb Cook-Lewis. And uh, then we're going to have information uh, referral and peer support with Claire Stanley. So I think it's going to give us four really good topic areas to you know break down into smaller teams and have some real good dialogue. Uh, and then, yep. and then of course Monday is our legislative seminar. You know with Clark and uh, Clark uh, Rack and uh, Claire Stanley. Uh, we've got some folks coming in. Um, uh, Mark Schultz, was he here today or yesterday from um, from RSA? The the name's not, well, he, oh, the, um, was he? The new direct commissioner yes, of RSA? Yes, he was. Yes, yeah. he was. Yeah, he, he spoke yesterday. He was very, very eloquent. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good. And so. he's he's going to be there at our, uh, at our uh, uh, leadership seminar. So I think cool. it'd be good, really good to hear from him. We'll have somebody from the Federal Communications Commission, somebody 
usually from the Department of Transportation. So we'll have some good speakers, uh, and then we'll talk over our imperatives. And then Tuesday, we'll uh, you know send the troops out to Capitol Hill and uh, you know visit our uh, visit our legislators. So yeah. should be a really good week. And then everybody will collapse Tuesday night. To yeah, the, that's it. Go to I, dinner. I mean, it's it's sleep. it's relaxed, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the whole time. But I'll tell you, it's it's uh, a lot of stuff happening. You know, yeah. you know, it, it it I mean, you leave very tired, but in a good way. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. you you know, you've really focused on some good stuff, absorbed a lot of very very good information, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's good to go home. I mean, everybody goes home pretty pretty exuberant after that thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah, you usually come up your. You're really motivated and fired up, and especially if you get a chance to talk to a, you know, a, a congressman or con- you know, congresswoman or a senator, and and they really. Uh, you know, they, they support your issues and co-sponsor your legislation. You can just be pumped. You know, like, man, right. I made a difference. This really is cool. So, given that uh, mm-hmm. that you that you hang out in Vegas so much, what's your favorite restaurant down here? Well, you know, we're we're funny. Leslie and I are not big foodies, so we don't go to very many restaurants. I was going to ask you and Brian. You, you, guys, <laughs> you guys come every year. You hang out down at you know. We're usually out at the uh, you know out in the rural areas. We usually don't go to the Strip or down here to uh, Fremont very often. We're usually you know up in the local uh, casinos on Boulder Highway and right, in Henderson. Right, so right, uh, right. so this is kind of a treat to be downtown. Well, How about you? Do you? It, I hear there's a nice place at Four Queens. Is there? Did you go to a restaurant I, over there? No, I, 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 honestly, I've never been into Four Queens. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're kind of doing something. Well, uh, we're, we're being a little bit frugal this trip. Yeah. And uh, I, I was thrilled, though, because I got here, and uh-huh. I, I could have gone the whole week and not know this, because it's in a part of the hotel mm-hmm. that I don't often get to, but uh-huh. they put in a brand new Chick-fil-A well, in here. You, well, you're right, Rick. You know, I actually, they thought that, that, that this was in the normal conference room area in the Carson Tower. Uh-huh. So I got a tour of all the restaurants. <laughs> so I, I, I saw the, uh, y- you know, the uh, uh, Cadillacs and uh, in the yeah. and the Starbucks and the Chick-fil-A. And I think it's Grotto, the Italian restaurant. Yeah, yeah the, the Grotto, they actually Grotto, moved, they yeah. moved it. It, yeah. it used to be. And then they're putting a, 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 a steakhouse in here called Sawgrass. Sal, Sawgrass, yeah. I saw that was under construction. Yeah. And then uh, I think Claim Jumpers. So yeah. we, we went kind of checked out all the restaurants, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I went down Restaurant Row today by the pool, <laughs> the indoor pool. Saltgrass. I got a great saltgrass story. There was a, a saltgrass in Dallas when I was working uh-huh. uh, for EDS, and we were there one one time with a group of about twenty, uh, yeah, twelve or fifteen of us. And uh, I'm looking at the menu, mm. and I've got my nose right on the menu, looking yeah. at it very closely. And, and sure. the waiter comes up, thinking he's going to be funny, and he says, "Sir." Uh, let me get you a scratch and sniff menu, <laughs> and everybody, everybody just stopped talking, right? Yeah. And everybody was was looking at me like, "What's he gonna say? <laughs> what is Rick gonna say?" Yeah. And, and I said, "Do you have one, really?" And he and he said, "No." I said, "Well, tell you what, what can you ask your manager to come over?" And uh, we had a nice chat. Needless to say, I had a free meal that night. <laughs> now, have you ever? 
ever been to one of those uh, Texas Day Brazils oh, or yeah. Yeah, those, oh, those, yeah. those steak places? Oh, yeah. Those, oh, yeah. I, I remember the first time I went to one of those, I was out on a business trip in Houston, and it was like four of us, and we went out for dinner. And, and it's a little intimidating if you've never been there before. You know, you the uh, if you've never been to one of these Texas Day Brazils, they have this amazing, wonderful salad bar because they want you to fill up on salad because you get all the steak and chicken and sausage and, you know, all that you want to eat for as long as you want to eat. But the way it works, you have a, a little placard and it's it's got a red light, you know, red dot on it. Right. And, and when you're ready for the caballeros that are all walking around to serve you uh, meat, then you, uh, you flip it over to green and they come over to your table and they start serving you stuff. So we were so intimidated. The first time they came over, you know, we were getting like chicken and sausage and you know <laughs> and and because we didn't want to say no we didn't want to be rude but that's right you know, we went back we went back for business the next year and by that time we were we were texas day brazil snobs so like, <laughs> no 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 so w- bring the filet mignon over no 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 we don't get that chicken out of here we don't want any of that you, know, no, no, no. you can't fool us fool us one shame on yeah, you it's, yeah, it's, it's like us. there's another chain too called fogo to show Ooh, yeah is, Foca, yeah yeah which is um and I don't know about Texas to, to Brazil if that's an American restaurant, but Fogo de Show is actually a chain that came out of uh, out of Argentina. Yep, yep. No, not not Argentina, out of Brazil, I think. Mm. And uh, um, yeah, it's a Brazilian steakhouse. Yeah. And uh, the the one in Boston, they are so good about accommodating us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when when we go, we don't even have to tell them about our being blind because somewhere we're somewhere in their computer, and when we sit down. Yeah, they you know how they they've got the green and the red, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what they do is they tape a quarter on one of the sides. Okay, so you know so, what, so that we know which side is which. You're hot or right? cold. Yeah. Now we went with Carl, yeah. Carl Richardson. Uh-huh. And what does he do? He robs the freaking quarter. He takes the quarter. <laughs> hey, look, they left the tape quarter on the card. Awesome. <laughs> Free phone call. That's right. That's right. It's like isn't this nice? They're tipping us for coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to kid Carl about that. <laughs> so, 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 anyways. Well, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, well, thank you, Rick. It's good to be here, and uh, we look forward to the next couple of days. So, yeah, thanks, thanks, and uh, I, I know you've had a long trip this morning, so we'll let you go. And uh, we're supposed to have somebody come up here about one o'clock. Called uh, he calls himself uh, BBC. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Big. Blind Chuck. Big Blind Chuck. And he's supposed to, he calls himself the Blind Comedian. The Blind Comedian. Okay. And uh, I've been warned about him, so okay. we're going to have to make sure he knows that this is a G-rated radio station. <laughs> okay. So, uh, BBC. BBC. Big yeah. Blind Chuck. Yeah, BBC. So he promised on being here at 1 o'clock, but I haven't seen any evidence of him today, so... Okay. I, I, so, he, so we'll he may see. Have, he, may have, <laughs> he may have had a big, big Blind Chuck... <laughs> <laughs> a big, evening, yeah, a, a BBC moment. A what, BBC what, moment. What, yeah. what, what, what can we say? So, anyways, All hey, right. thanks, Dan. Hey, All right, Rick. This morning, artist is going to lead the way. So, I'm going to turn the floor over to artist, and I think she may have some prizes to give away to start off here. Yes, we're going to start out with door prizes. And 
I think some of you want door prizes anyway, so. Um, the first door prize is a container the shape of Nevada with a bunch of money in it. <laughs> William Scott Meehan. This morning, our <clears throat> first panel is on accessible um, kiosks for micromarkets and organizing them for the visually impaired. And our speakers are Kurt Johnson from Three Square Market and also uh, uh, David Little. Um, he's a West Coast representative. Um, I'm Sean Watson with Par Level Systems. Uh, Dave Little with Three Square Market, and then I also have Kirk Johnson here as well. I, w I was kind of hoping that we could start off this panel um, just by finding out, just by show of hands, how many people in the room are currently doing micro markets. Okay, yeah, w w maybe. 10%? And how many people that are not doing micromarkets, show of hands, are interested in doing micromarkets? All right, good. That's a fair number of hands, so hopefully we'll have some good questions. Um, I'm going to let you, I'm, I'll let you start. Yeah. But absolutely. now we kind of know what we're. There you go. With. Absolutely. So, Dave, a little again with uh, Three Square. Uh, just want to start out by uh, talking about a little bit about the industry. Obviously, micromarkets are uh, taking off. Tip, your typical vending locations are changing rapidly. Um, you know, it's, it's becoming more of a self-paced stores. Uh, and speaking about uh, Three Square in general, um, you know, uh, self-paced stores are starting to take off. We're starting to see them in uh, basically places where you live, work, and play. I mean, we're starting to see them in brick-and-mortar malls, um, condo locations, airports. Um, Self-pay is, uh, is a reality. It's not going away. Um, your typical vending locations are starting to change. Um, and we, we have worked uh, very strong on the accessibility piece. Um, so any questions that you have moving forward. But uh, I'm going to let uh, Kirk Johnson uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know what, um, why don't you go ahead and talk about your piece, and then uh, we'll talk about the accessibility at the very end. So, yeah. Sure. Um, I, I think that I've had two operators call me this year that if you're not doing markets, really, really consider it. I, I think that it's, it's definitely a direction that the industry is moving in. Um, I, I've had two large operators call me this year that don't do micromarkets, and they called me because they lost a major account because they didn't. And so, you know, you don't. This isn't something that you want to react to. This is. I like to call it going to your customers that are your your better customers, your larger customers, and maybe approaching it as an upgrade to your break room. Like, what does your break room look like right now? Do you have two vending machines in your break room? Do you have four vending machines in your break room? How many people um, on a daily basis are, are using this break room? And it, it's a really nice way to go to some of your, your larger accounts and kind of make them feel warm and fuzzy, right? Hey, we're going to upgrade your break room. How do you feel about having a micromarket? Is, is one way to, to, to approach it. Um, I, I think customers 
really like that when you come in and you could do something like that. Um, you know, but the, the thing about a micro market is that you can have so many more options available to the consumer than you can in a vending machine. Um, you can also, you, you can charge more. <laughs> for, for your products. When you have a, a micro market, you can charge sales tax and you can charge. I mean, think about how much it costs to buy a Snickers bar when you're at a convenience store versus how much it costs to buy a Snickers bar in a vending machine. I think when you have a consumer that is in a micro market, they feel like they're in a convenience store. So you're able to charge a little bit more for that. You're also going to see that your consumers will buy more than one item when they're in a micro market. They, they like to pick things up, touch it, turn it over, read the back of the package. Okay, maybe I'll get this too. It's, it's, it's that whole touch and feel sort of experience that you have, um, just as if you were shopping in a store. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, uh, and then, you know, talking a little bit about, I'm looking forward kind of to the Q&A part of kind of here, get your feedback on, you know, what's working, what's not working, what's your hesitation, why aren't you doing micro-markets? If you are doing micro-markets, how many do you have? What's your experience been? Um, I think the rest of the room might like to hear uh, some stories like that as well, and then we can speak to some of that. Um, one thing they asked me at NAM a few years ago that I kind of wanted to reiterate, reiterate that they use on their website, you know, we have competitors here, and Sean's a competitor, but today we come here as uh, one voice for one cause, and that is to get... Um, um, people educated on micro markets and find out what your needs are. So when we leave here, we're going to be competitors, but we're going to be out there for the betterment of the uh, uh, visually air, um, impaired community. Um, so one of the things that we've heard over the last few years is I came here many years ago, uh, represented a distributor on ATMs, and we talked about getting them out there for the visually impaired. And for years, being in the vending industry, I've also heard visually impaired, how is it going to be better accessible? Back in the AP days when you had the, uh, the talk, the box. Um, and as we came into the micromarket industry four years ago, one of the things I worked with was knowing Scott and Dan Sippel, John Hewitt for many years was um, how are we going to make it more accessible? We talked about it, but it really didn't take a lot of our time um, because we were so busy growing this industry. So what we did is committed to, over the last uh, couple of years is to bring in some blind um, operators and visually impaired to help us develop it because we were looking at developing our back-end software, and it was a perfect timing to make this accessible. So each time I speak, we've gone a little bit farther. This year we hired uh, Chris Howard, and Chris is a trainer. He's got his own company that goes around the country training blind operators. Or Chris Ingram. Sorry, I said Chris Howard. Chris Ingram. Um, we have another Chris Howard, too, though. But uh, So uh, we're growing in a fast pace, and I'm even, uh, I'll go back and find new employees there when I get back there. And the same with Sean. I'm sure the same things happen with her as we discuss employees. She goes back, and we uh, see this increase. So what we did is um, working with them, we released, uh, I think in October, it was under V53, all of our micro-markets, internationally went out with that software for accessibility in the bottom right-hand corner. And as we release it and meet with operators, they always come up with great ideas on, you know, hey, I, how do we get from point A to point B a little bit easier? And that's where we have Chris helping us. So currently right now we have the accessibility where we have the um, uh, accessibility to turn on voice or use the head jack. The other thing we have is uh, we made our kiosk ADA compliant because wheelchair accessibility plus um, blind accessibility. So we've created a 46, which allows the screen to drop down to the bottom. We've also allowed it so that we follow the same thing as what Apple has done or 
Microsoft has done with the double tap, the swipe left, swipe right. Um, I've learned a lot about a one-finger one swipe, two-finger swipe, three-finger swipe. We have that on the 46. Unfortunately, on the smaller ones, you still have to do the swipe left and right to browse items. So accessibility, double tap, um, browsing items, uh, pain. So we have a video where we actually had a visually impaired person in California go up to the kiosk and do a complete purchase without a sighted person's help. On the back end, we're doing the same thing as we're building our uh, V3 um, software, where that you'll be able to use the same uh, procedures on there. Talking to Sorrento today yesterday, he said, can you add a Snickers bar in there without any help? Yes. Um, and that's why we have Chris. That is a little bit behind. That is going to be, be probably released sometime. We're hoping to have it done by NAMA, but realistically, I think it's going to be some time in the beginning of the third quarter. But as we speak next year, we should have that completed and be able to do a full demo on the back end um, accessibility. Yeah, there you go. I'm just going to see if uh, if anybody has a question, if they can just raise their hand. Um, I, this is Dave again. I know that uh, I've gotten a chance to meet quite a few of you. Um, not all of you, obviously, but uh, um, some of you have seen the 46, our 46 kiosk. It's a big 46-inch screen. Um, from California, I know for sure. I was over there a couple times. Uh, anybody in the room have a question? If you just raise your hand. Pretty quiet this morning, huh? Okay. Still, we got one here. Hang on a second. I knew somebody would come through. Yeah, rescue you. You bet. There you go. <laughs> well, my question is, have you done any research on the population size that is um, like a minimum to set up a, a micro market or, or to be able to customize the size of a market micro market to the population okay. that's a really good question I and I, I do get that question a lot is like what what's what's the right number of people to justify having a micro market in a, in, a, in a location and I, I I don't think there's so many different solutions and setups that you can look at depending on the size of the account so uh, I think over 100 people would probably be a standard micromarket size with a standard kiosk, whether you know it was with Three Square or Par Level or somebody else. Um, but you know, even smaller office environments that have you know 50 to 75 people, um, there, there's smaller kiosks out there, so there's a you know less of a hardware investment. If you go with, I mean, there's kiosks you can get that have little tablets built into them. So maybe they cost a little bit less than a full-size kiosk in, in a giant micromarket. But even if you just did one cooler um, for drinks and, you know, one three- to four-foot shelving unit and a, a smaller kiosk, something like that, could accommodate, um, I would think, 50 to 75 users in a smaller office. Um, but one of the, the, the newest things that's out there right now that you could look at is a, is a virtual market. Uh, and that's a market where everything would be done um, on your mobile phone. Uh, so that that is also an option. So if you don't want to invest in a kiosk, upfront hardware cost, you can do everything on your phone. So you can have a cooler and you can have a shelving unit and then the people, and this is great for locations of 50 people or less. And then it's, if anyone in here uses the Starbucks app, do you use the Starbucks app? Load your money on the Starbucks app. You go to Starbucks, you get your coffee, put your phone over there. And it pays and you walk out with your coffee. It's the same concept. Um, there's an app and it's, it's a virtual wallet. So when they go into the, the market and they buy their Snicker bar and their 7-Up uh, 
and then they can just pay on the app and walk out with it. You don't necessarily need a kiosk. So that's, uh, it's an option for a smaller size environment. So it really just kind of depends it, on what size is your customer and then looking at what options make the most sense financially, upfront cost, and what's going to satisfy what your customer is asking you for. Did you have anything to add, Kirk? Or? So when looking at markets, um, uh, you know, we have a mobile app. Par Level has a mobile app. I don't think everybody has that option. Um, so it's going to do your ROI much more. So you can look at that 50-person location. Uh, because if you think about it, if you've got vending in there and you want to try it, going to mobile app-only store, there's a little investment except for some shelving that you might purchase. And if you want to go back to vending, um, you could go back to vending if it's not working out. But um, surprisingly enough, we've seen people that have done that um, put the mobile app-only stores in, and we've seen them increase uh, mobile app because they want to stay in that lane of 50 or less. So they have multiples on there. I've never seen one that actually went back to vending. But that's a, a very good option. We got another question here. Hi, my name's Tracia. I'm from Idaho. I also have a micromarket. Um, I'm actually here not for a question, but I would like to say thank you to 32 Market. They have really been working hard for the accessibility, and um, it's just really advisable that micromarkets is the way to go. Um, you've got the healthy choices. You have the variety. I currently have three coolers, a freezer, and if I would have had to have four or five vending machines in that location, it would have costed over $30,000. It was under $15,000 to set my micromarket up. And by being able to offer salads, fruits, my micromarket is just awesome. So thank you, 32 Market. And anybody that wants the micromarkets, I really recommend you look into them because they're really awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Got another one over here. And you bring up a really you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, there's there's more and more of a demand I think out there right now from consumers to have uh, fresh options. Uh, so when you have a micro market, you can offer so many other options that you can't offer in a vending machine. Um, whether that's you know salad or something that's gluten free or something that's you know keto or something that's you know vegetarian or it, it just really opens up. Um, the different choices that you can offer to your customers when, when you have a market like that, uh, being able to do fresh food and, and fruit and vegetables and things like that as well. Um, I, I think one of the other things that you're going to see, um, you know, uh, from Three Square and from us is, you know, the, the, the back end, the accessibility of, of the back end software that supports a micro market and that we are accessible for BEP operators. Um, <coughs> And that we integrate with uh, JAWS, so uh, things like that, so that we can help you manage your micromarket, your inventory, your, your planograms, your merchandising, um, your cash accountability, any of the things on the back end that you would do with your vending operation and your traditional vending machines, you can also do with a micromarket. Just to add on to that, um, 
The think about uh, markets as being non-traditional. Look at what you offer in a C store. You go in there, you're going to see headphones. You're going to see gloves. Um, multiple items in there that are non-traditional that you wouldn't see in a vending that you can be able to capture sales on. One of these items, which I found very surprisingly talking to an operator, was is that he noticed in his location was a sheetrock company. And they all had to wear gloves. Um, 800 people in this company, and they had to go buy their gloves on their own through a local uh, store. So they started selling gloves in the store, and it became his number one seller's most profitable item. So just don't think about food and snacks and salts and sugars. Think about other items you can put in there as electronics, medical supplies, aspirins, uh, Advil, those types of items really sell um, and uh, um, really help the market grow. Do you guys offer a, like a smart box technology option? A what? A smart, box? A smart box technology? Like Avanti has a smart box where you, or smart and go, where you are able to still open the door and grab, and then if you need to put it back, it doesn't charge you? Yeah, I, I, I can answer that a little bit. We've, we, we're integrating the kiosk to coolers. We currently, um, we're worldwide, obviously, so in Europe right now, we have a solution where that you pay at the kiosk. As soon as the payment is made, it actually unlocks the, the cooler. So on, on the three-square side, we actually um, are, are – we have our, our – a little bit about us. We have our own development team. Um, we don't really outsource anything. We have a full cooler line. Um, we've been um, – our developers have been working on a smart lock, which is in place right now. Um, you can control that lock by a, a mobile app but it's also controlled by a kiosk. We've got one set up in our headquarters where once you make the payment, the cooler unlocks. So I think that's probably what you're, you're looking at. I'm, I know what you're talking about, the smart and go, where the, the, there's a credit card reader on the cooler itself. Ours is very similar. Everything is, is, is going that direction. I think all of us have that piece. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that you have to consider when you're looking at an option like that and, and – <clears throat> We work with a couple of different cooler manufacturers, um, and, I, and I think that they do have some. I don't sell many of those, though. Um, and, and the reason is you're, you're looking at a cooler now with, with more moving parts. Um, you're looking at not allowing a consumer to pick up items and look at it and flip it over and read the back. Like Consumers like to touch things. They, 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 like to play, they like to play with their food before they buy it, kind of, sort of. So, and, and, and you have to consider if you have three coolers – in your micro market and you want to put a credit card reader on every one of those, then that's a credit card connection. That's four connections you're going to be paying for a monthly fee on as opposed to just one connection in a kiosk. If you don't. So it, it's things to consider. If, if you're considering a, like a smart box solution, these are some of the, the additional things that you would want to think about um, before putting something like that in your market. I'm not saying that they're not, they're, they're not good and they don't work, but there, there's, a, there's so many moving parts there. Um, and I, I haven't sold a lot of them, to be honest with you. It, it um, has like one main checkout, but um, there's a screen at the top of each one, and you can use one credit card per transaction, but you can also open the door. It's kind of like a hotel mini fridge where it's like weighted. So if you that's what I was thinking take of, yeah. a, take it out, you can still hold it, turn it over, look right. at all the information, and put it back, and it won't charge you. Um, so you're still able to have that interaction with the packaging. Yep. Um, but then it and the I think on the first 
cooler, it has like one final total. So you're not paying credit card processing fees each time you right. go. Yeah. I think it's a good I think it's a really good solution for markets that are in an environment um, where the public has access to it. Like your your example, like you know, like a Vegas hotel. <laughs> um, but I, I think that when you're in an office environment and it's it's that that one group of people that you're working with. But I would say, yeah, if, if you have a public micromarket, um, like let's just say you have a micromarket that's in a in a car wash or in the Toyota dealership and you're having to sit there waiting on your oil to get changed for an hour, you know, that, that, that's a different consumer every day and that's public and maybe something like that would be worth the investment, um, I think. But if you're dealing with just one set of consumers, like in a private office or something like that with a, a group of employees, I, I probably would think the investment wouldn't be necessary. But I think there is a place for that. There were a couple of questions back here, back of the room somewhere. Yep. And while I'm walking over here, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, what we were just talking about in the public areas. Uh, Three Square, we've actually been opening um, self-paced stores uh, completely open to the public in brick-and-mortar malls. We recently just opened one um, in uh, Brookfield, Wisconsin, um, completely open to the public. Uh, the theft rate on those stores are still about 3% or less, and uh, those are going over really well for us. So here's a question here. Aloha and good morning. Ron Flormata from Hawaii. Uh, I'm located in a uh, uh, hotel in Waikiki. It's about 300 square feet, and I'm offering food and other souvenir items for the tourists. Is, would that be a good prospect for a micro-market? How many people? Hotel, so... Um, In a hotel? Yeah. Halekoa um, Hotel. Different, you know, local employees, uh, veterans, their families. So this would be more for the hotel employees, not for the hotel guests? Mm. Yeah, open to the public, definitely. Kirk, if you, Kirk do you want to go ahead? Hit that one there? I think what you're looking at is, um, you know, like we have a gift stores here, right, with stores with shirts and everything in there. Um, as we are expanding, and we talked about with malls and such, um, they are working unmanned uh, stores like such. Um, it's kind of like if you think of the mall, being open to the public, you have an open public uh, uh, hospital we're talking about. It all depends on your security and a camera system. So when we look at these options and like at store, obviously you have higher items in there. You might have a, you know, a $40 sweatshirt. So what we do with those is we RFA, RFI tag those. So if it comes out and the alarm sets off, if it goes on there, or if they try to walk out without paying, uh, on these markets in these malls, we have a uh, a pad to the side that you set the item on to deactivate them. And so when you think about the store being unmanned, they would purchase the product, set it on the pad to deactivate it so they could walk through the sensors. Now, we've expanded into that, and it's been very good in the malls, which then has brought us into open areas like condos, uh, airports, and then also now into hotels. 
And they, uh, the, the, different, the difficulty between the hotels is for an operator is the hotels want to um, control everything. So they want it to integrate with their hotel system. So in, in sense, they're sending you a check for everything. And anytime you got that, it's, it's not good business because now you're calling them when they're 30 days late on paying you for your product that was sold. So we're trying to work to get that perfect fit for hotels, uh, but the difficult part is integrating with their hotel system, which is very expensive uh, to do. And uh, so that's why it hasn't gone full-fledged yet. Does that answer your question? Is there any micro market that carries cigarettes? You know, customers have to show ID so they are eligible to buy. Um, so yeah. you did, was the question, do they handle cigarettes? Or I think what he's asking about IDs, checking IDs. Yeah. Is that correct? So, so Kirk, if you can maybe talk about a little bit about uh, what we did out at NASCAR, I think that would cover that piece. Yeah. So some states will allow you to uh, verify with your license because it says, um, so I have, we've had markets that's had wine in them. So obviously they have to show you're 21. But how they do that is that two ways. One is that we're trying to develop it so you scan your license and it recognizes your age and it'll open the cooler up for you. Um, The second way right now that they're doing it is that you can go to the cooler and purchase it, but it has to be verified by the front desk. That'd be with cigarettes, that'd be with uh, wine, beer, or anything like that. So they verify it and they hit the button to let it open so you can purchase that product. Um, But there's only a few states that will allow you to uh, insert or swipe your card to get your age off that card. Yeah. Um, I can give you one example of that. I've got an operator in Los Angeles um, that is doing, they are doing hotels. And what they've done with those particular items, uh, you know how in a, in a hotel uh, pantry um, on those, the, like alcohol and cigarettes, they are still keeping those separate in a separate cooler behind the desk. So if they want to purchase those particular items, they go up to the desk and pay for those there. But the rest of it is an open market with a, with a kiosk or a mobile app right there. Um, Kirk talked a little bit about integrating with the hotels, um, with the, you know using a room key or something like that. I think that will I think that will piece will come together eventually, um, and I think a lot of people are working on that. But um, don't shy away from the hotels. And this is my opinion. I'm I'm seeing them more and more. Um, I, like I said, I've got some very successful operators that are uh, putting them in Los Angeles. Again, with the uh, condo locations, what we've seen, and this may work for your location, is um, having a key fob of some kind to get into that location if it's for the employees. Um, for instance, I've got a, a condo location that has 750 units, and the uh, residents that live there have a key fob to get into their garage or whatever. That same key fob will open a business center where they have where they have the markets in there. It's a self pay store, so that may be answer a little bit too. Uh, my question was about: Have you ever looked into like for the videos that are monitoring the facility? Like, if you have an um, where it's employees, basically, have you? being able to do the, the new technology that recognizes the faces so that you have that. Um, it'll tell you, like, different people that came through or left or et cetera. Has your technology gone that far or not? 
Um, I, I think the technology that exists right now, I don't think we have a facial recognition, but most markets have a camera system built in, like a front-facing camera system, so you can see, uh, and it'll take pictures, so you, so you can see a face attached to a transaction. Um, so there's back-end software um, that, that, that we have that's available that if you go in and you pull up a user, most users go in and they register um, and they create like a virtual wallet or a virtual account, especially if it's an endemic environment and you have the same consumers using your market every day. Uh, so there's front-facing cameras that will snap pictures when someone's actually in front of the kiosk making a purchase. So if you want to go in and you want to see... Um, purchase history, you can also see a picture next to it so you'll know who bought it. Um, and then biometrics, that also exists. We have a lot of accounts that will use like thumbprint in order to log in to their account or their kiosk. Uh, so that's two things that we have, but we don't, I don't, uh, we don't have facial recognition yet. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the cell phone. When you got it, it was $3,000, and now it's down to a few hundred dollars. Facial recognition is <laughs> the same way. If you're going to try to use that, it's very expensive. Give the example of Amazon, the Go stores. I think I was reading somewhere where that each store that costs them is over a million dollars to open because of the technology they're using, extreme technology, facial recognition, um, uh, shelving that scans the items when they pull it off or scans it as you're going out through the door to charge, automatic charge your credit card. Today, that's not feasible for you and I to open a market like that, but maybe in 10 years, we have that same thing. So as technology catches up and comes down, that's when it's going to open the door for all the facial recognitions. Uh, just to, just to kind of add to what um, Sean said, um, you know, every transaction um, on the back end is usually time-stamped. So you've got cameras, um, you know, for instance, in the self-pay stores, we've got 16 cameras in that location with a big monitor that shows all the views. Um, you can, you know, and that's a DVR, so you can match the um, back-end timestamp transactions with the video and kind of narrow it down. Um, you know, that kind of helps as well. So there, there's, you know, and we're working on a couple other things to deter theft. Theft is always the first thing that comes up when anybody thinks about a market. Very first question. And again, uh, think about, you know, it's, it's 3% or less uh, nationwide. 97% are still buying and paying for what they're, what they're walking out with. So that's what we concentrate on. Um, 3%, um, you know, it still could be a, a sizable amount depending on the sales of that particular location. But 97%, that's, that's pretty decent across the board. Um, even in a typical store, um, any store that you have a cashier or whatever, there's probably more than that walking out. If you would go to Walmart or whatever, they're probably at 10 or 12%, I would say. So. Yeah, no, yeah, that was exactly what I was yeah. going to say. You know, at Walmart, um, you know, people shoplift at Walmart all the time, but that doesn't stop Walmart from building new stores. <laughs> Is there any other questions in the back back there? Got one back there? Okay. Let me see if I can get this back to him. I, I do have a question, too, and a comment, okay. if I can quick throw it in. Yeah, go ahead while I walk back here. Okay. So my comment would be, I've had the pleasure of working with Kirk and, and Three Square, but anybody who might be riding the fence a little bit about stepping into these micro-markets, um, I'll tell you my joke about micro-markets. My joke is that if I decided tomorrow morning that I wanted to sell four all-season radial tires in my micro-market, I could do that. 
You can't do that in a vending machine. It's a closed box where your micro market's a very open enterprise. You can do a lot of different things. And uh, I do have a question, quick question for our panel. Um, is there advertising available that could run on the kiosks that we could uh, create a little extra uh, revenue from our, our micro markets? No, absolutely there is. Um, you know, the software that supports the kiosks, you can have banners running across your kiosk. So if your kiosk is in a hospital and they want to remind everyone that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, or let's say your kiosk is in an office and open enrollment is this month and their HR department wants to remind all the employees in the office that, you know, open enrollment ends on Friday. Anything that you want to run across a banner on your kiosk or if you want to advertise something, maybe you have fresh food. So this is a very popular one. If you have fresh food in your micro market and you're worried about um, expiration dates on, you know, whatever salads are in there or sandwiches that have been there, uh, a lot of operators I see will run um, what they call like a micro market happy hour. So if you want to run a banner across your kiosk in your micromarket every day uh, between 3 and 5 o'clock or 4 and 6 o'clock that says all fresh food items or all salads are half off, I mean, it helps you. You want to get rid of it, right, because you don't want to throw it away. <laughs> um, so that, that's one of the more popular uh, usages for something like that, being able to advertise and sell additional things. And it's funny, um, a gentleman stopped by my booth yesterday, and you're talking about selling tires in your micromarket, right? A gentleman stopped by my booth yesterday, and we were talking about um, one of his accounts, and it was a car wash. And it, it was a perfect environment for a micromarket, but they wanted to sell the air fresheners, and they wanted to sell the ice scrapers, and they wanted to sell, again, things that you can't put in a vending machine, but things that when people are sitting there waiting on their car to get detailed, then they can buy, you know, all these little accoutrements for the car that you wouldn't normally be able to sell them. So it's, it's, it's another really great use, and you can sell so many more things than you can in a traditional vending machine. One of the things, one of the things that um, we're working on, and this has been quite a while, and it's, it stops and goes and stops and goes, is that, you know, uh, as market manufacturers, for all of us, even par level, we're getting approached by, say, Kellogg's. And uh, Kellogg's might come along, they want to advertise their product. And so as we advertise their products, they pay a certain amount on how many faces are going to see that and we can track that so that if we decide to go that route um, the operator has the option to turn that on and this is something that's going to be down the road a little bit so it's just been it's very early stages so that we could turn it on so that it advertises nationwide with everybody and then how you would get paid would be off your fees would be discounted like whatever that amount would be per kiosk so say if it was five dollars per kiosk and you had 100 of them out there, at 500 would come off your fees. And we're working on that to bring the price down for everybody. And I'm sure every market company is working on that. But it's, uh, it's something in the early stages, working with some of the major brands. Because one of the most important things is, is also capture. You know, with, um, I worked on a program a few years ago with um, YoPlay. And we were doing that, and they wanted to see if people bought you play for breakfast or if they brought it for a midnight snack or if they brought it for a dessert, whatever. And what they found out is that not only did they buy the yogurt, but they bought the granola and started putting it into the yogurt, which then created them to create a new yogurt that comes with granola. So there's data that they can capture through micromarkets as these grow. That's very, very important to them. And for that, they will pay. And then that way it gets some sort of money return. But, again, it's early stages of how that's going to work. Okay. I think um, the question back here was answered with that last piece. So 
Is there anybody else back here? Got one more over here. Um, do you guys have an issue with the kiosks that do not have a coin mechanism? How often are you asked by customers to get a kiosk that does a coin mechanism? Mine do not, and I am not planning on getting one, but it is a question that I'm asked at least once or twice a week. A kiosk that doesn't have a what? A, a coin. It doesn't take coin. In other words, it's cashless. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah does most it take of ours... bills? Oh, Okay. Okay, no metal coins. I yeah. don't think any yep. of uh, our kiosks take a coin, at least the par level ones don't, but right. it encourages your consumer to set up a virtual wallet. So if a consumer comes up to the kiosk yep. and they buy something that's you know, $2.50 and they put a $5 bill in, the two fifty goes into their virtual wallet to use Correct. next time, but it won't dispense coins back, no. Yeah. yeah to, so I'll answer that a little bit. Um, as far as... Uh, um, getting change. Um, it's a learning curve. You know, every, every, every time you get a new piece of equipment, you get a new iPhone, whatever, there's got to be a learning curve to it. And I think that's what your, you, you know, your customers need to learn that this is how it is. Um, we're, you know, you, you don't want to say that this is how it is in those particular words, but um, it's a learning curve. Every, every piece of equipment you learn as you go. We do have um, we do have build a, uh, a kiosk that we build that gives change. Um, it will accept bills. It will give change in both coin and bill. So it has a bill dispenser in it. The forty six that we have, the accessibility does have that feature. Um, Kirk and I believe we're working on the coin piece, correct? Yeah, we're working on the coin in right now because it's just coin out. But I'll stress that when you go that route, think about a micromarket. It's got a validator and it's got a credit card reader. You start adding bill dispensers, CoinMax in, CoinMax. How many guys got vending and get called because of coin jams? Well, this is you're you're starting to create in some sense a, a virtual vending machine. And one of the reasons you're getting out of that, getting away from that, is because of the all the moving parts. And you, as you know, no matter if you say it's 99.9% uptime, but it's that 1% you need it up that you'll find out you got a coin jam or a bill jam and any kind of. Uh, uh, so I always try to stay away from as many moving parts as you can. We do offer it. Um, it's because we have a few major accounts that still are asking for it, but I think they'll start moving away from it. Um, one of our competitors offered it, so we only had one competitor offering it, and they discontinued that shortly or just lately. So we're the only one that has it, but I don't know how long we're going to have it, depending on supply and demand. Any other questions back here? Got another one here? Okay. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Mason from Mississippi. Uh, we had a workshop on micro-marketing um, a few months ago. And my question is, is that if uh, in, in the state office building I have some vending machines, if you had it there, if the consumer wanted to come down and put uh, an open account, so to speak, does it allow you to do that? When you say an, when you say an open account, create an account for anybody that comes in. Absolutely, yeah. We call them a market account on our side. I think uh, a par level tells uh, calls it a little bit different, but yes, you can open an account. You create it with your name, email, a password. Um, you can come down and you can add uh, money to your account by either cash, credit, debit. Apple Pay, Google Pay, the whole nine yards. But then that that you just keep taking off as as you purchase. The amount goes down, and it'll actually come at the end. If you're if you're buying something that says three dollars, and you only have a dollar fifty on your account, 
it will prompt you to put more, add more money to your account. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. that would send a text message about the facility to any cell phone within 200 feet or 400, something like that. But that might be a good way to get attention in places, like if you can get that. Is that available, or do you know anything about that? Um, I, do, I don't personally. The only thing that I can, and I'll let Sean answer here, but I, the only thing that I know our mobile app will pick up on if you're in the area... Um, it will it will go to the nearest store. In other words, you can pick the store that's in the area. We we're, we're, our app works off uh, GPS coordinates. So when we set up the store in the app, it, we put those coordinates in, and it knows where you're at. Um, but as far as text messages, I'm not sure, Sean. Well, I think one of the things that we do is we really we heavily encourage operators to encourage the employees at a micro market location when you first open a micro market i mean have a grand opening um you know spread the awareness in that office building or in that distribution center or wherever your micro market is and encourage the consumers to create an account and to create a mobile wallet Um, when you do this you're capturing an email address and you're capturing a phone number. So then if you want to blast out specials or you want to communicate with all the users in that building, maybe you're bringing in you know, sushi on Tuesdays, something like that. You can yeah. blast that out to email addresses or you know, to, to phone numbers. So I, I really encourage operators to try and capture that consumer information so that you can do things like that. Yep. Uh, just one added thought. Um, I had two micro-markets uh, and I did receive a lot of pushback because there was no coin mech on it. And I thought, okay, and I argued with Kirk and I argued with <laughs> whoever else. And I said, we, you know, I don't want any barriers between my customers and their money. I want it to come directly to me in any way, fashion, or form. But what we did realize, though, is after a few months of butting heads with three square and par level that we weren't going to get coin mechs, my customers... All of a sudden, hey, if I want to buy something, you know, I was in a, an SOB, a state office building, in a uh, you know, county, county jail. And they realized, hey, this is so much nicer, particularly with the female employees. Now, I don't want to be sexist or prejudiced of her, but the females really loved the cashless and the wallet, the virtual wallet. They didn't have to bring their, they could leave their purse or whatever locked up in their desk, you know, because in a big building, we've got three or four floors and, you know, several, you know, uh, a thousand people, and they didn't want to be carrying their purse all around just to go down for a break for lunch, and so it really became, and even some of the old um, dinosaurs like myself that wanted the coin in the building, they realized that this was much handier, you know, by having a virtual wallet than digging through their billfold for their credit card or for some cash. To feed off that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in my 60s. I know Dan is also. Uh, the hardest group we had to convince with this virtual wallet is our age group. Um, and talking to them one-on-one to find out that in some cases they don't have the technology 
um, knowledge to understand it. But when you show them how easy it is, it's funny how a guy my age will go around telling everybody how he knows how to use his wallet now and purchase. Watch this. And the, the numbers on his sales go up because he's buying everybody's stuff because he's showing them how well the wallet works. One of the things you got to remember as your consumers, you know, we do a lot of uh, studies. The, by the year 2025, I think it's four out of five individuals in this country will be millennials. I mean, uh, what do they call them today? Is it millennials? Millennials. Yeah. I don't even know what they call them today. But those are <laughs> the showing people your age. That, those are the people that are all cashless, and they got the wallets, and they're going to be doing the mobile apps, all of that stuff. So that's what we got to start looking at down the road on who is going to be our consumer customers. People like me are going to be getting retired and moving on, and you're going to have that young group going in there, and they're going to be all about the the speed and the technology to get through these markets and purchase. We even look at by maybe in 10 years, there might not even be a hard micro market in each location you'll be purchasing on some sort of handheld device right right it, it, the, the, I'm the gonna sim- add, yeah I'm, go ahead Sean. i want to add one thing yeah. to dan touched on on something that um reminded me of one of the other advantages of having um the mobile micro market app on a phone if i'm in an office building that's four five six floors and i my office is on the third floor and the market is on the first floor and I really want a Cobb salad for lunch, but I don't know if there's one in the market right now. If you pull up your mobile app, you can actually scroll through the inventory in the market, and I can pull it up without having to get on the elevator and grab my purse and go all the way downstairs to see, is there a Cobb salad down there today? Or maybe there's that special salad, that chicken fiesta salad that I see it in there once in a while, but it sells out so fast, but that's the one I want for lunch today. You can go into your mobile wallet, and you can actually look at all the items that are currently in the market. So if that salad's there, I'm like, yes, yeah, I'm going down there to get that salad now. So it, it's, it's a convenience factor as well, being able to shop in the market before you go down to the market. Yep. yep. Uh, just uh, real quick before Artis uh, takes over from us, uh, just to, on the self-pay piece, though, um, you know, self-pay is, is growing. Um, self-pay is here to stay. Um, everything. I, 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 just a quick story. My my sister uh, will not go to Walmart and shop at a self-paced kiosk. She argues with me all the time about it. She thinks we're taking jobs away. Uh, we're actually creating jobs on the back end. Um, it's it's easier to get through. Um, if you think about everything, everything, every industry is going to be touched by self-pay, without a doubt. Right now, you're paying bills online. You're pumping your own gas. There's all kinds of things that you don't think are self-pay that in, in reality are. So I just wanted to end with that. So, Are there any other questions in the room? Well, thank you, Sean and, and uh, Kirk and David, uh, for your presentation. It was really good. And if you'll share me uh, share your notes with me, I can put a little article in the vendor scope about it. So, somebody want to do that? That would be super. Um, David Little is also going to talk a little bit about um, exploring uh, commissary possibilities. Oh, Kirk. Okay. Well, whoever wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons I, I mentioned the artist to let it run a little bit over, um, 
I'm going to be talking a little bit, I think, this afternoon on, the, on how our company developed and how it went from vending the commissary to micromarkets and the history that I've gone through uh, having three jobs in my life, uh, an operator, a distributor, and then a, a now a market manufacturer. But um, our experts on the turnkey side um, ended up not being able to make it here. So... Me and Dave, uh, if we start talking commissary, we would be selling you something we don't even know much about. So what we did is we knew they weren't going to be here. We brought a bunch of product brochures that go through that. And if you really have some real questions on commissary, I want to give you a phone number and a person to contact. That's the expert at our office on that. And uh, so we brought product brochures, and we got uh, cards for those people in our office that we office in in uh, River Falls, Wisconsin. And you can contact them on the on the uh, on the the jail side of the business. I, they, I always hear them joke. They said we get the best of both businesses. If you get caught stealing in a micromarket, where do you go next? The jail. We still serve them in the jail. So we got their business no matter what they do. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I also um, forgot to mention yesterday, I do have Braille and large print handouts on the session that I did um, Tuesday afternoon on uh, interviewing for employees. So if you want a, a Braille or a large print handout on that, we have them up here at the front table. Okay, well, next we're going to have a little contest. Jeff Tom is going to do a demonstration of Be My Eyes, and Greg Hollins is going to do a demonstration of using Ira. So we'll see which system you think works best for you, and then we'll tell you a little bit about some pros and cons for each system. So welcome, Jeff and Greg. All right, so how many here have used, let's know, how many here have not used Ira? Have not. Clap your hands. Don't raise your hands. I won't tell Greg and I have any. Okay, how many have not used Be My Eyes? All right, so there's a similar number that haven't used both of them, so that's good. So, um... Yeah, how many haven't used either one? Okay, there you go. Similar number all the way around. And we're not going to do any, uh, you know, we, we get so many political polls already that I don't think we want to do any more substrata of polling um, in this election year. Um, so first, I guess we should tell folks a little bit about each one. And um, I guess I'll start and talk about um, be my eyes, and and then we'll try to do our demonstrations. It's it may be difficult in here because some of the time you get reception and, and connections, and some of the time you don't. But we'll see what happens. Um, so, um, <coughs> comparing, <coughs> sorry, comparing be my eyes to Ira is like comparing the Hyundai to the Cadillac. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Hyundai isn't very useful or that the Hyundai has, doesn't have some real advantages. Um, for one thing, the Hyundai is a lot less cost. 
And similarly, the Be My Eyes app doesn't cost a thing. And that is definitely a real advantage. Um, but um, that is also a disadvantage because we all know that anything that is free usually has limitations. And Be My Eyes has limitations. <coughs> Be My Eyes is a an app that is um, run by, I don't even know the... Well, no, I know that. I don't know who the company is that runs it, but it is all volunteer in nature. And they actually have people all over the world that um, they sign up and you call into the app and you tell them what you want to do and they will help you do it. And the um, they aren't professionally trained or anything like that, but it's kind of funky and it's kind of fun. The other day, for example, um, I wanted to check my the colors of my clothes that I was wearing, um, that I was bringing here. And so I called in to be my eyes and um, had this very, you know, nice lady on the line and, and we're going through our thing and all of a sudden I hear this little voice, who's that guy, mommy? And it's like, <laughs> you won't hear that with Ira. You won't get that. And, and so it, it kind of has a funky, fun way to do it because it is volunteers. You might get a volunteer from Thailand or the Philippines or somebody else like that um, to help you. And, and it's a great, you know, the, 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 to me, the sense of volunteerism is really something I, I, we follow in this room, we admire, and, and I really like that about Be My Eyes. Um, some of the things you can do with it, um, you know, you can call in and say, you know, I want, uh, I want to, ch- I know someone who checks her colors every day um, before she goes to work. Um, you can have them read cooking instructions to you. You can have them look at mail. Um, they also have a, um, a specialized help feature. For example, um, you know, and, and obviously these are things you can do with Ira too, and as Greg will talk to you in a minute. But um, let's say you, you know, lost your speech or you had, you suspected you had some kind of a blue screen or a black screen or whatever on your computer and, or, or you were downloading something and all of a sudden there was nothing and you had no idea what was going on and there was no one around to save you from, you know, total, uh, you know, disaster. You can call up, be my eyes and go to their specialized, you, you just tap on specialized help. And maybe that person would, you know, be able to get you the correct volunteer to help you through this type of problem. So um, there's no limit on the amount of times you can use it. Um, The volunteers, from my experience, are very nice. Um, You know, they they enjoy doing this. They may not get a call that often because they have literally thousands and thousands of volunteers and they really enjoy hearing from you and, and it's a nice give and take. So um, I'll, let, I'll let Greg talk about Ira and then we'll do our dem- potential demonstrations at the end. Let me just stop. 
Good morning, folks. Um, I think, first of all, I should say on behalf, speaking for Jeff in the entire California Bay Area, we should say go Chiefs. <laughs> but um, I'm here to enlighten you folks a little bit about IRA. I'm happy to see that uh, a lot of you folks have already familiar with it. IRA is spelled A-I-R-A. And it stands for Artificial Intelligence Response Assistance. Now, like Jeff touched on, now IRA is a, a subscription um, service. So, and I'm sorry, I, artists kind of drafted me this morning. I don't have all the uh, different levels of pay in front of me, but uh, maybe I'll get that information when we demonstrate it. But um, you can... Even though it's a subscription service, there's many things you can do that don't take much time. Like Jeff said, maybe you need to know a color of a shirt or maybe just something real quick. So if you are a subscriber to IRA, uh, they do offer like um, first five minutes. If you're called five minutes or less, they won't charge to your subscription. And there's more and more <clears throat> um, locations around the country that are subscribing to IRA, like different airports and retail businesses and such, that there are free spots for you to use IRA. Now, you can use IRA off of your mobile device, such as your iPhone or Android, or they have also a pair of glasses that can sync with your mobile device. And so you could use IRA like in walking around this hotel or down the street, reading street signs so your hands are still free and able to do what you need to do. You can, you can use it for just about anything you can imagine from help identifying colors of things to reading documents to finding something you dropped on the floor to um, all those pesky little... Um, Captions and things on the internet. They can go on the internet and help you navigate difficult websites. And, and they are all um, professionally trained. So you're going to get more of a higher end um, person on the other end to help you with these things as opposed to the volunteers and not, and not to put down the volunteers at all. It's just a different service. And um, the only thing I'd add, the only thing I would add to that is um, they have, they can see where you are by where your phone is, and they also have Google Maps at their disposal, so they can download the map of the area, whether whether you're inside a building or in an airport or whether you are trying to traverse some complicated, you know, route um, to and from, you know, a, a particular place so that they can help, you know, let's say you're walking in, a, in an unfamiliar downtown area, they can help you, um, help direct you and tell you what type of street configuration you have. Um, they, um, they have various protocols for how to help you cross um, streets. So there's a lot. That area is a big one 
um, that, that, you know, that IRA can really help you with because they have more at their disposal and because they have professional training. Part of their training was designed by, an, by a very well-renowned um, O&M instructor from California. Um, and so their folks really get, um, you know, excellent training. So I would, that's all I'd add about, about you know, IRA. So anything else? All right. So I guess we're going to try a demonstration. So I will try to open this app. Open Be My Eyes app. Uh-oh. I couldn't get a connection. <clears throat> Open Be My Eyes app. Hmm. Well, we may not be able to do mine, but I think we're going to be able to do his. Yes, he do. He has a better phone than I do, obviously. Because I couldn't get a connection. Uh, all right. Well, I'm a... I'm a here, let me hang out over here. So. Okay. Let me turn this up a little bit. Yeah. So, I'm going to... Using phone, using phone, button. All right, I'll open the IRA app here, and I'm just going to flip through it for those that are not familiar with what's in here. Okay. Now, see, first it's, no, no, can y'all hear that? Using phone, button. Double tap to switch to glasses. Can y'all hear my phone? No, Using phone, button. Double tap to switch to glasses. There you go. Using phone, button. Double tap to switch to glasses. Using phone, button. Double tap to switch to glasses. Okay, now see, that's giving me the option to use the glasses that I spoke of or the phone. It's, it's defaulted to my phone because I don't have the glasses with me. Invite, button. Now, invite is something that you can, you can invite people that do not have IRA and give them some, they'll, they'll have option to have some free moments to explore it. And, and if they sign up for it, you also get some free moments, um, free, free time in exchange. Apply free access offer, button. Now, a free access offer is anything that sometimes they give, they give certain uh, offers out there that you can apply so it doesn't charge to your subscription as well. Call her for free from phone button. Double tap now, to call her agent. Now, I'm going to use from phone, but I'm just going to flip one more. Start call with a message for free from phone button. Okay, now that says you can send a message if you want to send a message before you call them and give them a heads up or something you want to do, but we're not going to worry about that. Selected. Phone. So we're gonna Double call, to call our agent. from phone for free. Call her for free. Calling agent. Now they don't know I'm calling and doing this, so but they will know who I am when they answer the phone. Anyone can download either one of these apps by going to your app store and downloading it. Now, for Ira, since it's a subscription service, they'll want you to put in your information into the system. They'll want your um, email address, uh, where you're from, your phone number, your uh, credit card number, etc. Whereas, obviously, you wouldn't have to put that into the Be My Eyes app. 
Uh, the other thing to, the positive to remember about IRA is since they have employees, okay. they're bonded, so you can have them look at your bank accounts, okay. um, any personal information, and here. it's not a problem. Go All ahead, right. Greg. Uh, okay. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't catch your name there. My name is Caleb. Caleb? Yes, sir. Okay. All right, we have an IRA agent here, and I'm at the, uh, I'm at the, uh, the Randolph Shepard Vendors Convention in Vegas, so welcome to Vegas. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, we're just going to do a quick demonstration of your service here for folks that haven't used it before. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, you, you want to you wanna first tell them a little bit about your service? I mean, I've touched on what yeah, the service yeah, is. Yeah, I can kind of go, go through a rundown there. Um, yeah, so, so Ira, we are visual interpreters for the blind. We provide, provide um, kind of unbiased visual information. Uh, that can be, you know, as simple as like setting a thermostat or a stove, uh, or it could be reading We also have full access to, to GPS data. So right now I see that you guys are at the Golden Gate Hotel and Casino. Um, if you guys were wanting to look for something to eat, for instance, I could I could tell you there's a Chick-fil-A, a block away, there's a Project Barbecue right across the street. Uh, there is a Montu Walk, a McDonald's. Um, I could give you turn-by-turn navigation for those places, or if you had Uber or Lyft linked to your account, um, I could actually order an Uber or Lyft for you, uh, give you the ETA um, of the driver, update you as to their location um, in real time as, as you go so you know where they are in relation to you and verify that you're getting into the right car once you get there. Um, we can do, we use a program called Viewer, which uh, an explorer will download on their computer and when they open that up, it'll give them a randomly generated password with each time they open it. And so they give us that randomly, pa- randomly generated password. And as an agent, I can then take remote control over the Explorer's computer. So I could use that to fill in captures. Uh, if, for instance, like you had like a work or a school document that like a presentation or something that you have all of the information there, you just want to kind of uh, straighten it up format it for, for visual people. Uh, we can come in and kind of reformat documents, read documents if they're if job or Zoom text or magic is having an issue, you can call and those calls will actually be free. Those are calls to be sponsored by Vespero. Um, and so we could we could help fill in the gap where where jobs isn't working or there's like a inaccessible website or something like that. Now I have a, uh, I don't even know what this is, but if you want to give a, dem- a demonstration. And I itinerary, uh, bring the camera back away from the document about three inches. Uh, you mind if I take a picture there? Yeah, go ahead. Taking a picture, ellipsis. All right, I've got it. If you'd like to relax the camera, you can. All right, it looks like that is an itinerary there. The first, the first time looks like uh, is continued from page before. It says, learn how to set up the facility to take advantage of barcode technology, find solutions for problems, and no do's and don'ts for a micro market. 
8.55 a.m., question and answers. 9 a.m., exploring the commissary possibility. David Little, California, West Coast Sales Manager, Three Square Market, Turnkey Corrections. 9.15 a.m., question and answer. 9.20 a.m., use IRA or be my eye. Okay, now, hold on just a second. Now, what I did is I just, I didn't know what this was. It was just a pamphlet sitting up here on the desk, folks. And I just picked it up, and he just he just took a picture of it, and he's just reading what the last present uh, uh, presenter had up here on the table. Now, um, unless Jeff's got something, is, is there any questions why I had a gentleman on the phone that anybody would like to ask about Ira? Ah, where is Dan at? <clears throat> Dan, okay. Okay, come over here, Dan, so I can keep on the microphone here. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. All right, uh, angle the camera a little bit more to the left. Hold on, now, that's Jeff there. He, don't, don't worry about him. He's a 49er fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dan is right here. All right, that, Dan there. All right, Dan is wearing a uh, gray suit. He's got gray pants and a gray blazer. He's got a white button-down shirt underneath it. He's got a tie on. It is red and gray and white stripes, diagonal stripes. He's got a lanyard on. Um, the lanyard has a gold and a blue designator underneath the, the name. Um, I can't quite tell what it reads, what, what it says if you... If you no, mine, I can take a picture, then I'd be able to read the landing. Okay. Taking a picture. Are there questions in the audience for... All right, so Dan Sittle, Wisconsin, board member, committee member, Sagebrush Conference 2020. Yes. <laughs> okay, he just read the name tag. <clears throat> Okay, uh, there are people in the audience that want to ask questions about Ira or Be My Eyes. The one, oh, give me my, the one, the one thing, and, and somebody out there who uses it a lot may correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing that um, I do a lot when I'm on Ira, but I don't think they have the power to do as a volunteer on Be My Eyes is to take photos. Um, and that is really helpful. Um, they can turn your light on and on your phone and things like that. Um, but I don't think they take the photos the way that they don't think they have the, the ability to do that in Be My Eyes, so far as I am aware. And that really can be helpful because oftentimes if they're looking at small print on, say, a box um, that has cooking instructions or... You know, you know, something on a computer screen. Yeah, yeah, on the lanyard. Um, so the, the taking, having a photo right in front of them there can be very helpful. Any questions? Um, hello. Hi. Uh, I have a question for Ira. Okay. Can I subscribe to Ira without buying the glasses? Just as I... Right. Have the phone. Yes, I have the subscription, and I do not have the glasses. And in some cases, it's um, better with the phone. The uh, glasses are fine, but you have to have the glasses pointed in the exact direction, whereas they can tell you with They're the phone if you, you want to turn your phone to the left, turn your phone to the right, etc. So sometimes that can be a little easier. Now, 
I do have friends that have the glasses, and they they love them because they are hands-free then. They don't have to worry about moving. So it kind of depends on what your tasks are, et cetera. <clears throat> Would you like to say, like, advantage to glasses or opposed to not glasses and speak on some of the subscriptions? Yeah. Okay. In, in, my, in, in my kind of uh, view, one of the biggest advantages of the glasses versus... Uh, just the phone is, especially for explorers that are in kind of city environments, it can be, be safer because like, if you're walking around a big city, city with an iPhone X in front of you, you know, like, like it can kind of be a target. People kind of like, look, at it. it's really easy to kind of run by and just snatch it. Um, but with the glasses, you can keep that phone in your pocket, um, and so you're, you're more, more hands-free. The other additional benefit of having that separate Verizon phone is you can still use your regular phone. You can still receive texts and phone calls and stuff like that, and it's not going to disconnect you from your IRA call. Um, I have a question for Ira about navigation. If you're traveling solo in an unfamiliar area or city, um, it, does Ira have the capability of helping people navigate as they're walking and kind of exploring that area so that they have a better idea of their surroundings yes, and, and, and how to get, an get around. If you're area traveling solo, do you have the ability to help them navigate that area and such? Oh, most definitely. That, that's like one of the great cases of IRA uh, is when you're unfamiliar or even if familiar situation change. You know, if there's construction or snow on the ground, that's going to change the way the path is. But, but yeah, so um, navigation, navigating in familiar territory is good thing, you know, thing that we're really good at. Like, we're able to alert for danger, like, oh, there's a plant up in here. You might want to watch out, or there's a pole in the middle of the path. There's a construction cone, you don't need to kind of detour around that. Um, and and with using like the PS data, we're able to kind of give a better overview. And so, so if you're on vacation or something and you're just kind of exploring, you can tell the agent like, "Hey, I'm in a place like I don't really know it all around. Would you give me extra detail?" And because like the d- level of detail is always going to be tailored to the explorer's preference. If you're going a place that you know where you're going, you just kind of need to know when the lights turn, where to turn, um, then then that's one thing. But if you want, you know, bus stops, if you want all the different businesses passing by, we can use the GPS data to kind of tell you that. Uh, we can even, you know, just purely visual information. If you're walking through, through a park and you wanted us to describe the, the flowers and the trees and stuff like that, I've had, had calls like, can I add something to that? Yeah. One of, one of the biggest areas of, of my IRA use um, is that if you're in a strip mall, even if you're low vision, if you're in a strip mall, you know, you got a big, huge parking lot where you're going through, there's cars coming from all directions, and then you, you're trying to find a particular location, you know, uh, you're trying to find the bank or whatever, right? And it's a long, long sidewalk, whatever, and you have no idea where that darn bank is. 
Well, this enables you to find any of your locations in this, in the strip mall. And today, that can be very important. Business parks, strip malls, things like that are kind of nightmarish for me anyway. So I love Ira for that purpose. And and if you recall, when I, when I first called a gentleman here, now, like I said, I did not prompt him to, uh, I was calling or we were going to be doing this. But he immediately... When, when I said we were doing a demonstration, he pulled up. He knew I was at the Golden Nugget. He started rattling off um, places of interest in the surrounding areas and, and so on and so forth. And if I got up and started walking out of here, I can use the camera on my phone. He can navigate me back to my room or to the bar or wherever we need to go. You want to add anything to that? No, sir. I forgot. <clears throat> Oh, um, One of the free services too. Uh, with, I, I, oh. I mean, like I, I we we're here to supplement. You know, like like you guys already have OEM training. We know how to how to get around, and we're just providing that extra level of information to kind of help help bridge the gap to like independence and like full full mobility. Artist, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's fine. He was <clears throat> just saying that they're bridging the gap of accessibility uh, for you. Uh, one of the things for entrepreneurs, you can get many services free as an entrepreneur. Uh, for example, they have a partnership with QuickBooks, and they'll help you with anything on QuickBooks you need assistance for, and there's no charge for that time that you spend doing that. And there are some other um, things that they'll do for you as an entrepreneur that as uh, another customer that they might charge you the minutes for. So they have a, a variety of different services. So if you want to learn more about them, we can get you contact information for an IRA agent. So we tried to get one of them to come here, but we weren't successful. So we thought a demonstration would be a good way to uh, segment into that. So I appreciate um, Jeff and Greg for sharing. And now you get to go on break. I think they're cutting us off. Uh, be here at uh, 5 after 10. And if you're not here at 5 hey. after 10, I get winner door prize. Hey. Artists, I would I would like to add just one thing. Sure. You know, Jeff talked about the uh, be my eyes and uh, being a free service. And and folks, if if you have a a smartphone, Android or an iPhone, and I did this and uh, kind of just hit and miss before these these programs came around. You have a friend, a relative. Or something like that. You can you can make a FaceTime call or video call, and I, I use my kids a lot for this, <laughs> and they can they can do a lot of these these same things, and it won't cost you anything as well. One more quick thing about Ira, and it's a change they made that is really great. How many of you, and don't, if I'm the only one, I'm going to be so embarrassed. How many of you have ever crossed a street and not crossed straight? <laughs> well, I have. And um, one thing that Ira used to do, uh, it was part of their protocol, was they would not tell you when you were crossing, you know, diagonally or incorrectly or whatever. 
But um, they got some complaints about that. I was one. Um, that said, you know, really be helpful. You don't have to talk a lot, but just give a little bit of an... So now, if you are crossing, you know, not in a straight line, or, or maybe the street curves, and you have to cross correctly, you have to, you know, go in, a, in an interesting different direction, they will tell you, you know, you need to go a little more to your right to be centered or left or whatever. And that can really be helpful in today's complex you know, street configurations that we're facing. So, I mean, I wanted to, you know, just stress that for folks. Yeah, yes, as Dan said, roundabouts. Yes. Sure. Good morning, good morning again. This time I don't have to worry about my phone anyway. Um... I'm going to flip the switch a little bit, just like my phone did, and um, I'm going to concentrate not on the story part, but on the part about whether the program is a dinosaur or a phoenix, and what must we in RSVA do to make it that phoenix. So first I want to follow up a little bit, and some of the things I was going to say um, were said earlier in the week, and that's great. Um, I think it's really important um, that we um, work on the types of things that Elaine uh, Robertson had to say earlier in the week in terms of, and this does have to do with telling our story um, in a way, um, marketing our program, whether it's having um, you know young youth in facilities that can be mentored, um, that can learn what it is like to run a business, uh, the the hard work that it takes, but the rewards that it gives, that can learn the interpersonal skills, all of that. Don't, I don't want to be duplicative. But I think that one lesson that was not mentioned in terms of what it does to be looking forward is, and, and I guess before I give that lesson, I want to say I have a different, I have a little different look at this. I came originally from an advocacy background. I've never been a vendor, and never will be. Not because I don't like vendors, but because I'm just not any good at it. <laughs> um, but I came originally from an advocacy background. Um, I was in CCB and ACB for a long time. And um, during my working career, I worked for the state legislature in California. And um, it was a very fast-paced, results-driven world in a way similar to your world. And you had to meet them now or else that client might not come back. Whereas the, and then I went into the, after I retired, I worked for um, the SLA in California. And now that I'm really not working for them anymore, I can say whatever I want. Um, And I liked uh, the folks that I worked with there a lot. Um, But it's a wholly different culture, as you know. It's a consensus culture. It's a culture where things happen slowly. But it's also a culture made up of people. And one of the one of the frustrations that sometimes you can have is vendors have frustrations with state licensing agencies because things don't happen the way they want to. 
But state licensing agency folks can have frustrations with vendors because they feel like they're beaten down upon all the time. And that isn't, uh, that isn't an easy thing to live with either. So getting back to my lesson, when vendors are looking forward, trying to enhance the program, trying to work with their state licensing agency, try, rather than just focusing on you know, my particular facility and on getting that new facility, but trying to really look at new things, I think it gives the state licensing agency folks a different idea as to, uh, and a different level, different desire to work with the, the vendors in terms of the new initiatives that vendors want. So I think it's very important to do that. Um, I also, uh, in fact, he, um, Scott Meehan stole an idea that I was going to mention. I think it is, can be an incredible thing if, if RSVA could produce a video. I don't think it would be all that difficult to get a grant written for an employment video um, showing vendors at work, showing how business is done. And that video could absolutely be marketed throughout the country to all the state licensing agencies, to RSA, to, you know, individual vendors. I, I just think that's a, an incredible teaching piece and, and, and in terms of a way to tell your story, what better way than to have a video like that? And you folks, um, we have some incredible vendors in this room that could be, you know, part of that story. Um, secondly, I think it's time, though, and this is something that Katrina McDonald mentioned at the very end of her speech. I think it's time that vendors... Um, stop being reactive and start being proactive. And I'm not saying that all vendors in all states are reactive, but I'm saying that by and large we have been worried about, you know, uh, opening up the program and what will happen to it if, you know, we push too hard or, you know, we worry that, you know, we have, or, or we're just fighting so many battles we don't want to, you know, try new initiatives. But I think if the program is to really survive and thrive over the next, you know, two or three decades, that vendors need to be proactive. And I think that uh, means on two fronts. Well, maybe actually even more, but at least three fronts. First, anything that you can do as a vendor's policy committee that involves new initiatives that you think will enhance your state's program should be tried. And, you know, I, I leave that up to you. That's a topic for another time, but certainly one that I think um, more committees need to take on. Secondly, I think that um, it would be really important and worthwhile for um, a, a committee, perhaps, or uh, to be formed in RSVA to put together model amendments that every state should have and that many or most don't have and maybe disseminate this through a white paper that will get you know disseminated nationally so that you have a model set of amendments that you could use and, and provide to every state and then little by little states could potentially adopt these amendments and finally, and this is where I'm going to be a little controversial, I think you need to do the same thing 
on the national level and have some model amendments that you want in a bill on the national level. And I think that bill needs to be done together with NFB. I don't think if you, if, if, if the vendor community tries to go about this, um, you know, in a separate manner, that it will succeed. We don't have enough clout, I don't think, to necessarily make it work. Um, I, I also think in, in response to those who say that nothing can ever happen between the two agencies, I think that um, from, from what I have heard, the new NFB president is much easier to work with. I know that doesn't mean the affiliate is or isn't. I'm not, I'm not here to comment on that. But I think it is time to investigate possibilities of working jointly on a model bill that will do all of those things that you feel need to be done. Maybe you want to fix the regulatory process for RSA so it doesn't take two or three years for regulations to be approved. Maybe you want to nail down all the DOD issues that keep cropping up and we have to fight all the time to avoid, um, re, you know, we're trying to retrench at every level, it seems like. Um, veterans facilities, whatever, you know, the, the act is so, you know, small in terms of number of words and in terms of generality of provisions. I'm sure there are many, many things that um, you as a group feel would be better if they were tightened up. And I think that you, know, you have to remember the first time you propose such a bill, your chances of getting it passed are very slim anyway. And that's, that isn't even including the fact that Congress doesn't pass much at all now, regardless of what gets proposed. So it may take a while for such a thing to happen. But in my opinion, if you want to see dramatic change for your program for the better, you need to be planning well ahead of time for that change to occur and give it time to ripen and get to the point where the political climate will be such that you can get it passed. So that's really what I came to say today. Um, I, I know there's obviously another side to that story, but you know we all know. You know how many times have we talked about how every year we're having fewer and fewer vending locations and fewer and fewer vendors and more and more locations that don't even you know, add up to a living wage for a vendor so that, you know, you have to double and triple locations for, for one vendor to make ends meet. Well, the, the time has come to stop being reactive and start being proactive. So that's my message for today. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. That was, that was very good, very insightful. And uh, when I kind of got this uh, group kind of put in my lap, I started thinking about how do we mold this all together, what, what Jeff just shared, and um, where we go from here. So a couple things. Uh, first, I did ask Kirk Johnson to, to come up and give us a little presentation about uh, the company that he works for. The gentleman that founded that company actually started in a very different place than where he is today. So I... I Ask Kirk if he'd share that story, and hopefully that'll kind of key you guys. What we'll be looking for as we move forward here is um, I'm going to have John come out with the microphone and uh, get your thought process going. Things that you may have done in the last year or two that's been a success, something different than what we have been doing, um, or something you've seen that you'd like to see us venture into. Um, remember, we're thinking in a box 
But we need to start opening that box and thinking outside that box is a bigger box because if we stay in that box, the lid can go closed and then we just put the box away. So um, I'm going to start out by having Kurt give you a little talk about, like I said, where his his, uh, founder, his company has come from and where he is now. And then we'll have a little discussion on uh, innovations that we can either do or be thinking about. So, Kirk? Okay. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Dan and John, and I think maybe even Scott's probably heard this story before. Um, it's twofold. It's one they said, where did you get, how did you get started in, in this industry? And also, how did you get involved with micro markets? So I, I'm going to start first. I said you, earlier I was in the business 40 years, and I had to rethink that. I've actually been in it 50 years. I started when I was 14 years old, and I started with an old fawn pull snack machine. My parents were in the amusement business, and I wanted to expand into the vending industry. So I did that at 14, and I remember them letting me buy my own vending machine, an old fawn pull machine. I filled it with candy because you didn't have chips in those machines then, put it in a uh, location, and a week later went back, it was empty. I thought, boy, I scored really big. I'm going to make so much money. I opened it up, and the uh, cash box was empty. And what they did is they grabbed a handle, and they, if they jiggled it real quick, all those flaps dropped, and every bit of candy bar I had filled in it went out the bottom. So I was wondering if I should be in that business. But, you know, as we grew, we grew really heavily into the vending business. And I used to argue with my my dad and say, you know, he loves ships. I said, you're turning this ship too slowly, and we're going to sink if you don't start spinning it faster. Um, just some, some things in the past. Uh, you look at when the vending machines went from the old paddle to the spiral. We had people that... You know, kind of said, hey, I like the paddle. It's easy to fill, easy to work with, and um, I don't like the spiral. Well, now we got 40 selections. Geez, now i got to bring out some more candy. I'm only doing 10 selections now, and i got to fill my warehouse full of candy. But shortly after that, the increase in sales they had. Um, So people thought that um, and didn't want to think outside the box. We moved forward with that, and, and guess what came next? The validator. So people said, well, why should I spend $300 or 250 for a Mars validator when I can take coins? Everybody's got coins in their pocket. Well, it took about four or five years to embrace that bill acceptor, but the people that embraced it, first of all, were the ones who were succeeding and making the money. After that came, and I'm going to do a quick through this, credit cards. I watched for 10 years, and... um, People just couldn't grasp the fact that they're paying fees for something, but they, what they didn't realize is that the increase of sales, especially younger people, came up, and that happened. Um, when I talk about uh, the ship turning slowly, when I was in the business, we had a lot of cigarette machines in the vending at that time. In our first place, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, banned cigarettes, first city in the whole country, and of course, that was my biggest location uh, were cigarettes. So. Um, my stepdad, well, let's just sell the company because that's a main business as well. Let's look what we can diversify in. So we started looking at coffee. And five years later, coffee made us more money than any cigarette route. But we early on got rid of our cigarettes, sold them out east of machines, started in the coffee business, and we succeeded because, as I told them, we were turning that ship quickly on this. Um, so we succeeded where we saw a lot of uh, competitors go out of business because they just couldn't grasp that. Um, so that was one of them. And then the, the, as we expanded, you know, and I grew in this business, uh, you know, my, I was retired, wanted to look more at amusements because he just couldn't grasp the fact of the 
um, of the, um, the vending because he had spoilage. And uh, so I left the company then. I've had three jobs. I went to work for a distributor. And I worked with uh, the Minnesota State Blind in Wisconsin um, with their contracts for uh, setup delivery and trying to help them grow their business uh, in the vending industry. Um, at that time, um, it was, it was kind of stagnant. I mean, vending was there, but there wasn't much change. When I just mentioned all these changes, that all changes happened within 30 years. About every 10 years, something came along that made a change. We look today in technology. If you don't keep up on it almost monthly, we've seen change. I've been in the micro-market business four years now, and I've seen so much change since I have came in there. And I enjoyed working for a, a company, a manufacturer that can grasp that change and always have ideas. Um, he always told me, he says, I throw 10 things at the board, and one might stick, but it might be that one item. And that's what we need to start looking at doing, trying different things that work and then move forward with it. So four years ago when our distribution, distribution sold out, and the reason they sold out, vending sales were depleting. Um, they were more going towards market. At about that same time, or just prior to that, uh, I get a call from a customer I worked with for many years. His name was Todd Westby. He, had, uh, he was a debt collector on college student loans, and they weren't doing a good job on vending. He wanted to start his own vending business. So he called our sales manager. The sales manager told him, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me they were going to grow a business like that. And so he called me, and we, we worked out a deal where he got his own vending. Long story short, as he grew that business, um, he had one location. It was a uh, Scott County Jail. His brother, who was in the, in the business, this guy was a technology guy, and a sales guy, he wasn't really a financial guy. So he was paying too much interest on delay, on uh, late payments. He had the money. He just was always worrying and growing his business. His brother jumped in with him and helped him with that. And they said, why is the jail making so much money? And he says, well, because I can charge what I want, and they're not going to go anywhere to buy it from somebody else. So he decided that he's going to start focusing on jails. And that's when the technology came with jails and um, growing that jail business and writing the software because he went to the jailers, listened to what they were saying and what they could help him, help them do um, to gain more accounts for him. So he did that. And now I think we're up to 360 jails around the country that we facilitate with warehouses all over. So he sold his traditional vending to focus on this. And one day about eight years ago, I get a call from, from the... Um, the owner, and he said to me, and by the way, this owner, he started out in the back of a Ford Escort, and him and his brother used to go to Cub, a local Cub, because they'd have sales on pop during the day, or during the weekend, and they'd go through the line five times to go fill up their van worth the beverages. The problem is, in Minnesota, when it was cold, by the time they got the van filled and heading back, it started exploding because it was all freezing, so they had to figure out a way to work that. So this is kind of where they started. So... As they got into the jail business, um, he called me up and says, what do you think of this micromarket business? We're looking at that because we really got a kiosk for jail visitation and everything. We, um, we think this micromarket business might have legs, and I agreed with him. So we started working together with him and developing it. And I said, well, when do you think you're going to have it done? He's by NAMA. Well, this was Thanksgiving. I said, there ain't no way you're going to have it at NAMA. Well, he did. And that was the first two micromarkets. And now I think we're over 2,000 micromarkets. And we're worldwide. We have offices in the UK. We have offices in Arizona. We have warehouses in nine different cities across the country. But one of the things he always stressed is today 
was yesterday. Tomorrow's tomorrow, he'd always tell me. He says, we got to look at what we can do tomorrow to help these vendors out. And I talked a little bit about it today when they talk about the advertising. We're looking into that. We talk about um, the malls and the condos because, you know, one guy said to me, he said, I'm looking at this mall. I got a friend that opens it. He's looking for help to to try to bring in more people. I'm thinking about the mall. What do you think about that? And I said, you know, it's the same thing. Throw 10 things at it, it might stick. It did. Um, We should have 30 malls open across the country this year. Um, Condos, airports, because Veterans Administration, the veterans have came to us and asked us, how can we start um, open-face markets with with the uh, consumers that can just walk up instead of having, when the commissary is closed, to go to the vending machines. So we're working on that. We always seem to be a few years ahead of our time, but by doing that, we're going to learn and then um, help teach people around the country um, how they can facilitate the same thing. Um, at one time, I think Scott was looking at a mall in Maplewood, but he got too busy to, to look into that venture. And, um, and so we've had other operators around the country do that. Uh, Dan Sippel did one of the jails we had. The jail commander called up and said, hey, we, wanted, we want a micro-market for our employees. Uh, we don't facilitate them, so we find operators. And at that time, uh, Dan was in Eau Claire, so he did that. So... You know, my career has been working with the blind community for many years. Um, we start, I got involved with ATMs trying to help that. Um, um, K-POW, I might pronounce that wrong, about six years ago, I got involved in the ATMs in the, um, uh, the Hoover Dam gift store. And so I think right now when I started that with one, there's over... Uh, the company I left uh, when they sold is probably over 10,000 ATMs around the country now. So it's thinking outside that box and what it could be. And, and I'll probably leave it with this. I've seen so many companies either sell or go out of business because they're afraid of technology or afraid to take that next move. Uh, I still get them today. I got a guy that called me out of Pittsburgh while I was sitting in the other room. He says, you talked micromarkets to me for three years. I'm in jeopardy of losing an 1,800-person location to my biggest competitor if I don't come up with a micromarket in 30 days. So I'm working with him to do that within the next 30 days, and he will be successful. And I always hear... Uh, Kirk, why didn't you get me to do this earlier? And I says, I can't twist your arm. I can't, you know, force you into it. You have to decide to do it. Um, and so every time we have our user conference, I bring that person in. He was a uh, husband and wife company. They were $1 million in debt six years ago. They got in the micro markets. They actually went after their biggest competitor, Canteen. And they've grown that business in a small little place in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And him and his wife are out of debt now, and they're looking at um, turning the company over and retiring. And eight years ago, nine years ago, they couldn't even think about that. They thought about bankruptcy because they didn't turn their ship fast enough. And now they're doing very successful. I think that's about all I can think of. Want the mic? Thank you, Kirk. That's uh, given us a little more to think about. Um, John, maybe you'd like to take the, one of the microphones out in the audience. And Does anybody have anything they'd like to share that the, either they've done that's uh, something new, different, innovative, or something they've seen someone else do, we'd, we'd really like to hear about that because 
uh, once again, we're trying to get out of the little box that we seem to have ourselves in right now and think about that bigger space that we could maybe fill. So uh, does anybody have anything they'd like to share? One thing I would like to, uh, to share with the two is it's all the ideas that we talk about where we grow. That's all come from people like yourself. That mall wasn't something we thought up. It was an operator thinking about it. We just helped them grow it, and then we helped get the word out and start to grow it. And then we found other avenues for people to make money in the industry that they're already in and just take it to the next level. Um, Dave spoke earlier about condos. His background is real estate. I mean, he started seeing the need for condos and um, talked to one of his operators and said, you own some condos. Why don't you put them in there? And they're very successful. And we, we see struggles and we see obstacles, but we find a way to work through those obstacles and make it work. Somebody says, how do you know they just walk in and steal it? Well, they put a key fob on there so they have to use their badge for their condo to get into there to purchase it. So they know who key fobbed in and they know who's purchased. So it's, you know, those are things that we come up with solutions. Um, when they find an objective, we will help them find solutions, and it's worked very well for us in the past. All right. One thing I can mention, too, is that, you know, I haven't made those huge steps. However, uh, like I talked about the other, uh, yesterday morning was uh, bringing in the Starbucks machine, which uh, to me is something different and slightly more innovative than anywhere I've been in the past. Um, Loading that thing up with product was uh, way more expensive than I've ever had to load a regular soda machine. But uh, the profits have been incredible. Uh, The sales have been phenomenal. And you just don't know until you try. Um, So um, does anybody have anything else they'd like to share? I know one of the things that John and I were talking about this morning was laundromats. I don't know if anybody has any experience with uh, going into laundromats or those kind of things. uh, it's just a world of possibilities. Uh, we got somebody back here. Hold okay. On. Yes, I'm just discussing an idea with the agency that uh, my employee came up with. They're doing some stuff closing down my parking lot. So I'm thinking about the idea of developing a mobile vending trailer that can be moved from time to time and attempting to service the Uber Lyft staging parking lots at the airports, uh, because it can be moved, they're liable to move that at any given time. But my employee went out and looked, and there's like, a, at the Orlando one, there's like upwards of 100 cars being staged there. The drivers stay in the car for an hour at a time. There's a bunch of people actually there. I believe that would be very profitable if it can be developed. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to share? Or does anybody want to dovetail off of that? I, I, I do know, uh, I think we were discussing in Illinois, they've looked at doing some food trucks. Um, some, another thing John and I were talking about this morning, you know, food trucks are hot throughout the country. It certainly does take the right type of person to run one of those, but, uh, you know, that may be a possibility. It's not actually a question, but it is another concept. Uh, my son uh, left the, his employer, who was a pl- plumber, uh, he's been in the field for 10 years, opening his own company, had a good relationship with a lot of the general contractors in the city. And um, in order to help facilitate his launch into new business, I used uh, him and his wife to, to, um, 
to, to, we basically set up another company to do vending. What we did was we took wooden pallets, put a drink machine on one and a snack machine on another, boxed them in, and we took those out to a couple of job sites in Tallahassee, Florida. Anyways, um, what we were attempting to do were provide snacks and drinks. Soon, over 50% of the inventory in that snack machine became safety equipment. Vest, goggles, tape measures, the types of things that those um, construction workers needed on that job site. Again, maybe this is a market that, that we could look at getting involved. It's not under Randolph Shepard, but I think uh, in order to increase opportunities for blind vendors, we need to be, start looking outside of the protected golden goose and finding new opportunities as well. Yep, excellent point. Um, uh, as we talked this morning, John and I were talking, and the biggest thing that um, we have to think about is service. Any kind of a service. Sometimes these things develop out of, you know, um, you start out going in one direction and pretty soon you're going in another and hadn't even thought about it, but it's, it's always breaks down to service. We have one right here. To the um, gentleman over here with the idea about the construction site, stuff like that that they did, with being that, what he said about doing that, uh, would that not take you away from the protection of the B, uh, Randolph Shepard Act? Or you'll still be protected under that? Well, I think this is what leads into telling your story. Because <clears throat> if you have a compelling story, we have blind individuals that are trying to work. They're trying to be independent entrepreneurs. And if we go into any facility, we don't have to be protected. We're competent people. We can successfully do a business. And if we can push our story forward that we are competent individuals, we don't need to only go into protected buildings. Protected buildings, a lot of them are going away. Uh, smaller and smaller government, uh, more and more regulations. Uh, a lot of them you need to have security to get into them so you can't get out as many customers. So going into the private sector is the way to grow the program. And you can only do that by telling your story. Like Woody was saying out there, you go in and you tell them, hey, I can provide the services that you need. And one of the things that kind of puts a lot of state agencies away from different private enterprises, some of these companies, they want a little kickback. They want 2%, 3%, whatever. I think we have to start looking at, hey, that's okay if we can get this extra business. And a lot of times state agencies are not willing to give up a percentage. They say, oh, the vendor should get all the the benefits of that location. And I think we have to start thinking out of the box, looking at as a, a general business person would if they want to go into that location. And just push the fact that we have a 70% unemployment rate with uh, people who are visually impaired. How can we change that? And how can we get more people motivated to work? And I think that probably is more of an issue, actually, than finding facilities. We need to motivate those young people to want to 
have an entrepreneurial spirit and want to get into business, and then they can promote themselves into getting into private locations. Good afternoon. This is Michael Mason again from Mississippi. I just had an idea, and this is based on my wife when she go into a restaurant or she's looking in the vending machines and she's trying to select an item that she can eat. And I have a sister-in-law that actually teaches Zumba. I just thought it would be a great idea to have what we call a Weight Watchers vending. Um, because every lady that I walk up to is on a diet, and it's more so for their health. And I can just only imagine if in my concession stand, if I had a vending machine that was a Weight Watchers machine, where it shows the points and other things like that that people wanted to eat healthy out of, then they would just simply go to that machine. That was just something I was picking back off from the gentleman to the left of me. Thank you. I like the thinking out, coming outside the box. One thing I was going to share was that uh, on one of my recent trips to USI, uh, we got to tour their factory. And uh, again, I apologize, I'm kind of getting a little bit back into the box again. But um, looking at some of their manufacturing lines, uh, they do all these lockers for Fastenal. And again, providing a service to uh, possibly employees, um, those kind of things. Um, what an interesting concept. Also, you know, anything from uh, machines that sell bait uh, for fishing, um, you know, <laughs> it, there's just an endless amount of possibilities. Good morning. This is Emma Godinez with the California VP. Uh, I would like to share a story from one of our vendors, um, thinking outside the box. He, uh, we have a very successful operation in one of our federal buildings in California, where the main source of income is passport pictures. So, not sure if this is something uh, other vendors do in other states, but it's been proven uh, in Los Angeles uh, that is a very successful operation. All he does is taking one-hour passport pictures for the one-day passports. Thank you. Thank you. So, let me see if I can... So, a couple other things to think about. In terms of reaching... Um, blind youth. Um, maybe you have in your city a, a, an agency, private agency, that serves blind people. Or maybe you have a school for the blind that is in your area. Now, you might say, folks who go to a school for the blind are not going to be running facilities. Well, that may be true, but there may be one or two that might. And so you should never... Uh, underestimate the potential of addressing entities that serve youth. If nothing else, you'll get the word out there and you never know one person tells another, you know, the whole sixth degree thing. And so I would, I would certainly look at taking the time to talk to uh, anywhere you can talk to other blind youth and tell them about the program. Secondly, make friends with local newspaper reporters. And, you know, this can have a, a benefit in a number of ways. Maybe you're frustrated on about a story concerning a website or the prohibition uh, against guide dogs or whatever. If you make a, um, if you tell a story 
totally unrelated to the Randolph Shepard program to a newspaper reporter. The next time when you want to go in and tell a Randolph Shepard story, you can call that person and say, hey, you know, Mr. Smith, I have this story. And, you know, it's a lot cheaper if you can do that than it is to hire a public relations firm for $50,000. So, you know, you really, you know, in addition to knowing your representatives and people like that, get to know the newspaper reporters in your community. I have, uh, earlier you guys were talking about, about how the, uh, the, we should go out after private enterprises. In Florida, we've done it, and I think we've been successful twice, but we've been more successful, I believe, Alan confirmed this, in going after the county and city contracts, both good and bad. But like in Hillsborough County, we took out the canteen five years ago, and they ain't coming back. All right. Well, I, I think we will have to draw yeah. this. One more, Scott. One more. Okay, one more. Thank you. Hi, I'm Norman from Hawaii. And I agree with um, Jeff as far as um, we need to let people know. But from my standpoint, I got into the program really late. Um, But what I think is the um, from the SLA, we need to how to get people interested in the program, and so that there'll be because I heard the other day how low the count was of people in the program. So I think we need to get people into the program. One is by the um, state agency that um, deals with rehab or whatever to get people interested in it. The other part is we we are who already in the program need to um, talk to blind people and get them interested also. Um, because it seemed like every year the count's going lower. And I, for one, am willing to do what I can to um, get people interested. Thank you. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you, everyone, for sharing ideas. And I uh, just want everybody to kind of keep this in the back of your head. Continue to discuss this among yourselves because uh, uh, you folks are the best at bringing these new ideas forward. And... Uh, what Jeff said, too, I also encourage people to make sure that you go and visit those youth. Uh, let them know about our program, that we're out here, and we're always looking for new, bright individuals. So, all right, I'm going to turn back over to ours. Thank you. <clears throat> and I think this is a topic we should uh, keep on the agenda for next year because it's uh, very important. Uh, the next topic is how to successfully interview for a better location. And we have several panel members. We have Sydney Martinez from Nevada, Jim Hammond from Washington State. Um, we have Alan Risk from Florida. <laughs> I, I'm the newbie on the panel, so I'll start and then they'll finish off, probably fill in the blanks. So, my name is Jim Hammond, I'm from Washington State, and I recently took this position over, but I'll come at it from the perspective. I was in corporate food service for 15 years as a private operator in multi-units. Each one of those units were independent uh, within my regions. Um, And so, a lot of the same principles apply. So, what I'm bringing to the table now for our folks is, is to teach them how to interview just like they would interview for a job. So, number one, get polished and and get your materials prepared. I think what's really key in our world today is to understand the client. So one of the things that I wrote down is 
if you're looking at a new facility or looking at an opportunity, you better research it and determine whether or not you uh, have capacity, you have experience in that arena. One of the ways you can do that is meet with a wellness team. Uh, you can look at the mobility of that facility. Um, and is the right fit for you as an operator? I think that's really, really key. I recently worked with a client um, where we bid out a facility and there were three people that interviewed and there was one that was a definite fit for that that client. The other two weren't even remotely close. And if we had done the research ahead of time, I probably we probably would have brought complete different group of vendors in there to interview and it would have been way more competitive. So we learned our lesson on that one. Um, so, and I've got two coming up real quick, so I'm going to apply that same thing. Um, secondly, I think um, in our world, you better build a good proposal and a good packet to leave behind. You have to tell your story. You just heard that. Toot your own horn. Um, and as a vendor, I want to see my vendor really doing some soul searching on who they are, who their team is, why they've been successful, and they have to tell that story in the packet. You're only as good as your last meal, um, but you've got to get people to remember that meal. I don't know where you ate last night. I don't really remember much about it, but I do remember the experience that I had, and I wasn't super happy about it. I won't tell you where I was in the property, okay? But my point being is people remember that stuff, and you have to tell them again and again and again, um, and you have to change it up. Uh, Lastly, I would offer... um, before you go in or encourage your people, I sit down with my vendors and I, I make them practice, practice, and practice. A dry run until they can do it uh, just off the cuff and they're willing to take the questions. Um, outside of that, I think the other panel members can talk about BEP, uh, bid qualifications, and stuff like that. Washington has all those, but I'm not worried about those. Uh, our folks have been around, they know. They, they've never really, most of our people have never interviewed for a new facility until this year, and it was not a pretty sight. Good morning. I'm Sydney Martinez. I'm the BEO2 here in Southern Nevada. Um, we've had several locations go out to bid, um, and in the process, you have to do a presentation or an interview for the host agency. And one of the most important aspects I've found is um, knowing what the host agency is looking for um, and being able to um, keep your promises. Um, So when you're going into an interview, if you're saying that you're going to do Taco Tuesday every Tuesday, make sure that you're following through with that. So I think a key aspect is making sure that you have a a business plan that's objective um, and that you're being realistic with your goals and your expectations and you're able to communicate that to the host agency clear and concisely. Um, I think it's also important to do your research prior to going into these locations. Um, For instance, at the Southern Nevada Health District, we have a site there. Um, The building has 500 employees in it. However, most of those are health inspectors and they're not in the building. So knowing that majority of the employees are not in the building is going to be a really heavy burden when you take on a site like that. So I think doing your research is going to be key. Having a really strong business plan that's objective and that's realistic and you have a plan to execute it 
Um, and then, again, understanding what the agency is looking for. Um, putting a, a bakery in a DMV doesn't make sense. So understanding that that site in particular is fast-paced and you need to have a business plan that reflects um, what their needs are is going to be key as well. My name is Alan Risk. I'm with the uh, Florida Business Enterprise Program. And I've been overseeing the uh, selection process for nine years. We, we have a selection cycle three times a year. So I'm actually right now in the middle of my 27th uh, selection cycle. And ours is made up a little bit different. Every state is different. And, uh, and for us in Florida, this seems to work well. I'm not saying it would work for everybody. It's not a perfect system. We've looked at revising it several times. But here's the way it works, basically. And going back to what Jim started with, it starts with preparation. Uh, you need to prepare before these selection cycles. Don't wait until it's time to interview before you start getting ready. You may, have, may not even make it to the interview if you're not preparing ahead of time. We have an exam that we give out. And for instance, I'll just use, we have a January cycle, a May cycle, and a September cycle. We're in the January cycle right now. We advertise the open facilities. Uh, we put them out the middle of the month. They have till the end of the month to get in their applications. When I get back next week, we administer exams statewide. Anywhere from down in Miami all the way up to Pensacola in the Panhandle at the district offices of their choice, they go in and take an exam. Everybody takes the same exam at the same time administered by the local offices. It's 40 questions, a multiple choice, true, false, 10 uh, business math questions on there. And uh, they can take it by computer, by Braille, by large print, by, by a reader reading for them. We give them that option. And then we take that, that, that score that they prepared for, and that, that test deals with policies and procedures. It deals with rules. It may deal with um, uh, food safety. Uh, it may deal with vending machines. And by the way, our, our whole process is on our website, which is available to the public, and it actually has a couple of computerized practice tests on there. So if you're ever interested in that, you can see how that works out. But that's 40% of your overall score. And then next, not only does it take preparation, but it takes performance. And we look at their, we look at their performance. If they've been in a facility already, we pull all of their statistics for the last 36 months. And we look at their sales, we look at their labor costs, their cost of goods sold. One of the most important things we look at is uh, their net profit percentage. And so we take all that uh, together and their performance, we consider in that with their experience, how many years they've been in the program, we also do a consultant questionnaire, 10 questions that our consultants fill out on them, and that's up to 25%. So now you've got the 40% and the 25%. So 65%, that leaves 35% for the interview. But if they're not in the top five for that facility, after those, those first two things, after their preparation with the test, their performance scores, they don't get invited to the interview. Only those that are the top five candidates get invited. And so we'll have our test in February, and we'll add the performance points in there with that. And then in, in March, we'll have interviews. We all bring them in. We bring all the top five candidates for each facility into Tampa. And over about a two- or three-day period, we'll interview all of the uh, applicants. And the panel was made up of three uh, of our panel members are selected by the State Committee of Vendors. And two of the uh, panel members are selected by the agency, but they're not in the, on the BEP staff. Uh, they may work in the client services uh, part of it as, as a district administrator uh, or a supervisor. But that makes up the five-person panel. And that panel, they come up, they meet together the day before the exams. They'll come up with five questions that they want to ask 
every applicant the same five questions. They're scored five points on each one of those questions from zero to five. And then they have a 10-point uh, 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 value for them presenting why they are the best for that facility. And this is where, where the difference is made a lot of times. Because if they haven't done any type of research on that facility, if they haven't come up with basically a business plan of how they're going to go in there and, and, and perform their best and improve that facility and, and convince the panel that they're the, the best for that, that could cost them that facility. So that we come up with a 100%, uh, 100 possible points, no one gets 100 points, but uh, that's what we base upon. Then the panel will make their recommendations based upon that. Now, I'll tell you this, not all, it, the best vendor doesn't always get the facility. Uh, it, it may be, they may be a great uh, operator, but they may have only been in the program for two or three years. Somebody with been in the program for 25 years, they may edge them out. And, and we try to balance that. After about three to five years, you max out on performance points. So everybody's on an equal playing uh, uh, level at that point. But somebody new that's in the system may be a great operator, but they're coming in looking for that uh, big money-making rest area right out of the gate. They're probably going to be sitting at home for a long time. Uh, sometimes you have to work your way up through that. You have to accept maybe a lower uh, uh, producing facility, maybe a snack bar, but you want to do your best in that facility to show that you're a good operator. And then you work your way up that ladder, and it, it doesn't take long. Usually within three or four years, you can be up in that top level if you've, if you've done well with that. It works well for us. Uh, the panel makes a recommendation. It goes back to our bureau chief. Uh, he makes the final call. And in the nine years I've been doing that, there's only been once or twice that he has overruled the, the panel. The panel doesn't have to go with the highest point value. They, they can put uh, reasons they have to justify if they don't go with the person with the highest point value. But uh, most of the time, our, our, our chief will approve of that. The two times he didn't approve of it, he proved himself to be wrong. The panel was right uh, that, it, that he should have gone with their recommendation. But it's a good system. It works out well for us. And, um, and, I've, and I'll go ahead and turn it back. If you all have any questions for anybody at that point. What matters more in the interview process? Does it matter what they wear or... Or their attitude, good, et cetera. Good question. Good question. We do. It is a. It is, and we tell them this ahead of time. As a matter of fact, you can read it on our website. We want them to dress professionally as they would for a business. You want to go like you're going into a bank and asking for a loan for your business, and you want to dress professionally. You don't come in there in Florida in your shorts and tank top. No, you come in there with a coat and tie or professional wear, uh, professional business wear. And, and even our panel members, some of them may be, they may be total, no, no side at all, but they'll ask. They'll ask the other panel members after the interview is over, they'll ask how that person was dressed. And they, that does come into play. And, uh, and so it is, it is important that they dress professionally. Thank you, Artis, for that question. I would agree. Um Dress is very important. I think uh, a polished presentation is equally important with the positive attitude, being able to confidently convey the, your message. Uh, we had that recently, and uh, you know, one of our gentlemen actually did a food spread and brought his chef in, and it was part of the process, and we allowed that, and, and we told the client ahead of time that they were going to do that. So uh, 
everybody was well-versed. Then we had another bid recently uh, where that wasn't part of the process and they did it anyway. And we ended up having to pull that one because uh, it wasn't fair to everybody because they didn't know ahead of time. So, I mean, ground rules are important too. And that was one of the things that uh, I was thinking about afterwards. Do the applicants get a list of questions in advance that they might get asked, or is it all impromptu? We don't give them out in advance, uh, but I do a week before spend some time going over some generic kind of questions to give them a kind of the practice run. We don't either. Our panel consists of um, three employees from the host agency and then two from the BEP program. Um, so when they go in there, it's the majority is from the host agency. Yeah, uh, we and we encourage them uh, not to share the questions with, with the applicants that are behind them. We don't want anyone to get any type of unfair advantage over another applicant, so no one knows the questions coming in. Uh, every time we we have interviews, they come up with new questions, uh, and also back in the beginning with the with the tests. I mentioned this is my 27th time doing this selection cycle. This is the 27th exam that I put together. I never use the same exam twice. They're always different questions. They're the same material, but the questions are different. And so uh, we, we try to make sure that everyone is on the same playing field. No one has an unfair advantage on any of the uh, questions asked. During the interview process, do you allow them to ask questions of the panel? Uh, we do allow questions to be answered. Primarily, it's directed toward the, the client or the facility so they can get uh, build a rapport with that uh, individual or individuals. Um, do do any time do the building managers, um, are they on the interview process? Yes. That's a yes for us, too. Uh, we do have that provision, uh, that, uh, provision in our, uh, our policies, and that has happened in the past, but not in the nine years I've done it. We've never had uh, anyone other than the panel members uh, in there. Um, but it is, you know, if, if they ask to be in there for it, we certainly would, would allow that. Okay. Audience, who would like to ask a question of this panel? Yeah, um, Mike Pemble from the state of Michigan, SLA. My question is whether the uh, unsuccessful applicants for the position have any rights to appeal the decision of the panel. Uh, yes, we do have a grievance process, and uh, we, we make them all aware of that. I also oversee the grievance process for our agency. And in, in our selection cycles, we may have, there's been several times we've had over 30 applicants maybe for six facilities. There's going to be a lot of unhappy people uh, after we're, we're finished because only those that get awarded the facility are going to be satisfied. And uh, we certainly give them that opportunity to file a grievance, and, and several have. It doesn't happen very often because we're very open, very transparent in how we do everything. Um, so we've, we've never lost a grievance that I can think of in, on, on, in, in this process in the nine years I've been doing it. But certainly they, uh, they can question the outcome, uh, take it before a grievance panel of their peers. And, and uh, the panel is made up similar. It's a separate grievance panel, but this makeup is pretty much the same with representation from both sides. And uh, they certainly do have that process. As a follow-up, um, what happens to the awarding of that facility during the grievance process? Is it awarded 
to the person you chose, or does it have to wait until the grievance process is resolved? Normally, we will wait. Because the way we do it, we, uh, for, I'll use this uh, selection cycle as an example. <clears throat> we'll know in March who will be awarded that facility. We let them know within 24 to 48 hours after we finish. Uh, and uh, the, the changeover of the new operator would usually be about six weeks later. So it might not be until May 1st. So if someone files a grievance, they have seven days to file a grievance on, on for a selection cycle decision. And so we'll hold off on any uh, official award until after that grievance process plays out. And it's never, it's never knocked us off schedule. Uh, we've always been able to stay within our, our schedule, even allowing the grievance process to follow through. I would answer, um, we haven't had a grievance, but I debriefed everybody after the fact. Um, so those that lost had an opportunity to understand how to improve, maybe, for the next time out. So I'm sure in my tenure, this issue will come up down the road. Alan touched on everything except for what happens in, in the case in, in some states. Our, so we do ours by panel. Our, five, our selections panel can do what we call a DNR, which is a do not recommend. And do, do you guys... Or do not the states have Okay. Yeah. <laughs> DNR. Do I? There, there, are, there are sometimes yeah. where... Oh, this, uh, is, this, is, uh, this means uh, do not recommend, not do yeah, not resuscitate. Right. Do not recommend. <laughs> we do give our panel that option. That's where I was, I was mentioning where they may not go with someone. Someone may have a higher point total than uh, other applicants... But because of their, uh, some things in their uh, performance, uh, some issues that they've had, uh, it's pretty obvious that they are not the right candidate. And, and again, they have to justify that in writing uh, on their report to the bureau chief. We're, we're, we're skipping over this person, going to this person because of this issue. Uh, we don't feel like this would be the right candidate. And they can grieve that. They, they certainly have the, uh, the opportunity to grieve the, the, uh, the DNR recommendation. That doesn't happen often. It has happened uh, a handful of times in, in nine years, but, but doesn't happen very often. Okay, we have one more back here at the Hawaii table. Hi, my name is Norman. I wanted to ask the question the, um, on the panel itself, what kind of um, atmosphere do, do they project um, in that interview room? Is it solemn or you know like, like they're interrogating the person? And then the other question is do the um, interviewee have a <clears throat> recourse after the interview to question his, his um, points? Thank you. I think it just goes back to the grievance. Um, yeah, when I do a debrief with my folks, I, I go back through their questions if they want to, and I show them the scores, and we talk about how they did. So, And that's a, a choice that we make as a program to encourage, coach our folks. It's kind of a little gray area. Yeah, we try to, ha we try to have a relaxed atmosphere when they come in. Usually one of the panel members, one of their fellow vendors, will ask them about... How was their trip on the way down? Sometimes they, they drove in, they flew in, whatever it may be. Just trying to create, uh, you know, try to break down any uh, tension that they might have. And, and we try to have a relaxed uh, uh, atmosphere in there. And afterwards, when they're finished with all the questions, even with the personal presentation, uh, they'll, they'll say something like, well, this uh, concludes our part of the interview. Do you have any questions of us? And we certainly give them that opportunity to ask any follow-up questions. 
Did we answer your question? Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, aloha. Okay. Um, in our state, um, the selection process is composed of the uh, is made up of the hundred point system, and thirty five percent of that is uh, on site evaluation. In your states, in your experience, how do you compare the performance of the vendor, existing vendor, who runs uh, one hundred? 20 square feet of area against a vendor who's running at 10,000 square feet of area. So how do you compare the, the two in, in your selection process? Thank you. In Nevada, we don't have a, we're not a point-based system. So for us, we, we put out the bid. Um, our operators respond to the bid with a business plan. And then whoever responds to the bid gets to present. Um, so ours is a little bit different in that aspect, but you have. And there, there is one more aspect to our selection cycle that, that does not have a point uh, total associated with that, and that is an applicant synopsis. And so what I'll do after I get all the uh, applicants, uh, their applications in, I will go back th uh, 36 months in their uh, files, anything that we have, and, and I'll include, I'll send, to the, I'll send it to the applicant first. I said, this will be your synopsis that's going to the panel. Do you see anything that you disagree with? before I send it out. So I give them that opportunity. If there's something negative in there that they feel is not fair, uh, they, have the they have the opportunity to challenge that before the panel sees it. But every visitation report from our consultants, everything that they've, they've noticed on their visitation reports is included in that synopsis. Any late reports, any warning letters for operational deficiencies, uh, anything at all that, that we have in their file is included in that synopsis which the panel gets about a week ahead of time before the interviews, and if they feel like it's a concern, they can ask questions uh, during that, uh, during that uh, after the, uh, the end part of the interview, they can ask them about some of the things that may have been on their synopsis, given that opportunity to explain it. I had one question. Um, when you have to your panel, um, I know some states have the... Um, that after the panel makes a decision, if the director of the agency doesn't agree, they can overrule it. Um, does that happen in any of your states? For us, like I said before, um, the panel is made up, the majority is from the host agency, so whoever the host agency chooses, that's who is going to be the operator in that site. Agreed. It, it boils down to our facility. They want the right fit, and our director always goes with that. Okay, our director doesn't get involved in it, uh, in the selection part, but he does in the grievance. So if there's a grievance filed after we've gone through the uh, grievance procedure and the panel uh, submits their report, uh, it goes to the director. and He can either agree, concur with them, or he can disagree, and that has happened a couple of times as well. So the only time that our director is involved in it is if there is a grievance uh, filed on the selection. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I thought the panel did a great job. Okay. 
Uh, the next panel is the value of writing and updating a business plan. And our panel members on this one are Jessica Peters from Nevada, Elaine Robertson from South Carolina, and Jim Hemmen is also on this one from Washington. And then I'll throw two cents in from the private perspective as a business coach. So who would like to start? I have to run down the hall a second, so one of you can start. <laughs> I don't know how I got them. All right, I got to stay up here. I don't know why, but <laughs> newbie, I guess. Um, I've shared with some people in the room over the last few days, kind of this is the area that I come from. Again, private sector, having written lots of business plans. I'm a former entrepreneur as well. Um, and I was a teacher at a culinary school for nine years, and I actually taught the subject matter. So it, to me, it's really simple. Um, the business plan is your roadmap to business life, and there are hundreds and hundreds of publications on and off the web all about that. And nine times out of ten, all the best sellers will reference something along those lines. Um, you know, your business plan is your roadmap, and without one, you're on a journey to nowhere. Right? Um, you got to start somewhere, and you got to have a destination. Uh, Stephen Covey best says it is, you know, uh, start with the end in mind. And all of his books in and around his success were always about what do you want down the road? What's that look like? And work backwards. Um, for a long time, I worked forward, and it didn't work very well. When I started applying some of those principles and and designed my dream facility or my dream. Uh, and wrote it all out and worked backwards. It was amazing how fast all the little pieces came together and all the people that I needed came, up, came upon my path. Um, so I'm deploying that same philosophy with our folks. Uh, now I can tell you in Washington State, nobody has a business plan except for the one young person uh, who happens to be in training right now. He graduated from Hadley with a 16-page outline. He's been working with the SBA Small Development Center at the local community college uh, at my recommendation. Uh, and his business play, uh, plan is about 80 pages, 40 pages of it are exhibits and his financial statements. This young man is 23 years old. Uh, he low, has low vision. He runs a little coffee shop at the college. But when he's all said and done, he wants to run a million-dollar food service operation. His business plan will get a loan from a bank. Um, it's going to be that good. Uh, we were lucky to get that resource. Um, and I'm excited about what's going to be in it because I've been watching it. So, again, roadmap. It's going to have your finances, budget, all that. The part that I focus on more than anything, uh, we, you can manipulate numbers all you want at the end of the day. And you can get somebody to give you money. It, where the rubber meets the road is for me is you know food is changing as fast as the IT industry again you're only as good as your last meal the food that consumers want today is not the food from 5 years ago 10 years ago or 20 years ago if there's an operator in the room i don't want to hurt your feelings but if you're serving grilled cheese uh, you know or grilled ham and cheese every day and that's your special you're obsolete right um, you've got to do something new. You've got to refresh. Burger and fries are great one day a week, but you need to have antibiotic chicken. You need to have hormone-free chicken. You need to have fish. You need to be relevant, and I've been talking about that a lot. 
Today, the food business is all about relevancy. It's all about choice. It's diversity. It's inclusive. Uh, it's it's global, and it's affordable in that aspect. Um, and one of the ways that we know that is we do a lot of social media. A lot of a lot of my folks do a lot of social media, and they're studying, and they're pulling, and we're stealing recipes from all over the web, and we're reinventing those. Um, so you got to market every single day. Um, so if you can't beat them, you got to join them somehow. And if you can't, then you bring them to you. Um, and I guess that's what I'm going to say. Just market, market, market. Um, I was raised in, under guerrilla marketing. There was a book years ago all about guerrilla marketing. I don't know if anybody ever read that or heard about it. But that's what social media is now. you got to have Facebook. you got to have Twitter. you got to have Instagram. you got to have Pinterest. And somebody on your staff has to has to manage that stuff and do it for you all the time. Because I guarantee you, if you're tweeting something out in your building about how good the food is or one of your customers does, you're going to have 30 people from the 5th floor, the 7th floor, the 8th floor come downstairs and want to eat it. So I don't have the same level with business plans that he has. Um, But I've done a lot of business plans with consumers who want to do a pass plan with Social Security. And all different types of business, from a real estate agent to opening their own cosmetology, cosmetology um, shop. And the one thing I discovered is a lot of new entrepreneurs come in with, oh, it's going to be easy. I just have to go and rent a space and buy my inventory or get my license, and then I can just sell to people. They don't understand state laws. They don't understand um, federal and state taxes. They don't understand hiring employees, how to pay them. Um, Even, like Arden said yesterday, the questions you can and can't ask. When creating business plans for a past plan, you have to be extremely detailed. You have to give every single step. And again, working backwards. They know what they want. They can envision what they want it to be. But how do we get there? Because they have to report quarterly to Social Security what their progress is. So the same thing really applies to any entrepreneur. And then it's really important to keep those updated. Because once someone actually starts their business, they start that process, they're learning as they go. They may see that the market's not really what they thought it was, or maybe their customers just want something different. So they have to be willing to be flexible. They have to be willing to go in and make those changes, see how that's going to affect their future. And I totally agree with the whole marketing concept. That's got to be a daily thing because you're trying to reach new customers. You're trying to bring new people in. And again, when you bring new people in, you've got to be open to maybe they don't want exactly what you're selling. Be open to listening to your customers. These are all things that can be learned through the creation of a business plan. And it helps people understand the commitment that they're making, that they're not just coming into the BEP program to go fill vending machines, buy new inventory, and collect money. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And it's really important to educate them. Uh, I think for for the sake of um, training purposes in creating a business plan, um, having a pulse on uh, your captive audience is very important in um, seeking out that information, I think, shows initiative to to that, to having a pulse on your um, audience when you are submitting a business plan for a site. Um, I, I do come across a, 
you say work backward, um, I do come across a lot of literature that um, suggests uh, lean business plan marketing or lean business plan writing um, where you're just starting very minimal and um, uh, basically like running reports as you go and building your business plan as you go. Um, So I don't know what your opinions are on lean business plan writing. Have you, do you know, are you... I don't have any problem with with a lean business plan, but I um, it works both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, if your your operator sits down with you and you're interviewing them for an opportunity in BEP, and they tell you they want to run a million dollar facility, they want to have twenty people on the payroll, and they they are strictly want to be in the cafeteria business and have seven or eight or nine stations, you need to define what that restaurant looks like and work backwards. If that person is all about running a small vending route and maybe a dry stand, I think you can work for it because it's much simpler complex. And so you have to be flexible within the two. Obviously, uh, with lean, you're looking for efficiencies all along the way. And that's what sells you above somebody else. And that's the key to that part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Do you just, want to say anything else? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> all right. Uh, we lost our moderator. I think that's all I have to say. I'm sure people want to ask questions. So I'll walk around with a mic. Questions? Audience? Seriously? your chance all right we got somebody thank you Idaho Um, have you ever had experience with a vendor who has completed training and is not particularly interested in doing a business plan because as it stands there isn't an open facility for them to jump right into and so they don't feel the urgency. Have you ever um, encountered that? And if so, uh, do you have any suggestions as to um, how to instill that, that level of urgency and, and wanting to um, take initiative with that? Great question. Yeah, um, so that's the whole reason I have this student doing a a very large business plan. He did a 16-page outline to get through his Hadley class, and the instructor there went ahead and signed it off. It's no different than a table of contents found in any book, and I'm like, it doesn't, doesn't meet the requirement, so I had to do a lot of coaching to get him to to do that. And I said, well, what if, be, if, what if you get a license from me and it's going to be two years to get this quarter of a million dollar coffee shop you want? How, how are you going to get the money? And so we approached it from, if you go to SBA and the bank, you can get a bank loan. And if you go through this process and you only had $10,000, you can get enough to start a quarter of a million dollar a year coffee shop because you only need about 50 grand. Same thing would apply on a food truck, micro market. You know, fifty thousand dollars you can start a micro market, but you only need five thousand dollars to get in credit to get the bank to back you. So we have to think that way. Anyway, that's my answer. 
I was just going to say um, that part of our training, we do utilize Hadley, the Hadley modules, and they are required to create, even if it's a, a mock business plan, they're required to at least know how to have a business plan. So I'm not sure if every state uses Hadley or not. I also just want to add from the VR perspective on that, I would probably recommend that the consumer go back to the VR counselor and really talk about their IPE goal and what the plan is for that goal. Because if you require a business plan in order for them to move forward, then they're going to have to do that. Otherwise, maybe the VR counselor can sit down and talk with them and maybe BEP is not the right option for this person. Hey, with that uh, business plan deal, with the, would you just present them with a um, basic understanding of what your business is going to be and the financial risk records, um, projections or whatever you're going to be uh, projecting to make over the years or what? Or do you give them the full-fledged business plan? Okay, so the question was what kind of materials are provided to the individual to develop a business plan. Um, I give all mine, uh, our folks, a, a live business that was bid out two or three years in the past so they know exactly what the sales are, what the clientele might be in the base, a little bit about the market study. It's, it's almost identical to what would be in a bid document. And so then they can use that as the baseline material to build from. So it's not like it's, they're designing it from scratch. We give them a live business that we know that makes money, and then we, they develop it under their own format. I know that with the Hadley um, module uh, for business plan, they have to actually pick a building and seek that information out, the, the volume in the building and um, foot traffic, and they have to actually call the, the host agency or call the host of the building and find all of that information out. I would provide templates, but also sample business plans for a similar type business. And then I always refer people to the Small Business Administration and ask them to go to a class there. Um, because it's very important. They give you a lot of details. They give them a lot of guidance and a lot of insight. So it's just a good experience for them to have before they try to sit down and write one. Uh, Whenever I hear the term business plan, I always come to think that's synonymous with Seymour Cray. I don't know if if any of you may have not heard of Seymour Cray, but Seymour Cray is from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. He built the world's biggest and fastest supercomputer back in the 70s. And when he had this concept in his mind, he went to the CEO of 3M in Minneapolis and said, here's what I want to do. And he convinced the 3M CEO, yeah, let's go, but we've got to get board, our board of directors approval. And so Seymour goes in, and this is Seymour's, up until he got killed, but his, his legacy was he went before the board of directors of 3M, laid it out as what he what, you can build the world's biggest and fastest supercomputer. It'll serve the world and all this and that. And the CEO, yeah, okay, you know. And one of the board of directors says, well, what is your one-year and your five-year plan? And he said, well, in one year, I'll be 20% done. Five years, I'll have it done. So, and what is Seymour's point was business plans are excellent, 
I wish he was alive today, and, and I wish I would have taped that. But uh, you have to have a business plan, if nothing more, in mind. But do not make it a gospel, and do not make it a mandatory and only requirement. You have to consider personality and intellectual level of the individual seeking a particular business loan or whatever else. But so again, I just, business plan and Seymour Cray are synonymous in my mind. But just they are important. They make people think about what they're getting into and makes them more aware, and they're less disappointed when things don't come about the way they initially had in mind. When I talk to individuals about a business plan, I always tell people, even if it's not required in your program to have a business plan to get into your facility, it's good to have a business plan. Because if you have a business plan, you can see how successful you are. Because your business plan not only includes your purpose and your mission, your um, staffing, your what products and services you have, also includes your marketing. And if you don't have a goal on how you're going to better market your products and services, you're likely not to move beyond where you are today. And if you want to be successful, you have to constantly be looking at innovations and what you can do to improve. So if you don't have a business plan of where you're going, then you're going to think you're at where you need to be, and you're not going to be nearly as successful as if you have a business plan that's written out. And I know sometimes people say, well, it's not a big deal. I can think in my mind goals, what I want to do, et cetera. But if you have it written down, then you can go back. Okay, have I done that? Have I done that? You have a way to evaluate where you've been and where you're going. And if you don't have it written down, how can you evaluate it? And so it's really important to have a, a full plan, even if your state does not require it, because um, you yourself want to make sure you improve. I mean, if you don't care if you improve, you want your business to go downhill, you know, don't worry about having a business plan. But I think it's really important to, um, even for yourself, so that you know where you're standing right now and where you're going to go in the future. Uh, do we have any other questions related to um, the importance of a business plan, etc.? Anyone else on the panel have anything they want to add? I'll just add that I personally have one for myself. So that's how I how much I value business plans, marketing plans. I have a you know, every December I sit down and I look back over the year and I do a self-evaluation. I do it nightly and weekly and monthly, but every year I kind of look at how, what were my achievements this year? What's important to me? Did I did I get some things done? Did I make a difference? Um, it keeps me relevant, and then you know I reflect on what I want to do the next year, and that's actually how I ended up in BP seven months ago. I was consulting in Hungary Leaf and K twelve, and I'm like, I want to make an impact and do something with some people that. Um, want to make a difference and this opportunity just came out of nowhere and then I, I met with the director and he's like you're just a you're already a business coach go do this you can do this and I you know didn't take a lot of convincing um, but it, when I look back now um, how I set that up a year ago for what happened last last summer it was, you know, in some of my writing. I wanted to be a person of impact and make a difference for others in the food business. And that was my statement. And look what happened. 
the question was asked about Seymour Cray. Did Seymour uh, get the backing of 3M? No, he didn't. But it did give him the impetus to pursue other financing. Uh, he was personally insulted because he felt he gave a quite a good overview of his plan verbally, but he had nothing in writing about a one-year and a five-year. And uh, so he you know, realized that, and he pursued uh, individual donors uh, or investors, to, and he did end up building the biggest and fastest uh, supercomputer. But so that, again, emphasize business plans are good, but they're only a tool. How many of you in the audience have a business plan? You're going to have to clap because I can't see hands. <laughs> okay, not a very big percentage. <laughs> How many are going to think about writing one after the hearing this panel? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dan said he thinks they're fun to write. Well, they're definitely challenging because it gets your mind thinking of where you can go from here and uh, what you can improve and how you can improve it. And uh, like was mentioned earlier, um, there are business plans online that you can uh, get for free from the uh, um, business administration on their website. They have a, a, a template for a business plan and you can download it and import the items into it and do it so it makes it much easier than having to come up with a template on your own. In fact, if you'd like a template, I can even send you one, an email because I do that for prospective clients. I give them a list of questions they need to think about, etc. So if you're interested in getting that, you know, I'd be glad to send that to you. Well, if anybody wants to leave before we call door prizes. (laughs) Well, everyone, you're listening to ACB Radio Live Event, and this has been Sagebrush Day 3 from the Golden Nugget Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. We are now breaking for lunch, uh, which is going to be the annual luncheon where there's going to be some awards, presentations, and Dan Spoon is going to be the keynote speaker. So stay tuned for that. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank, Thank you all for being here to help us celebrate our 51st uh, Sagebrush in our, for our awards luncheon. It's just a tremendous opportunity for us to get together and uh, share our experiences and then you know, acknowledge those that uh, really mean a lot to us in the program. We are, just as a brief note, we are very fortunate um, this year to have Bob Humphreys back with us. As you know, uh, He's up here at the front table here, so uh, and he's very excited to see a lot of his old friends here and, and uh, make a, uh, he would like to make new, new friends. In, fr- in front of your plate, you'll find a commemorative shot glass. Uh, I did not 
want to go around filling them, so please take them home with you and uh, inf- enjoy a little adult beverage when you get home with it. W- with that, I'd like to, uh, and, prou- and proud and privileged to give you our speaker for our luncheon, Mr. Dan Spoon, the president of the American Council of the Blind, ACB. He's going to give us a little insight on what ACB is about and what his life and, uh, has brought to the blindness world. Dan? Well, thank you all so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, be here today. This is my first opportunity to attend a Sagebrush conference. So first I want to thank uh, Dan Sippel and Artis Bazin and, and everyone for uh, giving me the opportunity uh, to, to spend some time with you all. I've uh, it was interesting. I've got some uh, acquaintances out there from Hawaii, so aloha from the folks from Hawaii. And then to Jim Warth. Jim Warth and I from Florida, we go back for about 25 years when we served on the Florida Council of the Blind together. He was the treasurer and I was the, I was the membership secretary, so we got in all kinds of trouble back in our youth. So it was good to see Jim and all his team here today. I'm I had the opportunity with, with being here today that my wife, Leslie, wasn't able to make it today, and she sends her apologies. Her knee was kind of acting up and didn't feel like flying five hours from Orlando was probably in her best interest. But her family actually lives here in Las Vegas, and she worked at the Golden Nugget from 1989 to 1992. So I told her I was going back to her old workplace, so I was going to find out what she did in her youth and childhood. So... <laughs> And uh, and I I want to talk a little bit about you know you get a chance to uh, you know to be a banquet spe- speaker occasionally so I was telling um, uh, Herbert earlier a uh, year year and a half ago I got the opportunity to speak at the Tennessee Council of the Blind and they served a beautiful pork steak with cooked baked apples nice gooey apples so I. I'm trying to do my best job as a blind guy up there at the head table carving on that pork steak, and it was a little tough. And I'm carving, and I'm carving, and I'm carving, and all of a sudden, I feel something in my lap. And those baked apples had slid off the plate, down the, down the tablecloth, and were landing nice, nice and warm in my lap. And at that point in time, the president of the Tennessee Council of the Blind, Lynn Allison, and said, and now we want to introduce our speaker for the evening, Dan Spoon. And I step up, and I have got apple juice rolling all down my body. So I'm very happy today that I was able to make it through lunch unscathed. So, <laughs> so we're starting on a, good, on a good note. And what I want to talk to you about, uh, artists asked me to talk, not talk, chance to talk about ACB topics tomorrow. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, she said, be a motivational speaker today. Talk about networking. Talk about your experiences. So I wanted to share a little bit about, you know, the word that comes to mind when I come to Las Vegas, because I have an opportunity to since my, my mother-in-law and my niece and my, my brother-in-law all live here. So Leslie and I come out a couple times a year. And you can't think about Las Vegas without thinking about luck and being lucky. So we were out here in September, and we were staying uh, in Henderson over by Green Valley. 
And my mother-in-law and, and, and my niece and Leslie and I all went out for lunch. And we went to this coffee shop, the coffee shop at the Green Valley Casino. My, my family, my in-laws don't go anywhere if it's not in a casino in Las Vegas. That's the kind of type of people they are. So we're down there having lunch. And we go to the coffee shop. And my mother-in-law, who's 88 years old, and she loves to gamble, she, she's feeling around. She says, Leslie, bend down underneath this table. I feel something underneath my shoe. And so Leslie gets down there and bends down and says, Mom, I'm blind. I just go underneath my shoe and see what you find. So Leslie bends down and she picks up this piece of paper. And, my, and Betty says, my mother-in-law says, my God, that's a $20 bill. That's great. You know, I, what do you think? You think I can keep it? And we said, well, I think so. I mean, you found it on the floor. You know, it's not around anything. I, I don't, you know, think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see why not. She says, Okay. This will be great. I'll have $20 to make it to the end of the month. So we start heading out towards the car after we have lunch. He says, you know, I might try putting a little of this in the video poker machine just to see how I do. So she puts the $20 in the video poker machine. She hits four aces. You know, this is a nickel video poker machine. Now, I didn't, if, you get, if you come to Vegas regularly, you realize there's no such thing as a nickel video poker machine, right? You play, it costs a dollar a pool to play a nickel video poker machine, right? So it's not really a nickel machine, it's a dollar machine. But she puts her $20 in, she hits four aces, she wins $240. So now she's taken the $20 she's found, she's hit for $240. We go home, we have a happy evening. So guess what we're going to do the next morning? We're going back to the casino. So we go back to the casino. We play Mega Bucks, and her and Leslie win another $132. So now she's taken her $20 that she's found, and she's up to over $350. So next day, Leslie and I want to go over to Samstown, another casino, and just spend a couple days on her own. She says, well, I'll, I'll drive you guys over there. So she drives us over, drops us off, says, I might try and play a little bit. She hits a royal flush for $1,700. So by the time we leave Vegas three days later, she's sitting there with $2,000 in her pocket. She has paid for her eloquence for the next four months, and she's a happy camper. <laughs> and so you never know how lucky you can get in Las Vegas. So now I think since then she's reinvested that money, but it was good while she had it. <laughs> uh, so what is luck? Luck, when I was in college, we, we, uh, you, know, you, you go to the checkout line at the grocery store, and they'll have those little magnets you can buy, those inspirational sayings. And there was one there when I was in college in Gainesville, the University of Florida, and it had a royal flush, and it said, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And that's one I want to talk to you all a little bit about is lucky. How do you get lucky? And so the L in lucky to me stands, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, stands for leveraging your assets. So what does that mean, leveraging your assets? Well, we're blind and visually impaired people, right? So, so there's challenges that come with that, but there's also opportunities. So I'm going to tell you my first job I got in a, in a corporate set, setting. I was 32 years old, got hired as an entry-level IT programmer, and I go to work that day, and before I go to work, as I'm going through the job interview process, they, this was at Westinghouse Electric, headquartered in service headquarters in Orlando, Florida, have over 4,000 employees, never hired a, hired a blind or visually impaired person before. It's 1989. They don't know what to do with me exactly, but I've got a, a 
boss who loved the way I interviewed, really wanted to give me a a shot. So before I start, I have to go talk to the CFO. His name was Art Vedner, because he wanted to meet me and see if I really would be able to cut it there at Westinghouse. So I met with Art, had a good conversation with him, met with a couple of his direct reports underneath him. So here I am, I've been at the company a day, and I've already met with the CFO of the organization. Now, I'm new, I'm rookie, I'm just getting started, so I don't think that much about it. Well, I was in a team of seven people, and so we're going through our orientation. It's the first week, we're in the cafeteria, all sitting there together, kind of intimidated, got our badges. Everywhere we go, it doesn't seem like it's the right place, but we're trying our best. And so we had four big floors, and up on the top floor, the fourth floor, was the C-suite where all the big CEOs, executive directors, all those folks, CFOs, all, 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 all lived in their nice headquarter offices. So we're having lunch, and all of a sudden, Art Vedner and, and the CEO come down and have lunch. And they're walking through the cafeteria, and everybody's kind of got their head down because they don't want to make too much contact, you know, eye contact with the CEO and the CFO. So Art Vedner walks straight up to me and says, Dan, how are you doing? How's your first week at Westinghouse? And everybody on my team looked at me and said, holy cow, how do you know the CFO? And I said, well, you all didn't meet the CFO? No, none of us. We, we don't know anything about the CFO. I said, well, when you're blind, you get to meet the CFO. Now, that's an opportunity, right? You could look at it as, you know, maybe it's a little more stressed than normal, but I looked at it as it was a networking opportunity. I had been there one week, and I had already met the chief financial officer and the CFO of the organization. That's pretty good. That's not bad. So you have to remember that as a blind person, you never know where, where life's going to take you, and you've got to use those opportunities. So I turned out I ended up with a 25-year career at Westinghouse that then bought, was bought by Siemens. Got promoted six or seven times during my career. But I always look for those opportunities. I had an opportunity uh, to join the Diversity Council when we kind of got to where we were putting diversity in, in our workplace. Guess what? What does every Diversity Council want? A good disabled person. Well, who's the one blind guy we got? Dan. Let's see if he wants to be on the Diversity Council, right? And so... Here I am, I'm now asked, my boss's boss's boss asked me if I'll be on the diversity council. Her name was Leanne Prosky. I said, sure, Leanne, I'd be happy to. So now I'm going to meetings with, with, with you know, upper-level managers. I'm meeting with the assistant uh, director of the, our HR department. And so, again, an opportunity by being blind, if you take it as an asset, not necessarily a liability, there are opportunities to get out there and network and develop relationships. So that always, you know, boded well for me through my career, uh, my, my public career. But, you know, you've got that personal career too, right? So you're also having to leverage your assets and your social, your social work circumstances. So Leslie and I, we used to go to our local sports bar. It was called the Vaney's Pub. It was right down the street from our house. We could walk to it. So we go in and we're, we're, we're trying to meet people. We've been you know, married just a few months, and we're going in, we're trying to make new friends in the Orlando area. So we go into Devaney's, and they're having a, you know, after a month or two, they advertise, the owner talks about, they're going to have a sports draft. And so they're going to have a baseball sports draft, fantasy, fantasy baseball. Any of y'all ever play fantasy sports, fantasy football, fantasy baseball? 
well, we're big sports fans, so we, we like fantasy sports, fantasy football, fantasy baseball, and all this stuff. And so we want to be, be in that draft. We want to be in the fantasy football draft. Well, the owner's like, well, I don't know. You know, you guys are you're blind. I don't know how that'll work out for you. You got to be able to, you know, you only have one minute to pick your player. And, and, and if you pick a wrong player, you get penalized. You have to buy everybody at the bar a drink. I'm like, oh my God, I could go broke, you know. But we're, I said, no, I really want to play. So, so he says, well, come Saturday and we'll see whether we fit you in. So Saturday comes, I come to the draft, I'm all prepared, I've done my homework, I'm a big sports fan, and I've kind of looked at the way the, the fantasy draft rules work, and I've figured out a loophole, I think, that'll give Leslie and I an advantage. And so I, draft gets ready to start, guess what, they, they, they don't have a spot for me. So I go home, I'm dejected, I'm feeling bad, I didn't get, a, didn't get an opportunity to participate in the baseball draft. But then the owner comes in the next day, he says, we're going to start a B league for some of you rookies who want to get started for the first time. So he puts another league together and we actually get to participate in the draft. Well, you got to come up with a name, right? So, so we're trying to, you know, come up with that name that kind of, that makes us, uh, you know, feel involved with the organization that kind of makes light of who we are, but, but, you know, have fun with it. So we name our fantasy baseball team, the blind bats, you know, it's baseball, you got the bats, you got the blind in there, it's blind bats. So that's the name of our fantasy baseball team. So we're, we're, we're happy. So we, the blind bats draft, we do a great job. I figure out this little loophole that relief pitchers, the way they got the scoring, the relief pitchers are, the, are the, going to be the best, best players to draft. So I draft John Smoltz from, from the Atlanta Braves, for any of you old baseball guys back in the 90s and 2000s. So uh, anyway, I draft two relief pitchers right at the beginning, and everybody's making fun of me. Oh, that blind guy, my God, he's not drafting hitters, he's not drafting Barry Bonds, he's not drafting all these great players, he's drafting relief pitchers. Well, these relief pitchers scored a ton of points. So what happened? By the eighth week of the season, the blind bats, you get points, there's 12 teams in the league. If you beat everybody that week, you're 11-0 and for that week. After eight weeks, the blind bats are 80-8. and we are 30 games ahead of anybody else in the league. So now they're paying attention to us. They're not feeling sorry for us as the blind couple that's coming into the sports bar. So now, 20 years later, we have been playing fantasy football and baseball with these guys for 20 years. They've become our friends. They're plumbers. They're electricians. They're woodworkers. They've helped us fix our bathrooms. They've helped us you know, put wood down on our floors. They put new sliding glass doors in on our, in our, in our back of our house. There are, they invite us over for Thanksgiving dinners and, and for social events. We, we're, we're part of the group. And so the other day, and guess what they call us now? They now call us the bats. So when they see us coming in the bar, they all, yeah, the bats are here. And, and so we get a new waitress in the other day. She's only been there for a few days. We walk in, everybody, hey, there's the bats, go bats, hi bats. And so we sit down, and the waitress comes up to us, and she starts apologizing. She said, I'm so sorry. That is so rude for the other people in here. I can't believe they're making fun of your disability. And I said, no, that, don't feel bad. That's a, that's, a, that's a sign of endearment. You know, we are the blind bats. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay, I feel a lot better now. So, so you never know where, where relationships and networking will take you. So, 
So, so leverage your assets. Second, the you and lucky is think about the umbrella of unexpected opportunities. Boy, that's a mouthful, right? But it's hard to come up with words that have you in it. So umbrella and unexpected, dude. So we're going with unexpected, uh, umbrella of unexpected opportunities. When I first got out of college, I couldn't get a job. I was blind. I'd got my MBA from the University of Florida. Nobody would hire me. So I opened up a pizza restaurant. I was 24 years old. My college roommate had, uh, had, his family was in the pizza business, Louis Nostro. That's a good Italian name. So he taught me and my friend Jerry Lingelbach, not a really good Italian name, Dan Spoon and Jerry Lingelbach, but we opened up a pizza place called DG's Pizza. And we uh, were talking about five-year plans and three-year plans and, and business plans. Our plan was to make enough money in three weeks to pay the rent. <laughs> That's... We, we, we did not have a lot of good business plans at that point in time. But boy, as an entrepreneur, we learned a ton. And for seven years, we, you know, we ran the pizza place. We made pizza. We made subs. Later on, we continued to change and modify. We, we put delivery in our, in our business where we were delivering pizzas to the local community. We had, uh, you know, we learned that it was a little community, so we sponsored the Little League team. We sponsored the Pop Warner football team. We offered the winning teams free pitchers of, of, of Coke if they came in and celebrated in our pizza restaurant after the game. So we re- really built up a very good clientele. And the other thing we did is we sold soft serve ice cream. It was, you ever had those, those Taylor soft serve ice cream machines? Some of you all might have them in your, in your facilities. I don't know. But we serve soft serve ice cream, and we first gave it away, you know, just because nobody it was unusual for a pizza place to have soft serve ice cream. So we kind of slowly built up the the ice cream business. And there were two young kids, Carl and Matt Swiggerath, and they loved ice cream. So we gave them ice cream. Then their mom came down. She started buying ice cream for the family every day. We'd make them four cups of ice cream. So I developed a really good relationship with Marianne Swiggerath. Well, Marianne ends up being the editor of the local community newspaper called the West Orange Times. So we continued this relationship for three or four years, and I said, Marianne, I've, I love sports. I'd like to write a sports column. She says, well, feel free. You know, why don't you go ahead and, and write a sports column? I can't pay you anything. I said, well, that's okay. I just, I want to, you know, I want to I wanna have a chance to write and get my name out there in the community besides doing the pizza business. And so she allowed me to start writing a monthly, a weekly column called The Front Row. So I wrote this column. Well, then the Orlando Magic come along. Orlando Magic is the first professional sports team to ever come to Orlando. And they're trying to really drum up support for the Orlando Magic. So they contact the mighty West Orange Times community paper and say, would you like a media credential for the West Orange Times? And Marianne called me and she said, Dan, would you like to represent the West Orange Times at the Orlando Magic Games? I said, most certainly. You know, I'm all fired up about the Orlando Magic coming to town. So I get my press credentials. I'm on the second row of the press row of the Orlando Magic Games, Orlando Magic Games between the Orlando Sentinel and the Florida Sunshine Network. And in between is the West Orange Times Weekly Community Paper. But there I am sitting on the second row. Well, the magic get good. Four years in, we draft Shaquille O'Neal. The next year, we draft Penny Hardaway. Six years into the team's existence, 
We are in the NBA Finals. We beat the Chicago Bulls in six games the year that Michael Jordan came back. The Magic actually beat him. And we're playing the NBA Finals uh, against the Houston Rockets. And there I am, you know, 29 years old, and I'm sitting on the second row of press row underneath the basket for the NBA Finals in the blind with my sunglasses on and my binoculars trying to see the game, cover the game. Somebody comes up to me and says, how in the world did you get here? I got here because I gave Marianne Swiggerath some free ice cream for her and her kids five years ago at my pizza restaurant. And that turned into being a press reporter for uh, Orlando Magic basketball games where I got to meet Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway and interview uh, Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan and all these cool people. And so you never know where life will take you if you take advantage of those networking opportunities. Um, the C in lucky is for community. And community is really what we're all about today. Joining organizations. There's so much more you can do as a collective as an organized group compared to what you can do as an individual. And so I had the opportunity when I was losing my eyesight, I had an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosis that gets worse as you get older. I was the president of our local chapter of the Foundation Fighting Blindness was associated with um, you know, retinitis pigmentosis, degenerative diseases. And so they had a program where they had a convention in Washington, D.C., where you could uh, they paid your way to go to the convention and represent your chapter. They had, a, they had a scholarship program. So I go to Washington, D.C., and I, meet, I go, on, go on a dinner cruise. And on that dinner cruise, just so happens, there were two sisters who flew in from Las Vegas. One happened to work here at the Golden Nugget. <laughs> so by chance, Leslie and I end up at a convention in Washington, D.C., on a dinner cruise down the Potomac River, two seats apart from each other. And Vicki Kennedy, that my folks from Hawaii would know, and her husband were the two people sitting in between us. So Leslie's sister says, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I would like to go to the restroom. So Vicki's husband takes her to the restroom, and I slide over and start talking to Leslie, and the music comes on, and they, she says, do you want to dance? And I said, I'm not much of a dancer. She said, well, it's the Macarena. You remember the Macarena? She said, I'll teach you how to do the Macarena. I said, well, as, as beautiful as you are, I'll, you can teach me to do anything. So I jumped up out on the dance floor, and we learned the Macarena. We did cross-country dating for, for one year after that, coming to Vegas and Orlando, and we end up getting married. We've been now married for 23 years. So... If I wasn't blind, if I didn't take the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and go through that networking opportunity, I would have never met my wife. So you can't tell me that being blind is all bad. There's a lot of good stuff about being blind, and one was meeting Leslie Spoon. So, so those chances are always out there for you if you can network, if you can do the best you can. So you've got L, you've got the, you've got, you've got, leveraging your, your abilities. You've got the umbrella of unusual expectations and opportunities. You've got the community role. And then the K in lucky for me is Key West kindness. 
Leslie and I go down to Key West a couple of times a year. We discovered Key West, Florida when we first got married in 1998. And we go down to the same bed and breakfast every year, a couple, couple of times a year. And what we've learned by going down there is, you know, we're two blind people trying to navigate a city by ourselves. But you can, it's amazing the networking opportunities that can come out of this. So we, we stay at the same bed and breakfast. It's called the Curry Mansion. And after several years of staying at the Curry Mansion, what do they do? They, they get to know us. We get to know them. We get to know the owners of the bed and breakfast. For the last 15 years now, they have provided three nights free stay at the Curry Mansion for us to auction at our ACB summer auction. I think Artis has been on it, Jeff's been on it, other people have been on it. But, um, you know, that uh, has turned out to a wonderful thing. And then, and then we meet so many wonderful couples down there. Uh, they're intrigued by us, two blind people hanging out in Key West, Florida. So we, we meet these couples, we, you know, we, they start out, it's funny, you know, you all probably go through this, but they'll have a table set up for us with our name on it at the patio at happy hour. And people will be a little worried. You know, we'll come out with our canes and our sunglasses and we sit down and everybody sits like a couple tables away from, you know, they don't know exactly really what to do with you. But, but over, you know, over a day or two, as you stay there and, and you, and you have conversations with them and they, and they say, Oh, well, gosh, you know, those are just normal people having a good time. And before you know it, they're, they're sitting next to you. They're asking if they, you know, if they can help you with the hors d'oeuvres. Can they help you pour a drink? Because it's open bar and hors d'oeuvres for, for the happy hour, so everybody's having a good time. Well, you know, by the time that's over, you've made fast friends. So we probably have names and numbers of at least 30 or 40 different couples we've met in Key West, Florida over the years. So when we have our ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk we, we ride out to these couples and, you know, let them know that we're going to do the walk again this year. I mean, I think last year we got over $1,000 in donations for our walk team from people we have met in Key West, Florida. And so it's amazing how that networking can pay off. And, and people get to know you. They get to understand you and respect you. We, you know, it's just the funny things that can happen to you. We went to a bar last time we were there. It was called the Bull and Whistle. And we like to dance a little bit, but as our vision's gotten really bad, we now take a cane and we hold it between our, you know, between our hands. And so then when we go out there and dance on the dance floor, we don't lose each other because I was dancing with women I shouldn't have been dancing with and getting myself in trouble and everything, you know? So, so now we kind of use the cane to kind of, you know, keep our bearings between us. So we're out there and we're, we're dancing and we're having a great time. And all of a sudden, La Bamba comes on. You ever heard that? Song? La, da, 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 la, la Bamba. I'm not very good at all my R's, but anyway. So La Bamba is playing, and we're out, there, we're out there with our cane dancing. Well, all of a sudden, the other people on the dance floor, they think it's like a, you know, a lump, a, 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 <laughs> excuse me. You know, they, they, they think it's like a, oh, okay, I'm forgetting the name, but the, you know, a lump. Limbo, that's it. Yeah, thank you. They think it's a limbo stick. So all of a sudden, this guy goes underneath our cane. Then the woman goes underneath our cane. Now all of a sudden, there's a whole line 
lining up on the dance floor to go underneath our king. By the time the song's over, the whole bar is limboing underneath Leslie and I's cane. Lower it, make it lower, make it lower. So we, we by the by the time the song's over, everybody in the bar, you know, is is you know, they started out worried about us. By the time the, the song's over, we're all fast friends with everybody. So you just never know what kind of relationships you're going to be able to make when you're out there in the community, when you're when you're relating to each other. So, so then we get an opportunity to go speak at their Lions Club. They say, oh, you know, we're Lions, and we really support blindness, and we don't have any blind members of our, of our Lions Club here in Key West, but you're, you're a frequent guest at the Curry Mansion, and we see you, and would you come speak at our Lions Club? So we went and spake, spoke 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 at the Lions Club, and we talked about accessible voting. I can't even speak anymore. Okay. We spoke about accessible voting. We talked about audio description. Uh, you know, they, the people in the, in the club were really excited about us being there. Uh, they checked, the judge that was part of the club checked to make sure the accessible voting for Monroe County was all in order. We had this really wonderful opportunity to advocate on behalf of blind and visually impaired people in Key West. Then they call us and they decide that last year they were going to go ahead and for, for October 15th for White Cane Safety Day, they made it the Dan and Leslie Spoon White Cane Safety Day in Key West, Florida. We don't even live there. We're just visitors. <laughs> so it is amazing the impact you can have if you, if you network and you, and you have kindness and you present yourself in a positive way. So you've got, you've got the L, which is, is awareness for, for leveraging your assets. You've got the umbrella of unexpected opportunities, which are always out there for all of us. You've got the ability for community support and independence. And you've got the opportunity for Key West kindness. But most of all, the, the why in Lucky is for each of you. You all have a chance to make a difference. You make a difference every day in your vending facilities. You're out there. You're in the public eye. You are showing the world what blind and visually impaired people can do. And so I challenge you, take that next step. Embrace change. Embrace the opportunity to grow your businesses, grow your relationships within your community, your church, your families. And we together can make the world a great place for blind and visually impaired people. To paraphrase what Bobby Kennedy once said, some people see things as they are and ask why. We, all of us, need to dream of things that never were and ask, why not? Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. That's a nice way to keep us awake after lunch. Thank you. (laughs) Now I'd like to... uh, our. Awards, our most valuable, precious thing that we like to do in RSVA. Uh, you have Herbert Rito, our awards chair, come on up and present the awards. All right, I have the 
It's afternoon, I believe. Huh? It's, uh, all right. RSVA awards, uh, two awards during this convention, and we do, do two more during the summer convention. But this year here, we have two for the, um, the George Arsenal Scholarship Award. And this one is presented to, um, get my little notes here, is presented, he's a vendor out of Tallahassee, Florida. He started the program in, 19, in 2017, running a little snack bar where he stayed there for two years. In, 19, in 2019, he left that location to acquire a downtown vending route in Tallahassee. He enjoyed playing drums. He enjoyed uh, uh, amateur sound engineer. His hobbies include uh, events like politics and reading and watching. He says SCI fire and woodworking. This year recipient of the George Arsenal Scholarship is presented to Carlton Knight from Tallahassee, Florida. I just want to say uh, thank you so much to the RSVA for this. Um, it's my first year out here, and uh, I really do believe in this organization and the future of it, and um, I'm glad to be a part of it, so thank you so much. Okay. We have another award here today. This award is the Charles Carroll Award. The Charles Carroll Award. This is award is, uh, I'm trying to leave the name out. That's why y'all watching y'all. Um, this award, uh, he entered the program in Florida in 1975 as a trainee. His first facility was in 1977. He left the program to pursue a broadcasting engineer a broadcast engineer eight years at the Florida Capitol, working with the Florida Public Broadcasting in covering the activity of the Florida legislature. He returned to the Florida RSA program in 2011, four years as a district representative for Florida 7th District in Tampa. Currently, he operates the rest area just outside of Tallahassee, the state capitol. Currently, he's the Randolph Shepherd vendor of the Florida leading for the uh, committee and 15-member team rebuilding the Florida SR, I mean RSVA chapter. This year, the winner of the Charles Carroll Advocate Award is presented to Mr. George Woody Matthews. Herbert was asking if he got that correct. The only thing I want to correct is uh, Jim Worth is our committee chair. I'm the president of the Randolph Shepherd Vendors of Florida. Um, we're in a rebuild, okay? I've got 15 of my 120 operators in the state uh, waiting for us to get back, let them know how things are going here. 
I am proud and honored to be part of Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America, and especially in this time of rebuild and moving towards the future in 2020. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Willie. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, we have two awards that we awarded last year, and the recipient was not there. So this, uh, we have the Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America, the Don Camry Award, presented to Scott Egan um, for his many years of advocate for locally and nationally for the Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America and Blind Awareness. This was Sagebrush National Training, July the 7th, 2019, in Rochester, New York. I didn't. I did not expect this today. <laughs> this is a bit of a surprise to me, but uh, you know the thanks. I, I just have to turn the thanks around to all of you. Um, thank you for allowing me to um, shine my little star, come here and help put this whole convention together. And it wouldn't happen without the great help of Dan and artists and all my convention committee. But uh, this is an honor, and uh, I thank you very much. All right. Okay. During that same year, we have a award, the Jennings Randolph Service Award is presented to Rick Martin for his many years on behalf of the Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America Sagebrush Conference 2007, I mean, July the 7th, 2019 in Rochester, New York. Is Rick in? Rick, Rick's the monitor in the radio next to <laughs> He's in the, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll take that to him personally. How are we going to do that? <clears throat> All right, this award is Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America Sagebrush BEP's Conference Special, uh, special Recognition. This is the You Select Randolph Shepherd, I mean, Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America Dealer's Charge Sponsorship, 39th Annual Sagebrush Conference, Golden Nuggets Hotel and Casino, Las Vegas, Nevada, February 10th through the 14th, in appreciation, Dan Sipple, President. This is what is presented to Robert. I don't have a name on it. This is for you selected this corporation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, Bob Dolbeck from You Selected is here to accept the word and give us a few words. Thank you, Bob. Thank, Thank you. you. I haven't done my job. I didn't even know my name. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm going to have to get, do a little better next year, oh, you know, yeah. so... I even have clothes on up here today, so, you know, so. But uh, maybe I ought to try something different. It might get attention or something, you know. But uh, I just, I wanted to take a couple minutes just to say thank you to all the operators, directors, and people that support us. Uh, we're proud to support you guys. We've, we've uh, been very successful with the blind operators through many states. Uh, we employ about 500 people at our factory. 
and uh, we appreciate the the patronage from you guys. It keeps everybody employed. So, so we look forward to keep working with you guys and and be here in the future. And we're always trying to build new equipment and make things easier for you guys. And uh, we really appreciate your support. Thank you very much. Th thank you, Bob. Thank you. We really appreciate uh, being here for us every year. And g give uh, Heidi and Jim and Chip uh, our special thanks. Um, you selected as a family-owned American business, and they've always been here for us. Um, just a little quick note. Um, a few years ago, I ordered um, one of the frozen machines and put it in a prison. And that real nice, cute little... Uh, a backlit decal on it of um, a little, little child uh, eating a popsicle. And being in a prison, the security got quite concerned about implication to inmates and whatever. Blah, blah. I called Heidi. Within hours, within hours, Heidi had that rectified in a new uh, insert for me in that machine to pacify the prison officials. So I, I'll never forget that. And along with the live, because I never would have thought of something like that. But Heidi just reacted very positively and took care of it. So thank, give Heidi my thanks, Bob. Okay. I think that should wind up. We, are, we have a raffle artist. I'd like to thank all of you for being here and making this a very memorable occasion. And thank you, Dan, an excellent, uh, uplifting presentation. We got $782 for the raffle. So if you don't want to win, you can leave the room. <laughs> and I'm going to let Dan Spoon choose the drawing. So... So you can't get mad at me. <laughs> okay. It's a deep pocket, so if you want to stir it up. Umbrella of unexpected opportunities right here. Okay, there you go. I'll take the you. Okay. Who wants to read this? Uh, can you read this? Four one five. Four one five are the last three digits. <laughs> Four one five are the last three numbers. Who won? Four one five. Someone forget their tickets. <laughs> Four one five. So did anybody win? Okay, who won? Scott Egan. Okay. He's having a good day. Ta-da!
Everybody, this is Rick Morin. Uh, you're listening to ACB Radio Live Event. I'm here with Jim Worth. How are you, Jim? I'm doing fantastic. Better by the minute. <laughs> are you uh, you enjoying your time down? Now, one thing I notice about you every year, when the week starts off and someone says, "Hey, Jim, how you doing?" Uh, you know, on with the uh, with the gambling, you're always up early in the week. That's true, <laughs> but but I, you know you know you're, you you seem like as the week goes on, you're not quite as uh, as excited about your winnings is, is is that a pattern or am i just dreaming Some, that? well sometimes sometimes you you may still be up a little bit but you <laughs> you might have thinking about to made some bad decisions <laughs> like not walking away when you should have that's the biggest there one. you go so where are you where are you this week this week i'm probably up a little bit i'm pretty happy because i was able to sh- i was able to play crafts for four hours without losing any money wow that's great that's great. Yeah, the old days, you know, I, I, I always played quarter slot machines, and you could go in. I'd, I'd go and drop in, a quarter in it. I, 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 yeah, and I'd go in with 100 bucks, and I'd play for, you know, 16 hours, right? And, and nowadays, man, $100, you can blow, blow through that stuff if you, you're lucky if you get two hours out of it. Well, you know, years ago, they started this business with the slot machines. You go to a penny slot, it, it costs you a quarter to play it. <laughs> <laughs> the penny slots, you know, there's a new casino back in Boston. I'm from Boston, and and uh, Steve Wynn, who's one of the big uh, uh, hotel operators down here, opened up a, a place in Boston called the Encore. And his penny machines, the max bet is $2.50. That's, these, that's these, not bad. These are penny machines, right? So you can imagine how many lines there are, you know, because, you know, depending upon the number of, of bets, you get all these different <laughs> lines that you can be watching. And it's like, my God, you get dizzy just looking at the thing, you know, just looking at it without even playing it. But, but anyway, so, so Jim, um, you, you've been coming to Sagebrush for at, at least as long as we've been here as ACB Radio, but this is, you've been doing this for quite a long time, right? I think I've been coming, I think this is my 15th year. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 what's your, tell me a little bit about your, about your story. I mean, how did you get into vending? What were you doing before, and, and, and how did you kind of uh, go through the various stages to get where you are today? And I may ask you some questions along the way as, as, as you that's, start talking. That's a very interesting story. I, when I, my very first job out of college, I, was, I actually worked for the vending program as a fiscal assistant, too, under Jack Bassett. Okay. That was a long time ago. A lot of you vendors in Florida might remember him. But back then, the, the, the program itself was more... Uh, I don't really know how to put it. The agency pretty much told the vendor what to do, and the vendor did it. Right. Uh, so I, I pursued. I, I, st- I went in another direction, and then thirty years later, my wife, my wife decided that she well, her, she needed another line of work where she could make good money. So I told her about the vending program, and she started the vending program. And then five years later, I guess five years after she did, I said I'm going to do the same thing because I didn't like the attitude of the people in the sided world I worked with so right I changed my attitude not theirs right. then, then I went then I clept I was the only I'm the only person in Florida ever clept every module for our, our training program back then they, they back then they tried this rule where if you're 
you can clip as, as all the modules as many as you want. Now you can only clip one, now, I believe. Now, I'm going to show my inner ignorance. What do you mean by clip? Clip means you go in there, you take the tests, and you're done. You don't have to go through the two weeks of school. Okay, gotcha. What gotcha. slowed me down on that part was that Steve Moss, the training guy down there, he had me. He says, I'm going to let you clip two a day. So I, it took me three days, but that's still the record. Wow. Wow. So, what was your first, um, your, your you know, your first vending job? I mean, oh, what? my first, I believe it was the Southwest Florida Water Management District. Okay, I think my wife had that, then I had it. Now, is it machines? Is it food? What it what that was a that was a snack that was a snack bar with about ten or twelve vending machines. Okay, okay. And you know, it, it, all these, the, well, the current, the, whatever operation you're in today, do you have a, a, a bunch of employees or, or what? Today, today, I'm down to between me and my wife, we have one full time and two part time and two part time employees. She has the post office in Tampa. I have a vending route in Tampa, which ha- which includes. I did the first micro micro market in Florida. Then I did. I just opened up one last year, and it's. In a building where I have my new storage for my vending route. Right. Very nice. Back right up to the door to unload. The people in the building are fantastic. Now, how does your, um, exactly, how does the micro market work? Well, I've been using micro markets for, for quite a long time. This one works pretty decent. The only problem I have with it is accessibility. My, I find out that being visually impaired, everybody has a different idea of what they think accessibility means. Right, exactly. To means it means my customer Scott could walk into my blind customer could walk into my micro market, look around, pick up what he wants, go over and pay for it, and leave that fast. Right. If it takes even any longer, then it's not accessible. Right. It's probably a very bad definition, but that's how I define accessibility. I, I, how many uh, how many items do you sell in your micro market? About six hundred. Six hundred. I have so, six hundred currently. So, what's your like your weekly take um, on on something like that? How much revenue are you making on a week? It, it depends on the size. It depends on the size of the micro market. Okay. When we put mine where it, where it is, we expected it to do like four. Between four and I think four and six thousand a month, and I think I might be able to surpass that in a couple of months. But wow. it's all about prop, you know. It's all about profit mix. You got to get the right the right food. We sell fresh food there. You got to get the right food in there. You got to talk to your customers. I mean, it's everybody. Some micro market to me is a self a self service convenience store. But my presence there makes my sales go up. Right now, do you do your own food prep, or do you buy stuff pre made, or what? We have a. Uh, we have a uh, reseller called Jordelli in, in uh, Clearwater that we use. He makes all of our sandwiches, boiled eggs, wraps, salads. Cool, cool. Now, you are the committee chair in uh, Florida, so ex- explain to everybody what exactly that entails. And, and how is it different in Florida than some of the other states? Well... How is it? It's all. Every state has their own pretty much set of rules that they follow. Their own, their agencies set up their own rules. Our state's a little bit different. That our our chair is always, as far as I know, is has always worked well with our agency and been able to get things done with the agency. The, the main job of of a of somebody who's a chairperson is to try to lead the committee and get the committee to do 
the tasks as assigned to them. So, you, like every, we have certain committees that are standing every time, like the grievance panel. These panels, some of these panels we appoint, some are elected by two thirds of the vendors. I believe our grievance panel they serve for life terms, and our selections panel is three, 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 three vendors that are doing rotating two year terms. Uh, we uh, we have a, we have a really good relationship with Bill and our agency down there. We we have issues, of course. Who doesn't? We're trying to we're trying to in the process of trying to redefine some things in our manual. Like for example, credit cards aren't in any manuals anywhere, as far as we could find. So the the committee is comprised of all vendors. Well, the 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 committee is is provide is it, we are, we're we are we are divided into ten ten regions and five districts, but okay. each each region, according to the RSA, your your committee is supposed to be made up of a certain percentage of the vendors that that committee serves. Right. In our state, we're supposed to have some somebody from snack bars. Yeah, somebody from each one of our things should be represented on our in our on our committee. Right. Our state is, in the last 10 years, we've converted a lot of stands into micro-markets. We've, we've, some of our uh, cafeterias and snack bars have been converted. So our food service side is, is going downsized while our vending is going up. Okay. So that means that the representatives on the, representatives on the committee tend to be more, more vending machine people than... Cafeteria and snack bar. Okay, now are, are you involved at all in the decision making around uh, converting from one form of, of um, a facility to another? Like these decisions to go from, what would you say, from um, uh, cafeteria or whatever to micro markets, as an example? Yeah, our our committee is involved in is involved in those in those kind of decisions, like. Is involved in that process, but not as much as uh, you know. We don't. We we. I don't think we ever disagreed on something like that. There's reasons for changing things from one location to another. There's might be a reason to put a micro market in there. The the food part of it may have went way down, and they want more than vending, for example. Then you got to put a micro market in there. Right. And I can give you another example. It's like we, if you have a vending route, and the agency decides to take your vending out of one building and put a micro market in, you're that vending route manager is going to have the first water refusal in our state. Okay. So it's it's the agency that's making this, these decisions about what the facilities, how the facilities operate, or what they what the form of them are. Well, the, well, I would say the agency makes the decision, but they bring it to the committee. They all our committee makes all the, uh, you know, our committee is pretty committed to being involved in that process but like let's say for example you're turning a mic he's going to bill wants to turn a micro market the agency into back into vending right there would be a reason for that he would say well theft was too high or the building wasn't the right fit for a micro market right and then the decision was made to do what is to do what they do to do what needs to be done how much of your time as committee chair uh involved with just mediating uh disputes How much of my time? I would say probably maybe five percent. Oh, okay. So it's not very much. So, no, because usually a lot of times some of the disputes are personal. You can get rid of them pretty quick, and sometimes you can just tell the person to call who they need to call to get something fixed. Right. 
Now, are, are you engaged in bringing new people into the program? Well, I would say yes, but I think every one of every vendor out there should be engaged in that process. Now, I can give you an example of that. Last week, I was at a place, me and my driver, Jack, decided to stop and have lunch at this place called Bracados because we love their Cuban sandwiches. Oh, and their fried mashed potatoes and their crab cakes. Great things. Fried mashed potatoes. That sounds great. So they make those a good, fried, Cuban, oh, good the, Cuban, huh? Yeah, but those fried mashed potatoes are awesome. But so what, we were what, si- what's the Cuban? Ham and sliced pork and pickles or something? Yeah, free pickles, actually. Yeah, free, free pickles, free ham, pickles. spiced pork. Yeah. Unlike Lola a, sauce, of course. Unlike a... Uh, Toasted piece of Cuban bread. Yeah, cool. Sounds good. Yum. Yeah, theirs they're, they're, are, are really good. So, so we, I was sitting there, and I, of course, I was on the phone. Jack was talking to people like I do. So I, he was talking to this blind guy with a with a with a guide dog. So uh, then he, he introduces me to him. He says, "This guy's going to the vending program." I'm like, "Well, we have a process that you have to go through to get in the program." And I'm the chairman, so I pretty much know who's coming through that pipeline. So I call the person in charge, Janet. I say, "Janet, do we have a guy named Chuck going through this thing anytime soon?" And she goes, "Chuck," she, she couldn't think of it. And she's Wait a minute, I could hear her flip through the computer a little bit. She said, oh, yeah, I talked to him a couple weeks ago. There, and he's in the process of getting ready to start our training. And I just ran into this guy at lunch. So was, Small world, huh? Yeah, so Small it, world. Wow. <clears throat> now, are there a lot of facilities? Is there still a lot of opportunity in Florida to, to grow? I, I mean, is it one of these cases where there's probably a lot more facilities that could have vendors than there are people that are interested in the program? I would say that more than like, there's a lot more opportunities out there. But as you said, the the problem is you have to have you have to have a vendor to fill every facility if you're, and sometimes that, that there's challenges there. Right. What's the keys to success? I mean, how how do you know that someone uh, is the right person to enter into the program? Well, you asked some tough, some tough questions, and. I can give you both sides of that coin too. No one would yeah, have ever, yeah, no one ever thought I was gonna, I would end up being a blind vendor because of my attitude back then. But there's a, there's a, you know, there's a older woman that I, I, that I was asked to mentor early in the pro, early in my career. I said, sure, I'll, I'll take her on. It, and I thought this woman was gonna fail, but guess what? She's a very good vendor. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, somebody might look like a good fit, and they might not, and they might be, and you might. Find that someone took got took took away from the program that was a really good fit, right? I, mean, I, 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 I judge the success of the vendor. To me, if the vendor's been in, it can, can stay in a Type One facility for twelve months, they're probably going to be successful. Like you said, Type One facility. Oh yeah, the lot of states have Type One and Type Two or so, temporary. And, so, so what are, what are they? Uh, type One facility is a facility that is uh, assigned to a vendor in perpetuity, which means that it's that vendor until that vendor. Vendor, something happens to that vendor, or that vendor gives it up. Gotcha. A type two, on the other hand, is a temporary LOFO, which that temporary LOFO has come out of a lot of reasons. The operator might get removed. Uh, we might have a, lo- a new location where we're trying to generate sales data for. Right. So we'll ask somebody in the area or, or someone who is, someone might be interested in moving out of the area, like a new vendor. Then, uh, they would take on that facility for maybe 12 months to determine what the sales are going to be there. And those are just time sensitive. That's pretty much the difference. Right, right. So you've been, in the, you've been doing this for how many years, you said? I think I've been a vendor for 15 years. I just got my 15-year plaque. 
I've been chair for three, involved with the committee, probably for all 15. Now, who, who gives you your plaque? Is that... <laughs> that comes... The agency gives us time of performance. They used to give these things every single year. Then somebody said, wait a minute, this, you could have a lot of plaques if you've been in the program for 45 or 50 years. So they decided that once every five years they'd give you a plaque. So every five years the agency gives you a plaque for time of service. Right. Now, d- does the agency monitor your, um, your performance, and, and how do they evaluate how, how you're doing. I mean, what what type of feedback? Or, or let me ask it differently. What, what type of services does the agency provide you at while you're operating your you know your your business? Well, they we pay in a set aside fund. We use that money to pay to pay for our own repairs. They provide us with new machines where we need, where they're needed, or new equipment if we need it. They will. Uh, they they send they have, they have a we have a monitoring system where they send out somebody to monitor you and that person's <coughs> name is John Aylard and he helps he will help you learn how to do things like set your prices in, in a different type of machine right or tell you that you maybe you're uh, paying a little too much for employees a little too much for cost to get sold to help you kind of shift your direction in a more profitable in a more profitable light right and of course they provide a. Uh, Services like put like getting make sure that the RSA gets in for them and all that. So that every year we have to, every year that report has to be submitted. They deal with all the all the uh, Department of Education stuff. They do the purchase orders. Actually, quite a bit. Now, do they? I mean, technology has changed a lot in the last last fifteen years, right? Yes, sir. So, so do they help you make these transitions to, to new technology? I mean, are you cashless in, in the stuff you do? A lot of our, our a lot of most of our vendors, I think, have, have uh, are cashless in a lot of places now. Yeah. They use they could take credit cards. Most of our vending machines. Yeah, it was, you know, when I first started, when we first started broadcasting these uh, these sage brushes, it seems to me like as recently as six or seven years ago, cashless was seemed to be new to in concept to some of the folks. Now, now it seems like it's a lot more uh, you know mainstream. But uh, I mean, is that basically something that's kind of changed you know in, in the recent past or what? Well, I don't think people thought credit cards were going to go anywhere, anywhere near where they have now. We, we who are me, speaking of me, a little bit older person, I use cash, but man, I have a lot of customers. They don't even know what cash is. They just wait their credit card or their phone in front of their stuff, buy it, and leave. And I honestly don't see how they have time to pay attention to the price. <laughs> what, when you're buying it with a credit card? Well, we had a vendor who honestly sold two bo- two boxes of peanuts for $104 a piece. <laughs> <laughs> Would he just have them priced up wrong in the machine? <laughs> Apparently. Wow. But I, 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 would like to, I would like to see the condition of the man who told his wife, I, I bought those two bags of peanuts. Oh, my God. My God. It's like, you know, well, I bought them at, at, at the ball game, you know. <laughs> Now, you're down in Clearwater, right? Is there still a lot of uh, spring training stuff happening down in Clearwater? Or they used to be the summer, yes, they, they used are. to be the home of the Red Sox at one time, I believe. Yeah, we, we, we have the Red Sox, we have the Blue Jays, we have the Yankees down there. Yeah, are, are you into a lot of that stuff? My wife watches more baseball than I, I do. But she, I guess she likes, she likes the Rays. 
Yeah. And when you go to, we do go to one game every year. We go to the Thrashers game. They have a great Fourth of July fireworks display. So we go to the Thrashers game every Fourth of July. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you got minor leagues down there too. Yes. Yeah. So you got both spring training and minor leagues, and you know, that's cool. So do you have any kids? Just two step kids. Now, are they? Do they engage at all in, in this stuff? No, no. My stepson's a fisherman. That's all he does is fish. That's cool. That's cool. Is it fresh water or salt water or what? None it's of salt water. Yeah, you know, Florida. It's probably it's salt, salt water. So there's not, not a whole lot of fresh water unless he's what uh, trying to rustle up some alligators, right? I think where he fishes, there probably are alligators. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, are, are you originally from Florida? I actually was from Indiana. My dad was in the service for twenty. Two years, we went, uh-huh. we traveled pretty much everywhere. We, we were in Ger- Germany, Puerto Rico, and England, I think. Yeah, geez. Uh, inter- so, were you real young when you lived in those various places? Very, very young. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the uh, international experience is great. I, my wife and I uh, actually lived in Europe for a while working, and uh, uh, just, you know, you can't replace that. I mean, it's... Uh, it's pretty special time. Do you, do you go back at all? Do you travel much? No, I, there's no time. Yeah. I wish there were. I, I, I would like to go to uh, London this summer, but I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Yeah. So uh, do you just run one facility yourself right now? In Florida, you can only have one type one, which I explained earlier, at a okay. time. Okay, gotcha. So you have to run one. You can run multiple type twos. Your type one has to be within 75 miles of your house. Your type two can be anywhere that they anywhere that is servicing the, the facility well. Did I answer the whole question? Did you answer the whole question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think so. Wait, wait, what advice do you have? I, I you know, the um, I mean, one of the things never ceases to amaze me are are uh, you know I, I do a lot of advocacy work in um, in the Boston area and, and it just seems like uh, there are a lot of folks that, that you think should gravitate into the program but for whatever reason just never um, uh, never connect with it or, or whatever I, I mean what advice do you give um, uh, some of these young folks that are you know uh, blind legally blind whatever trying to uh, get into a career I mean, um, now, now you said you, I mean, this whole vending thing came pretty late in your life, right? Yeah, yeah, it came it came very late. I could have done a lot better had I known about the program and understood it better a while ago. But the program itself has you know changed a lot over those years too. But my my advice to to, to anybody who's looking to have a career or wants to go to college you know check make sure you check all your options because sometimes an option of spending four extra years in school versus you know make, keep making good money in five years it's going to take you 20 years to retire from that corporation you're going to work for you might be a blind blind vendor till 90 but you'll probably retire at 85 right right what, what type of work did you do before you got into the vending program i, I was an accountant and a CFO for a couple of companies. <laughs> I, I never would have paid you as an accountant for some reason, but uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so, so you can relate. It, are you good buddies with Ted and QuickBooks and all that kind of stuff? It's funny because we, we had the. Th- I I knew I knew a lot about QuickBooks because not only was that when I was an accountant, I became a pro advisor, and I've never let my pro advisor status go away. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. So I get access to all the all the new stuff before it comes out, and all the access to all the old old stuff that I already you know that I've already gotten for years so if someone comes to me for the program that, that, with a file they can't open I could open it and charge them a hundred bucks <laughs> I love it I love it um, let's see what else I, I just I, I mean what do you want to talk about what uh, I, I, what how did you how did it come about that you became the committee chair I mean what what was the progression that led you to be the committee chair how, how were you chosen for that? I don't know. That, <laughs> I, that was pure luck, I believe. But the reason... It was one of these cases nobody else wanted to do it? <laughs> no, there, there was like 10 people who wanted the job. That's okay. one of the reasons I, I, I ran for the job. Okay. The problem with... What, there's certain positions in life that you take, this being one of them, that you have, to, you have to do the... You become the chair not for yourself, but for the vendors you have in your state. Your heart has to be with them. You have to be willing and you know, you have to be willing to do whatever you have to do if, if they're right on a, on a decision to make sure that they come out on the right side of it. So I, I feel when I looked out into the vast field of people that were running for chair, and I looked at myself and I said, well, I've got, it's a time in my life and I want to make some changes that are, they'll help more people. And this program can help a lot of people. If they learned, you know, that they're not, it's, it's not something you're going to get overnight. She uh, will say, "Well, you make you guys make seventy six thousand four hundred dollars a year, but you have to work to get there. Right. You're gonna have to invest the time, just like a big corporation. You have twenty years for retirement. In the five in five or six years, you should be able to make more than you would have gotten that first job with the corporation, and had, and spent four years less. Right. Wait, what's your work day like? Well, my, I would say mine's not a not mine's not a typical work day, but. I usually get up between five and six. First thing I have to, you know, when you get up, the morning, you have to check for emails, go through your, uh, make sure no spam is supposed to be good. Then you have to check your bank balances if you're a business person. So I go through all that, and then I, then I get ready to go to work. So I take a half hour, get ready to go to work. Then I go to work. I don't drive, so the advantage of that is, guess what? You can still work while your driver's driving. Right, right. So you get right. an extra three hours of work in. But I try, I do my best to get home by four o'clock so I can talk to my committee and, and vendors between four and whenever I decide, whenever my wife decides I need to come in and have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so what, when you're at your, um, your place of business, I mean, what, what, what type of activities are you doing? Well, I can, I, I can fill a sandwich. I, I, I have an employee that does most of the filling, like 90% of it. So I go out and check prices, and we discuss what stock we need to buy, or if we've had conversation with customers about different products that they want to see us bring in. Because every couple of weeks, my, me and my wife do a Vista order, and if I'm going to get something new, I try to get it when, she's, when she can order it, because she can maneuver that side of light better than me. Right, right. How many customers? I mean, you must have a lot of repeat customers, right? You're a lot. I would say about seventy-five percent of our our people are repeat customers in, in that micro market. With the uh, with the exception of 
I think we do. They do a lot of training in there. So I think 25% of it goes to trainees that just come in and out. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of credit card cards there versus account transactions. Right. Now, are, is the micro market uh, only open certain hours, or is it? I mean, I, I don't know. This facility. Oh, 24, and this one is 24-7. I think most micro-markers are 24-7. Okay, cool. Uh, I mean, is, is the facility it's in open 24-7? Yeah, it's open to the employees. Employees are state employees. They work. Gen, they work. They generally arrive there from like 7, I guess, to 7 at night. But they, they have other other things going on in the buildings. That line is mine's open, open most of the day. Yeah, but what uh, do you have much of a problem with pilferage or anything? My 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 market seems to be very low in that. I think some people thought it would be an issue because they, it has a high turnover rate. But there's I haven't, I haven't had any issues there. I even have, I even have customers that walk away, come back and say, yeah, they forgot to pay for something. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I mean, how do you, how do you you know how do you monitor that? We have six cameras in there, and, and most kiosks, no matter who you're using, I'm using Parallel, but they have pictures in the cameras inside, built inside the kiosk that take your that takes the pictures of the. Of okay, the gotcha. gotcha. And actually, they came, they come in pretty handy because I had a customer say lost five dollars. You know, everybody lost five dollars, but. The thing is, I was able to go through Parlow and find out that they don't, the, the customer did everything he said he did, and the machine didn't do what it was supposed to do. Yeah. So, cameras are, sometimes cameras are good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. That's great. So, uh, what else do you think is important that people ought to know? Well, I think I, I think the one of the things they like I said the, to me the most important thing is they understand that it's it's just like any job it's it's going to be work it's going to be good there's going to be going to be bad days but you if you want to own your own business be your own boss charter your own path this program can help you do that we and we have we have one of our vendors in our state who's a world renowned golf blind golf golfer he golfs apparently all over the world and I never knew he left his facility <laughs> wow wow. What's his name? Because I, I think I, I something I've, I've run across the name of a blind. Oh, his name is Phil Hubbard. Yeah, Phil Hubbard is the uh, golf. Uh, he uh, he's the uh, he's the head of the golf blind golf league in our state. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So if 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 I were to move move to Florida and and I I decide that hey I want to to figure out if I can get into the program, what what process would I go through to? Uh, to find out if there's any opportunities available, you have to go through your. You have to sign up for for VR services. Go through VR services, and then go through the process of being accepted into the program, which is a. It's an application process and a couple of interviews you go through. No one's ever not accepted into our program, right? But this process is for you and for the agency and for us because it'll see. We'll, you'll answer a bunch of questions, and you'll you'll be able to figure out if you're a good fit for us, and we're a good fit for you. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. It's almost like one of these things you used to take when you're younger, um, kind of a not not really an aptitude test, but the what do they call those things when you you'd, oh. you'd fill it out and they they would IQ test. 
Yeah, I, IQ tests, but you'd also uh, cooter preference tests. Yeah, so they, I remember those too. Where you'd fill those out and they'd say, okay, you're going to be a trashman uh, or, or, or you're going to be know, an astronaut. I was or, blind back then and they told me I was going to be an Air Force officer. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. Now, have you, you've been blind all your life? Yes. What? what uh, you've got some vision, right? I have a 100% lack of color cones in my eyes. So I see everything looking at a little black, old-fashioned black-and-white TV, and apparently that only gives you a maximum of 22 over 200. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, and, and it's been the same all your life? All my life. Well, at first, apparently, my, according to my mother, at first they just thought maybe I was slow. But then, right. then my mom said she knew it wasn't that, so she said he must be blind. <laughs> apparently she should have been a doctor. Yeah. Now, now, did you uh, were you mainstreamed in school or or, or what? Oh, my dad was in the Air Force, so for, for the majority of my of my elementary school years, I went to Georgia Academy for the Blind, and then we my dad retired. We moved to Florida. Then I I was I went into the into the uh, public school system. Yeah, cool, cool. And uh, did you go to college? Yeah, I went to Florida State University, and I went to Tampa College to get my master's degree. Oh, what did you get your master's on? Uh, accounting. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, when I, when I, I learned that I was very young and I learned if somebody's going to pay someone just to balance their checkbook, that's a good job. Yeah, but when, uh, what, what year did you graduate college? I'm just trying to figure out how old you are in, compared to me. <laughs> 1984. 84. Okay, you're a little bit younger than I am. I'm a, I, I, you know, I, I'm a business major. I was a management major. And of course, I took a lot of accounting classes. And those damn T accounts would drive me crazy. Could could never figure out for the longest time what a friggin' credit credit and debit was. And, and uh, well, luckily, luckily for, for for accountants, most people can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but one day it all made sense. You know, it was like one of these things. I woke up one day and it, it literally all made sense all of a sudden. And uh, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. Do you do you use QuickBooks in your business? I use I use QuickBooks. I have for many 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 years, and I'm a pro advisor. I do recommend the product. I understand it's not 100% accessible. I heard about a, pageant, a, a product from Australia called Cash Manager that is, but I haven't talked to anybody who's actually used it. Right, right. Well, Jim, unless you have anything else, I'm 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 pretty pretty set on my side. Um, I, I, what? Uh, how does this sagebrush stand out compared to other ones you've been to? I mean, what, what have you? What are you taking away? From this one, that uh, you know, it has been a, a good piece of learning compared to some of the other ones you've been to. I would say that I come here mostly for the company. To be honest, I pay attention to everything. What I what I've learned mostly about the last couple of years has been about this automation, this credit card things, and how it's getting more and more and more. Like I, I have an account that has I think sixty to eighty percent of their car are their of their sales every week are. Our cash sale, our credit card sales, and it's going up. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, it's it's funny. I was I was in rehab recently. I broke my ankle last year, and I was in a rehab facility for two weeks. And I finally found out that at the end of the hall, where I could take my wheelchair, go down the end of the hall, there was a, a vending machine, and I had no cash, but it took credit cards. And uh, and it was funny. I, I when I came out of rehab, I'm looking at my bank statement. I'm seeing all these 
charges. They have no idea what they were. And I finally said, oh, those are all, those are all my Diet Cokes and my Snickers bars. <laughs> Diet Coke and a Snicker bar, yeah. <laughs> and, and everything else, you know. And uh, But, yeah, once you uh, – the one thing that I, that I hate, you know, it always drives me crazy being a visually impaired person, is I can never see the numbers, you know, uh, to be able to punch them in. To, to know what I get, but 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 I've come up with you know what I do is I figure out is it a like a, a three digit number pad or is it like, and a letter and a number and a, and I'll just start counting down. So that, that must be row one, and the first line, first item must be zero, right? And I'll start trying to figure stuff out that way, and you know, and I'm yeah. usually usually pretty successful with it. So. You're going to get something for your money at least. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Every now and then I'll get these, I'll get oil and vinegar potato chips, which I absolutely hate, you know, but, uh, <laughs> or vinegar and salt potato chips. But, but it, it, you know, now it, the uh, one thing I haven't heard a whole lot about the last couple of years has been all this healthy food stuff. Um, uh, has that been a major influence in the stuff you're doing? Yeah, the, the funny thing about healthy food stuff is you got to put all the healthy food stuff, and the first thing it's going to go is the Snickers, Newman, and Peanuts. But we we have tried to we we offer more nut like nut and fruit and nut and chocolate products, sweet and salty products. Right. We have single servings single serving units instead of you know the double size that helps with calories. Right. Right. We have. I would say I would say I try to keep my my machine twenty to twenty five percent on the nuts and fruits and stuff that's not, you know, like really bad for you with lots of sugar. Right, right, cool. Okay, how's the exhibit halt this year? Oh, uh, you know, I I have a blast in there every year. Every year for this will make the fourth year in a row, I think. The young lady from Frito Lay over there promises she's going to send me a sample of all these crackers. Well, every year, I wait and I wait and I wait. And next year, I go to Sagebrush. And every year, she says, "I you didn't get it again this year, did you?" So this year, I'm going to send her my wife's email address. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, the PepsiCo folks. Uh, they, they, I always like to hear them talk because uh, they must have a lot of good good stuff in there too, right? Oh, it's, they, they introduced me to this new thing called Game Fuel Zero. Uh, that's when we, that's going to be an iffy product. If I keep it in my market, I might I might drink too much of it myself. <laughs> that's the stuff he was saying was made for gamers, right? Yes. So it's a sixteen ounce can with a with a resealable, resealable top top, and that is the coolest top. <laughs> so it must look like a little Pringles container or something. No, it's not right? plastic. It's a plastic like flip thing. Oh, okay. You have to see it. You press the little button, and it flips up. Oh, cool, 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 cool. This is the radio we'd show you on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Jim, thanks for coming. Well, I appreciate it. Okay. Our, uh, our first, um, first thing on the agenda this afternoon is a computer roundtable uh, round for entrepreneurs. And we'd like to hear from the audience and learn what systems and software um, you are using and why you like it. And also how you keep your computer up and running. If you have good uh, spyware and virus software, what type you use and how accessible it is so that others can learn from you. 
positives and negatives of what you use for like PC or Mac if you like one or the other and tell us why you like it and if other people should try it. Okay, I'll jump into the fray and say I use a Mac and um, all I can say is I don't really think about uh, viruses or any of the uh, malware or any of that stuff anymore, but that's just me. Anybody else want to tell us what kind of computer they have? Okay, I am using PC since I started way back when. Uh, with XP, I always have a problem of virus infection, and it's been a pain. Then I moved to Windows 7, now with Windows 10, and I have Norton antivirus. I believe it's working fine, but whenever I scan the computer, the result is inaccessible. I don't know what happened. Did it get a virus? Did it fix it? Did it? It's not accessible. And I talked to Freedom Scientific. They don't know how to fix it. They. Um, I don't know if uh, Microsoft should talk to Norton or Symantec or vice versa. So that's my experience. So far, I think I'm not infected. Thank you. Anybody else want to tell us what kind of computer system or maybe what kind of screen reader you're using? That's an important tool for people. I heard the word JAWS. Does everybody use JAWS or is somebody using something different? Um, I have NVDA on my computer. I have um, Window Eyes and I have JAWS. And I have two computers. On my other computer, I have System Access. But I have noticed that since I downloaded Windows 10, I can only use Windows Eyes with my Office uh, 7 products. It doesn't work with email anymore since I downloaded Windows 10. So since they're not upgrading Windows Eyes anymore, it doesn't work very well with uh, Windows 10. The... Um, um, so I've found JAWS and NVDA work fairly well, but the biggest problem I've had is since I just recently downloaded Windows 10, it doesn't work as well as when I had Windows 7 because all my office stuff is 7. And I've been told that if I download 365, then it'll work better. Um, so I have 365 on one computer but I haven't downloaded to the other computer. I want to make sure I can use it first. <laughs> so I'd like to know if people have 365, if they're using it, uh, how it works for them. Uh, <clears throat> this is Ted from Intuit, and I, I have a question. We're in the process of researching dark mode and inverted colors slash high contrast mode. And I'm curious from people in the room if you use dark mode, or if you use inverse colors, and if you use inverse colors, do you have special color palettes? There it is. So JAWS and uh, Microsoft Outlook, Windows 10. When you run Outlook in Windows 10 and JAWS, it kicks you out. Boom. 
you want to read your mail, you want to write an email, can't do it. So what I do, I, I run a narrator on Microsoft Windows 10, and then I turn off JAWS, and then I can use Outlook. I can read emails, I can write emails, so I can use Outlook. But JAWS and Outlook, they don't, they don't like each other. And after I've done my email, I turn off, out, uh, I turn off Narrator and go back to JAWS. So I was able to run Outlook. I, I have read my email. So maybe it can help. Well, I can uh, read email in Outlook. The only problem is I can't get at the links. So I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on a couple other networking things. And at the links, I can't get the JAWS to find the links to click on, whereas I used to be able to when I had Windows 7. I used to be able to do that with Window Eyes. I could click on the links, but now I can't anymore. Um, so somebody told me if I download... Office 365, it would work better. So, but I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody that has done that, whether it works or not. Uh, and Ted, I don't know if... Did you all hear his question about the... the for reading for those who are low vision? Reversing the colors, yeah. Reversing the colors. Any of you used that? Yeah, I don't think we have any users of that. I know when I took over my three square account, the former operator used it and uh, he would flip it backwards. And I took one look at it and I said, I've got to put it back the other way. I couldn't, I couldn't do very well with it. So, there you go, sir. so to Artis's question, um, I've had a pretty easy time with Microsoft 365. Occasionally, There'll be a command that I don't know how, what the new command is in the Windows 10, you know, atmosphere, and I have to call or whatever. But in terms of the computer running right, um, it runs great. Like I had to get used to Google Chrome, which I wasn't used to before because no, no IE anymore. And you know, I've had to get used to some of the ribbon commands that I used to use I can't use anymore. But in terms of things running well, I, I, it's been great, and I would highly recommend downloading Microsoft 365. And forget window eyes. There's just that's just a, the dodo bird has taken window eyes away. <laughs> and my wife hates it. She's talking to that over here, but. Was there somebody back here who had a comment? Can you get uh, can you click on links on uh, email, uh, Jeff? He says yes. Well, if it's a straight email like one that I send out that has a link, I can click on those kind of links. But I'm talking about some of these you get from like LinkedIn and some of them uh, and Facebook. I can't always get at those links. Am I the only one who's using Mac in their business? Anybody else using a Mac? Anybody else use a Mac besides Scott? Yep. 
I do incorporate that too. Does anyone use iPhone only for computer stuff? I think I hear, heard a yes back there. Yep. How does an iPhone work for files and stuff? I mean... Uh, for files and things, you know, the iPhone has uh, multiple things you can use for files. Um, I have many apps on my phone because I use my phone. My phone is my business. Everything done in my business is on my phone. Um, you know, notes, you can create files in notes. You can, there's the scanner apps that I have that you can create lots of files. And as far as storing files, it's stored pretty much right onto any of the apps that you use for any of the, you know, any of the uh, systems for Excel, Word, it's all saved right there on the cloud. How about iPads? Has anyone incorporated iPads into their system besides an iPhone? Or your favorite app to use for business things on your iPhone or iPad? Anybody have any comments on something they use that they like? Can you, uh, do you have trouble opening um, like Excel files and stuff like that on your iPhone? No. Oh, you don't open them? Or you... No, I, I don't actually have any problem opening any of the files. Um, Word files, Excel files, they all, all open fine. Um, even with even phone, I am using um, you know, 365, Microsoft 365 on the iPhone, and it works just fine. Interesting. Okay. I've had the same experience. I use uh, 365 on my iPhone, iPad. It all works excellently. And on my Mac. My iMac, it's amazing. Um, it's a little bit different in how some of the functions are, but once you catch on to that, it works as well, if not a little better, than PC. What kind of spyware and virus protection do you guys use? It's basically what's built into the phone. I, I've never actually had trouble with any viruses or anything like that. It's any, everything that's on the iPhone and even on the Mac uh, system itself is, you know, it seems to be really good. I've never had uh, any viruses with any of the Macs that I've used, even my iPhone. And all I can say to that is thank you for the closed system. <laughs> <laughs> People use, complain about a closed system on, a, on an iPhone, but I tell you, uh, it keeps a lot of those unfriendly creatures away. I use Malwarebytes on mine, and I've not had any problem. But then I don't click on anything I don't recognize. So, <laughs> Anybody else have anything they want to share about malware software or antivirus software? Does anybody use, um, oh, I'm trying to think of what the Microsoft one is. Norton Antivirus. Norton, okay. Anything else you'd like to share about what you do with your computer? Or if you have any good tips for us. Are there days you want to use your computer as a boat anchor? I just reminded myself that uh, there was one thing that when... Um, Kirk Johnson was up here. He asked me to share with everyone. And uh, if anybody's curious, he gave me this website that people can check out. It's 32MNOW, 32MNOW.com. 
and he said there's a list of all their equipment and uh, new things coming out that you can check out online. So I wanted to be sure to share that. Sorry, I didn't know I have to take the train to go to the front. Anyway, is there an audio file in the room? No? Okay. Uh, I have an iPhone, and as you know, the iPhone, well, mine is 8, there's 10, now it's 11, and it doesn't have the headphone jack. I'm using a Dragonfly uh, DAC. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a digital analog converter. What it has is a USB, and the USB can be connected to the iPhone, but you have to buy a gadget. One end is lightning port, uh, lightning connector. The other end is a USB female, and you can connect your uh, Dragonfly AudioQuest DAC, and that's where you connect your uh, headphone. It sounds great. And the DAC is not the only thing that you can connect to your iPhone. You can connect your, uh, if you have uh, uh, SD card or USB uh, drive using files on your iPhone, you can read the files on your SD card or micro SD card or whatever memory card you have. So there you go. iPhone and your SD card. Thank you. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that uh, is an interesting new twist to things, too, that uh, you can now add a memory stick to your iPad or your iPhone. Our committee roundtable. Uh, yes, let, uh, is anyone here from either the uh, SLA or uh, the vendors that would like to share what happened in their roundtables? This is Jim, the committee chair from uh, Florida. Our discussion was about QuickBooks. Unfortunately, the, most of the people in the room, I think I was the only one that actually uses QuickBooks, and I use QuickBooks Enterprises, which is the top tier. It's supposed to be for big corporations. I'm not a big corporation, but it works great for me. Uh, what came out of the thing, I think for the most part, was that most of the people that are, were in the room use Excel. As, as their primary tool. I know a lot of our operators in Florida use Excel spreadsheets that were designed quite a while ago, and then they're updated. Uh, that's pretty much what we discussed, and we discussed some other things like active participation and what some of our states are doing. And I don't think anything, does anybody else in here remember anything else that I missed? Ted, the QuickBook guy? Uh, I was in a guy oh, the other guy was in it. Well, he contributed, quite, he contributed quite a bit and told me a few things that I've, I can do with my enterprise program. But QuickBooks will produce about any report you can do, even the online version, as long as you know how to use it and are willing to take the time. I've been using QuickBooks for years since the very first version came out. 
it's, a, it's getting more and more accessible all the time. But as I tell the people in Florida, since I have some vision, I have no idea if something's accessible to a blind person. I have to reach out and ask one of our members who are blind to either take the time to download something and try it or how they feel about different machines that are accessible and not accessible. Anybody have any questions? No questions at all. See, artists, I'm that good. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions, you can ask the QuickBooks people. And if you, they, they, they can't help you, ask me. I might be able to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the RSVA roundtable, um, we had a few folks, and we, we mostly talked about um, how people could advocate more and get more people involved in the program. <clears throat> and how we need to get more people involved in the organization. Sorry, I needed a <clears throat> drink of water. <laughs> um, what, what did you want me to talk about, Jim? I wasn't clear. Oh, um, well, just talking about how to get more people involved in uh, um, RSVA and how to get um, more people interested. And things we were talking about is trying to get um, more people onto committees, and the people that were there all said that they thought that would be a good idea to try to encourage more people to get on the committees. And a couple of the people there said that they would like to be on a couple of the committees. And that's that's a good question to ask any of you. If you think you would like to get more involved, it would be good. We need more people on all of our committees. And the Sagebrush Committee, if any of you are interested, bringing your ideas forward and helping us to find speakers and helping us to come up with think ways that we can improve, we always appreciate that. Same with summer convention. The convention this summer is going to be in Schaumburg, Illinois, which is right by Chicago. So anyone that would like to help us come up with ideas for our summer program, we're always interested in getting more people involved. And we've got, and we've got a, uh, several committees and anything from membership, fundraising, um, publications, public relations. Uh, we've got a whole list of committees that if any of those topics spur your interest, please come up and talk to us. We'd love to have more participation. And the more new people we get involved, the better off we are. Because, you know, some of us aren't going to be around forever, and it's always good to have new people involved. So that was kind of about the big hot topic we had on the um, breakout for um, Randolph Shepard and advocacy, is that we do need to have more people advocating, not only for the Randolph Shepard program, but also for RSVA. I got to turn it off so I can talk. Sorry. Um, I'm a chairperson for Idaho and Tricia Hout. And I had to step out of the room because one of the blind vendors just called me and he applied to do the Outlook, uh, the QuickBooks program. And when he got to the Eastern College of Idaho and was getting ready to take his class and they set him up with a computer and it was not accessible. 
So he had to actually drop out of that class. So I think that's something that we need to work on if we're gonna, they're gonna offer QuickBooks courses that the computers are accessible for visually impaired and blind individuals. So um, at this point in time, he's not an open case for VR because he is in the BEP program. So do you have any suggestions for him that I can take back and give him this information because he really would like to learn QuickBooks. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know about that. Um, we've been working with uh, My Blind Spot, which is an organization, and they've been working with rehab facilities. So if they're teaching QuickBooks desktop, we do need to make sure that the uh, computer has JAWS, and there are scripts that were made specifically for JAWS. Um, so the, the best thing for the rehab facilities is to reach out to my blind spot to make sure that they have the correct setup. If they're doing QuickBooks Online, um, that would not require scripting, but I have a feeling that they're probably using QuickBooks Desktop. Well, I can ask a computer question since we're on the computer questions. I'm standing next to Ted. I'm going to ask a question here. Ted, how... Um, how much does, is there a variable between using QuickBooks on a PC and a Mac? Is it pretty similar? If you're using QuickBooks Desktop, the difference between Mac and PC is completely different. I haven't really talked much about the Mac, but there is a QuickBooks Desktop for Mac. Um, is it good, did you say? Oh, Yeah, so you're saying that QuickBooks for the Mac costs more um, than QuickBooks Desktop. I haven't really followed that product too much. To be honest, we, we, we put it on life support system about four years ago, and then last year we decided to make it new again. <laughs> so that's why. <laughs> um, but when it comes to using QuickBooks online, uh, it shouldn't make a difference between Mac and, and PC. I will say that if you use a screen reader... There is a desktop, QuickBooks Online for desktop, which essentially takes QuickBooks Online and puts it on your desktop. I've heard from some screen reader users that there are some conflicts with keyboard shortcuts, that the, the product itself uses some of the keyboard shortcuts the same as screen readers. Um, but if you're not a screen reader user, uh, that's beneficial because you don't have to keep logging in. And it gives you the menu bar that's associated with a, a desktop product. Oh, you have a question back here? Okay. <laughs> oh, good. Here comes this microphone. Once again, I'm not, I, I don't use a screen reader, but I have friends that use screen readers, and from what I understand from them, you could actually change the shortcuts on the screen readers. I don't think you can on QuickBooks. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's what I've been told. No, I would say that that makes a lot of sense, that... Screen readers are much more flexible, and everybody configures them differently, whereas QuickBooks has a set keyboard shortcut options, and as a user, you can't change those. But we are looking into how we can make keyboard shortcuts customizable. You know, I, I, while I have the microphone, I always like to add a little bit. Um, if you use Chrome as your main browser, you might want to look at some alternate browsers for Chrome, and those browsers being Brave, and Vivaldi, now, <clears throat> or Opera. The thing that's different about them is that they block cookies, they block tracking, they're much more secure, they're much more private. 
And because they also shut down third-party advertising, your pages are going to load faster. Um, but it's still a Chrome browser, so it still has all the Chrome benefits. But Brave and Vivaldi and Opera are three very secure, very fast browsers. Which I think Brave is available for the uh, iPhone as well. So is it just brave.com? He's going to look it up right now. And the other one, too. Uh, let us know what the website is. Yeah. I know I still have a problem with Chrome on some sites. I have to end up going IE because um, there are some websites that just aren't accessible with Chrome. It is brave.com. It is brave.com. Oh, okay. I'll have to try that. Yeah. I, I didn't notice a huge difference on my iPhone, but that's the only place I have tried it. So, As the director of the Business Enterprise Program in South Carolina, we're trying to uh, make sure that our monthly reporting by the, by the blind vendors is you know, monitored for accuracy. And uh, I was wondering what, uh, besides the databases, that some of the other states are using to, to, uh, to make sure that the reporting is as accurate as possible. How, I, I'm curious, how do you monitor it? We're using Libra. We're using the Libra system now, where the, uh, the blind, blind vendors turn in monthly reports and, uh, the, to the counselors. The counselors input the information in Libra. Uh, and aside from maybe doing uh, periodic audits, I was just wondering if anybody else, you know, had any, uh, any other input on what they were doing in the other states. In, in Wisconsin, it's, uh, regardless, it's pretty much manually monitor. Um, and there's uh, a very brief review of the monthly reports, but um, really nothing uh, that's very cursive. It's, uh, and that's why you're probably going to be looking at QuickBooks uh, for everyone, but we have a couple that have certain concerns about computer usage, and hopefully we'll get that resolved. Uh, I think you know, we still have several that are handwriting their reports in, and, you know, it's a delicate situation to deal with. How do other states monitor uh, the reports, or do other states monitor the reports, or just take the reports as is without monitoring? Okay, who's, who's got their hand up? I was trying to avoid this one, but... Hey, watch, um, cook data is cook data, bottom line. Um, and we all know that some of that goes on. So uh, we get a modified P&L, and I was actually talking to Ted yes, uh, yesterday about our state and how we can help get QuickBooks and do some training of our folks to begin setting themselves up for the future. So that's the future. Um, we will probably end up ultimately paying the cost to assist them because the bookkeepers are bookkeepers you know they only do what they're told to do with what data they get 
So all that we require is a simplified P&L, which is sales, less the sales tax, payroll tax, and those things that we ultimately will roll up into the RSA. And um, I get that information, I monitor it, I check it for cost. It gives me a point of reference when I go out to the business and I ask the vendor, what's today's sales? And they say, what's your labor cost today? And then if the percentage is off by 10% and I'm looking at his P&L, then I know something's going on. Um, if they, so we give them categorically about 12 different items that are legitimate tax deductions that we all know are legitimate, office, et cetera. But when I see exorbitant Uber, Uber transfer fees, um, you know, exorbitant uniforms, I know that things are out of whack. Some people try to write off their personal driver. That doesn't fit. Um, that kind of stuff. But again, it's coaching. Um, it's, it's a work in progress. Well, in Florida, we, uh, we feel like we've really tightened down on the accuracy of the reports, which is our responsibility as a state licensing agency. We, we are really uh, responsible to make sure that the reports are accurate. The reports that we submit to Washington, D.C. every year, um, we're, we're certifying that they are accurate in uh, that. Years ago when we had questions as far as whether they were re- vendors would be reporting accurately, if we had serious questions, we might do machine readings over a period of time to verify that. But now with the advances in technology, it really is easy. Uh, most all of our vending machines have card readers on them. And uh, when our vendors submit their monthly reports and they're all submitted electronically, uh, we can pull up a spreadsheet of what their sales are and uh, by, by drink, by snack. And if they're out of line, uh, we, we can ask the vendor to give us a copy of their USA Technology roll-up report uh, where we can uh, verify that. And they're not going to match up exactly. depends upon you know, when you uh, set your, your time frame. But usually they're pretty close. So by using the USA Technology roll-up reports, and, and normally we, we have the ability to go in there and look at them, but we don't without the vendor's permission. We'll usually just ask them if they'll send us a roll-up report or if they want to let us go in and, and see if we can find out what the issues might be. We can do that. But the accuracy uh, has really improved tr- dramatically where we can back it up. We can show how much is being sold on each machine and what they're reporting to us, and they're, they're lining up very closely. So uh, that advancement in technology is also helping us tremendously in verifying the accuracy of the vendor's reports. That's good. We like questions. I have a que- I have a question for so, like uh, he was Alan was saying in our state we do we, we, we do monitoring. I think what, every two years I've I've seen him every two years, but the guy that goes out John and does the monitoring is not there just to verify the expenses. He actually spends time with the operators who don't know how to change prices or might not understand something, and he actually directs them. And I, I have never heard a complaint from a vendor about about their mon- our, our monitoring process. So it is a good process for any state to, to, to in- go out and try. It works good for us, I think. Thank you. Oh, we have somebody else wants? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Bryn's got to do something, right? Thanks for bringing that up, Jim, because that's 90% of what I do. I'm in the, my program specialist and I are in the field every day, and we're working with one of our vendors. Granted, uh, Washington only has 16 vendors and 21 locations, seven of which are located in Olympia on the state property, so we can get around the city in a hurry. 
Um, we travel to Seattle. One of us goes to Seattle every week uh, for one day where we have four operations. Uh, and so we pick two. And then we have a few scattered and we have to plan them. So they know about every three weeks they'll see one of us for at least four hours. So if we travel, it takes two hours to get there. They get a four-hour visit. And that is their coaching, consultation, uh, I'm in debt, what do I do moment, right? And so I was in uh, a city a couple weeks ago. A gentleman sat with me, and he's like, um, I owe these guys, I owe these guys, I owe these guys. I'm upside down financially, what do I do? And we did a financial counseling session. Um, I had his P&Ls, and his P&Ls, again, were showing that they kind of made money, and so... We got into his square, and we looked at his inventory. We looked at everything in his business, and we dissected it down. And when I left, I had four highlights on a giant piece of paper. And I said, you need to work on this, this, and this. And number one, you have a spending problem. Your business only brings in $6,000 a month, and you're spending eight. You guys, everybody in this room understands what that means. We have a like if we have a credit line and it's maxed out, you don't have anything left. If if you're going to go gamble and you only have a hundred bucks, and when you're out of a hundred, right, you you know where it goes from there. So this person has a spending problem. I can't do anything about it. All I can do is coach him how to run his business. So that's what we do, and um, that's part of the technical assistance process. And you know, my vendors appreciate the fact I'll come out and spend time and go through that. Um, It's not. You know what I like to do, but that's what we got to do because we got to keep them in business. Because I don't have anybody standing up uh, when that person files for bankruptcy. I don't have another licensee to go into that facility, and I owe the client and the customer, you know, a, a business. And we run cafeterias, by the way, so we have vending, but I outsource most of that. So I'm talking on-site, full-service cafeterias in all of our operations. So they require a little bit more work, which is why I make the investment. Does any um, other SLA staff or committee chair have questions of the other ones in the room? Anything you didn't learn during your sessions you'd like to ask now? I can ask you, are there any particular topics that you'd like to have us talk about next year at Sagebrush? We always like to hear new ideas. And, of course, we're going to ask you tomorrow, too, at the end of this session. But our last speaker this afternoon is Annie Walters from Social Security Administration. But I don't think she's in the room yet. Oh, she just walked in. Well, great. We're... Oh no problem. You're you're early. We're just running. We're just running uh, early. That's all. <laughs> we'll give her time to set up. No worries. Okay. Hi, it's Tracy again. Um, yes, actually, this is a very very old innovational product. But I have put it in because of healthy choices. I don't know if you're aware from Vistar, you can get, um, it's called Quaker rice cakes. They're caramel or cheddar. 
And so you got two choices, but the dates on them are like four months out. So that is really great for a healthy choice item. And also it's only 100 calories. And I'm finding that people are absolutely loving them. So I now put rotate out one, one month it's the caramel, the next month it's cheddar, but I have not actually outdated one of those bags. So it's just an old innovation, but it is still working today. Thank you. Okay, I'll get closer to the mic. Great. Thank you for having me today. My name is Annie Walters, and I work with the Social Security Administration. I'm the Public Affairs Specialist for the State of Nevada. So today I just want to kind of give you some general information to see if this information will affect you. Some of you probably are aware of this already or are very familiar with it. So I want to give you some basic general information about the randolph Shepard Act that might affect you in terms of Social Security disability benefits. So in 2020, if you are actively working right now, you, we have this thing called the substantial gainful limit. Are you guys aware of that limit right now? So it's currently at uh, $2,040 per month for 2019. So in the changes of 2020, it's gone up to $2,110. So that's that new change that we have. And the way the blind self-employment accountable earnings work, uh, if you guys are not familiar with it, is that we do take that dollar amount we have to take into consideration to deduct any unpaid help that you might have, any impairment-related work expenses, and unincurred business expenses. I'm actually curious to hear maybe a story of you guys if you want to hang back so I can get an idea of like what your circumstances are, and it'll give us a better idea of the um, what you guys might be going through. I think every state might be slightly different. Uh, the laws do not change from state to state. It really depends on business to business. I'm assuming that you guys are filing for 1099s and not actual W-2s, so that changes the way of how we calculate their earnings also. So by a show of hand, are you guys usually doing 1099s for vendors here? We got one? One? Okay. Uh, yeah, Schedule C, Schedule SC, 1099s, that's what you guys would be um, doing on your business for the vendors? Okay. So... Um, just to kind of go into detail, though, I'm not sure if you guys are well aware of what an income-related um, work expense would be and what unincurred business expenses will be. So I kind of wanted to touch up on that a little bit so maybe you'll have a better understanding of the information. So I got some of the policies here. I actually emailed Artis. Artis has the... Uh, some of the audio that talks about disability, how to count self-employment. There's uh, like five more publications that we have that's on, all on audio. Um, if you would like that information to be forwarded to you, you can ask her to do so. I actually uh, gave her another email regarding our policies. Um, really nothing has changed. It's kind of just more informational for you today. So that policy is actually given to artists and she can actually email you the information. You can actually navigate through our website at www.socialsecurity.gov, and all the policies are actually uh, within that section of our programs and rules. And I actually taught um, artists to navigate through that. She doesn't know it yet, but I emailed her today. So she, <laughs> she has all the steps of how to get to our programs and rules, okay? Let's see. Um, 
Yeah, so really it's just all informational things that I really have for you today. I would love to take a lot of Q&As if you have any at all whatsoever. But let's go over some examples that we might have here to share. Let's see. So if you've already taken out uh, business expenses and uh, it's taken out from your gross amount, then we can't count it as an um, unincurred business expense. So we have to really, uh, and again, it's case by case. That's why it's a little bit tricky. So I don't want to say anything that might be incorrect here, but I'm just kind of reading off our policy information. Uh, let's say if you have like cash registers, any fax machines, spaces, utilities that's been provided for you, we need to figure out what the fa- fair rental value is and how the depreciation of the item has gone down. And then taking into all that into consideration, we take it off of the gross dollar amount from your income. And then that can actually lower your ex- uh, lower your income amount so that you will be under what we call the substantial gainful limit. Earlier when I talked about the 2000 some dollar limit, you can go under that. So there's quite a bit of things that you guys are able to deduct. It could be um, any medical device, um, any similar items or services can be deducted. Um, usually cost of drugs and medical services cannot be deducted, uh, but if it's necessary to control your disabling condition, then that's something that we would allow a person to deduct if it enables you to return to work. So lots of different things. Um, I shouldn't say it's too uh, much different. The last time I pulled up the policy, it says the last time we changed anything was... Let's see, the income-related work expenses was in 2015. So if you've heard about it in the past couple of years, really nothing has changed in that regard. In terms of your accountable earnings, the policy has been in effect since 2007, so nothing has changed in that regard either. So really, um, again, I'm just really providing more basic information here. And uh, if you guys want to hear about anything else that... I can go over with you guys today because really there's not much information that's changed since the last time. We have a lot of newcomers. A lot of newcomers here? here I got it. Okay. Yeah. Any of you guys in farm work by any chance? You have any farm income? No? Yeah, we're not going to go over that either then. Okay. If you get any unpaid help, that could be from like a spouse, maybe a child. It could be any other individuals that's helping you. So an example that we have in the policy right now talks about a vendor. Um, Let's say you have a uh, cafeteria that's in a courthouse and you happen to provide the service there. Not you per se, but then the people that you hire there. So during that time period somebody might volunteer to help you stock up the items, okay? That's unpaid help if you decided not to hire the individual. It was just on a volunteer basis. So we need to know how much that unpaid help uh, would normally be. So we look up under, I think, the BLS listing. It'll tell us, let's say it costs the individual $7.50 to render this type of service. Then that $7.50 per hour is actually deducted from your net income that allows us to verify what your true earnings are during that time period. So that's what an accountable earning would be when you have unpaid help. Okay. And earlier, I already talked about the unincurred business expense. That could either be paid by yourself or by uh, another individual. And it could be deducted from your gross income to determine your net income. Things that are not deductible are like any routine annual physicals, maybe um, some kind of routine dental, or maybe health insurance and life insurance policies. Those are non-deductible items, so that cannot be taken out from your gross income, okay? 
Do you guys have any questions or concerns at this point in time with the accountable incomes and how we deduct um, income work-related expenses and unincurred business expenses at this point in time? Yes, sir, in the back. I have a question about the, the Social Security Administration. How do you guys train people to know what these are? Like in all the offices, some of the offices have no idea what some of these expenses are, and they'll, they'll send you a letter, and you'll go down, you'll sit down with a person, and the person has no idea what you're talking about when you go into these. So how does somebody who's going into a Social Security office sitting down with one of these persons explain, explain this stuff to them if they don't know? Thank you for that question. So I'm sure everybody heard the question. Um, Every office is a little bit different. I can only speak for the offices that I'm currently involved with at this point in time right now. So I work out of the Henderson office, but it does affect the North Las Vegas and the Las Vegas office. Um, Unfortunately, this is for us considered something that's different and uh, we don't deal with it a lot because we have a main office that actually we anything that's work review related we transfer all the information to them so everybody is trained to look up policy if you ever mentioned a, uh, the randolph shepherd act the claim specialist will be able to look up the policy to verify how do we calculate this information so that we can follow policy and calculate the earnings accurately. So if that continues to be a problem, then you want to make sure you speak with the supervisor during that time period so we can get you the technical expert help that you would require from us. So that's within our area here. I'm not sure how it would work from state to state, but each office should be able to handle that information. It just really all depends on... Um, what type of personnel they have and how many trained representatives they have uh, that's available to answer your questions on the spot regarding the Randolph Shepard Act. Thank you. Was there any other questions uh, yeah. out there? Uh, how do you calculate the uh, <clears throat> square footage of a location that has strictly vending machines? Is it just like the, uh, the whole room of where the machines are located or just is it a specific formula for that? If I read the policy correctly, I, we have to follow the IRS law. It'll tell us how to calculate that information. So that, that's when it does get a little, um, I shouldn't say convoluted, but it does get a little specific. So we would have to look up the policy to verify like how we actually calculate it. And we're not trained to do anything with IRS, so we have to look up the policy to see how much of that square footage can we actually calculate out of that. Does that answer your question? So how would I look up the policy? Where, 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 where do I go to look up the policy for that? Yeah, so if you want to, um, it's under www.socialsecurity.gov, same website that I mentioned earlier, but it's a five-step way to get there, okay? So if I can read it off by memory, or I, like I said, I can tell artists to send it to you guys, and then you can go step-by-step step how to look up that specific policy. Um, the, the first couple of ones that I sent her, is basically talking about countable earnings. As you read through the policy, it'll tell you all the different links that you can go into for the policy that you're pertaining, uh, that you're that you're asking about. So I'll be more than happy to just send her that direct link so that you don't have to do the search yourself. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. There was a couple of questions. I think um, did anybody have their hand up? Yeah. Oh, I see right another there. one. Did you have one? Um, I'm getting ready in that time of retirement. Are there certain things that I should be starting to do with Social Security? For us, it's pretty simple for retirement. You can do it online the same month that you're ready to retire. 
And then we just tell people, like, usually within 30 days, your paperwork will be processed. If you feel like you want to gear up for it, then we suggest just calling, like, two, three months ahead of time. Make sure you have an appointment if you decide you either want to go into the office or if you rather just do it over the phone. Um, the quickest way is to actually do it on the Internet uh, because once you submit it, it actually gets submitted to a representative the very next morning. So it really depends on your take on it, but no more than three months because the system can't handle anything sooner than that, okay? Yes, you're Okay, welcome. here's another question. I apologize. I didn't touch up on uh, retirement. Um, I didn't think that this was going to be a subject that was going to come up, but let me know if you guys want to hear more about retirement or disability benefits. Okay. Uh, Annie? Yes. Just what, one comment on, on incurred business expense. It's been my understanding that, you know, previous question about um, vending machine uh, real estate rent. My, I've been under belief, you know, all along is that you take the square footage of the vending machine itself plus the swing of the door, because that's what the space you actually need for that vending machine. Take that square footage, then call a local realtor because um, real estate rental fees vary from state to state, city to city, building to building. So you call a local realtor and ask them what the average square foot, uh, per square foot rental is on that particular facility or in that regional area or block or whatever. And that is your reasonable uh, deduction for unincurred business expense for having that particular vending machine in that location. Uh, it's... It sounds complicated, but it's not. Not really. You know, just basically take the dimensions of your vending machine, the, the footprint, and double that. That would include your door swing. So I'll go ahead and verify that information to ensure that um, we can provide you the, with the utmost accurate information regarding the real estate write-off. There's a question to that side of the room. Oh, you have the mic there. Yes. Aloha, and um, I became a blind vendor 10 years ago. And uh, one of the requirements is to fill out a form with the unincurred expense. Uh, back then, my area was 120 square feet. And then I moved to a location with about 10,000 square feet. Now I'm back to 350 square feet. How does that affect the unincurred expense on uh, area, and how do I change the uh, calculation of the unincurred expense? Okay. I think your question was that you moved into a bigger property, and um, you're wondering, like, how much of that? Is, is all of it being utilized, or is it just part of it being utilized at this point in time, and you're paying more rent for this bigger space, it sounds like, Right. It goes up and down? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so I can uh, write down that question and verify the information with you. I apologize. I don't have the uh, answer offhand for you at this point in time. So um, is this an actual vending machine that's there, or it's just a property that you're asking about? Vending. There's a vending machine in there. Multiple vending machines? Okay. So I don't, I don't know if it falls into the same... Uh, uh, information that was just presented right now, but I'll go ahead and re-verify the information for you guys. There's a question uh, down that way of the room. Oh, oh okay. Microphone's coming. Oh, good. 
But my first question is, you were talking about retirement. My wife just retired. It's, well, I won't tell you your age, but she just retired. And when she called Social Security, they told her she had to apply for six months in advance because of Medicare, I guess. Is that correct? She's, six, she's 66. Is, is your wife already on benefits? No, no, she was. She never. She's never received disability, but she just retired. When she retired, she went to Social Security. Well, she got ready to retire, and they told her she had to do an application like six months prior in order to get into the Medicare system when she needed to. So in your wife's situation, if she's actively receiving any type of benefits, Medicare automatically kicks in. So for retirement, it kicks in on your 65th birthday. There's no additional applications to file. So maybe about like two months before she turned 65, Social Security should be sending her um, the Medicare card already, and they should be notifying her of her start date that starts on the month of her 65th birthday. So that's how that would work. All right, and, and my second question is not really a question, but I, I know that in Florida, people were asking about how to, how to determine how many square footage there are. Our, our agency has a square footage of every one of our locations, so I don't know how you guys help each state set up, because I've been told every state's different, but so a lot of you can get that information you need from your, from your SLAs, I would hope. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? If I uh, misheard the last last question, if you're trying to change your square footage with Social Security or you're trying to report something different, you're welcome to go ahead and just um, fill out the form again. And uh, I, I, didn't, I don't have any of the forms printed at this point in time. But if you have the form handy that you printed uh, last time, you can go ahead and print out another one again and go ahead and make those changes. So then Social Security can go ahead and uh, make the necessary changes on our record. And so understand that Social Security counts your earnings on a monthly basis. Whether you report it monthly or not, that's um, self-employed individuals do it once a year, right? Or you could do it quarterly. So if you think you're over the limits or if there's any changes, that's when you report it to Social Security. So we don't necessarily um, dictate it, but hopefully um, if there's any changes, you got to report that right away so we can understand and whether your benefits should continue or whether it should stop and whether it's over or under the threshold. That's the only way we can tell. Any other questions or concerns on retirement, disability, or any expenses? With that said, I just wanted to... Um, go over some uh, scam things that's been going on. Probably you guys have been getting a lot of these phone calls. So the Gail Ennis is our off- Office of Investigator General. She's telling everybody to, if you do get a call, you want to go ahead and hang up. And if you happen to pick up the phone call, if you have the number handy, you want to go ahead and report that information. The website to report it to at this point in time is www.org. OIG for Office of Inspector General dot SSA dot GOV. So at this point in time right now, that is the only website that we have that's live that you can report this information. There's no 1-800 number. Um, there, we're taking uh, millions of uh, contacts at this point in time. We're trying to figure out like how to combat this fraud that's happening right now. There's been an email scam that's been going out, too, so we want you guys to be aware of that information. Social Security will never threaten to shut off your benefits. We will never threaten to suspend um, your Social Security account because there's no such thing. And so you want to just go ahead and report that information to us so we can continue to fight this combat together. Aside from that, um, any other questions or any other concerns? 
Did we have a hand up earlier back there? No? Okay. I know it may be a lot of general information for newbies here. I hope that by the time we send you the emails and if you're able to listen to the audios or if you look through the policy and if you have any specific cases that you still want to address because the policies did not answer your questions, please feel free to send it our way. I'll try my very best to connect with the office managers to see if they can have a technical expert reach out to you guys, okay, depending on where you live. You have a question over there? So um, when I collected SSDI after I retired, um, I had a period where, you know, they wanted to audit everything and I couldn't even find all the records and everything. It turned out all fine because I never made anywhere close to enough money to, you know. So what I'm wondering is now that I am, you know, seamlessly over onto, um, you know, SSA, is it still possible that I'll get the same type of letter um, at some point in the future, or does that not happen with SSA recipients? I know the SGA is much higher and all that, but just curious, just that simple curiosity. I'm sorry. Okay, it so when I was on SSDI after I retired, I got a letter that said, we want to see you know all the income you made for the last like three years or okay. whatever. And so I had to compile all these records. Some I never even got and just, you know, guess, whatever. So I eventually, eventually I got out of it all because I really didn't have anywhere close to any problem with SSGA. But what I was wondering about, just sort of out of idle curiosity, is now I'm, you know, beyond that age and I'm getting SSA. I'm just wondering, do the same sort of audit letters get sent out to people that are getting you know, Social Security on the basis of age benefits, do they ever get asked to provide a showing of income? So are you still receiving Social Security retirement or Social Security disability? Just Social Security retirement. Retirement, okay. I switched over just, you know, seamlessly. Yeah, the threshold just um, changes from a retiree, from a disabled individual. So it just really depends on your age. Are you at your full retirement age? If you are, you shouldn't have any thresholds. 66, yeah, yeah. So you were born prior to 55. So if that's the case, your full retirement age would be 66. There wouldn't be any threshold at all. And you can earn as much as you want, and there shouldn't be any repercussions, and we shouldn't ask you for any additional paperwork. Okay. If we did, it would have been probably for your disability, and it was never addressed. And then when it does come up on your IRS tax information, we just happen to bump into it. And that's unfortunate because we do have cases that are backdated to a couple of years because it was either not reported to us or it could have been reported and the information got lost in the shuffle. Um, It could be a number of things that could have happened um, in terms of us going backwards and investigating a particular case or reviewing our earnings. Thank you. You're welcome. If you're not careful, Jeff, they'll make you come back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody has a different full retirement age. So depending on the year that you were born, it dictates when your full retirement age is. Is everybody aware of that? If you're born, okay. So depending on the year that you were born, um, I have some booklets here for retirement. You get to um, look to see when your full retirement age, it actually goes all the way up to uh, 67 years of age. So if you're born in 1960 or later, your full retirement age is no longer at uh, 66. It's actually, it can go up to 67 years of age. 
So it's 66 and two months, 66 and four months, so on and so forth. So that law has been in effect for over um, 19 years already. Uh, anybody who was born after January 2nd, 1938, your full retirement age is no longer at age 65. It has continually increased, and that has been set in law for quite some time. So please come on by, and I'll be more than happy to share that booklet with you so that I can tell you where you fall in terms of your full retirement age. Yeah. Yeah, you can retire as early as age 62. Okay, that's the earliest if you're not making over a specific threshold. I believe the threshold this year is about 17000 or maybe $18,000 right now. So if you're thinking about early retirement, there are ways to do that. You just got to make sure you stick under the threshold. If not, for every $2 you go over, a dollar would just be decreased from your Social Security. And if you decide to do it at age 62, I believe the percentage decrease is about 30%. Okay? So it's a permanent reduction on your benefit amount. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm here for any questions and answers. If you decide that you want to go ahead and stay behind and ask more personal questions that's not in front of the crowd, okay? Thank you. Um, Annie does have some printed information she has here. Um, and then uh, I'll have her information that she emailed me that I can forward to anyone that's attending the conference. But if you want the printed material, she brought that as well. And if you have any personal questions, feel free to talk to her. She's going to stay around here um, so you can ask questions. And if you want a door prize, I do have two more left. <laughs> Unless you want to leave. 